channel. Welcome to Winnie's Patreon special episode number 31. I'm your host, Chris Zellner. Joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, we're not alone on this Patreon special this week, because we have a special guest. Well, we had to for this one, I think. Yes, we did. As you know from listening to the main show the past couple of weeks, we've been mentioning that this show will be covering uh, the build-up to ECW's first pay-per-view, Barely Legal, well, in 1997. the build-up to ECW securing the deal to get on pay-per-view, Barely Legal. Basically, yes. Yes. In that way. In that way. Because if we had done on the way to that, <laughs> who knows what we, oh, how we would have had angles and storylines. <laughs> yeah. This and is... results. Like, this... Well, I said we. I told. I said in the main show we weren't going to be doing that stuff. I know. So, but anyway, there's a lot here. Anyway, so we went to the foremost expert, a man who did a tremendous documentary about the history of ECW a few years ago. We got Jeremy Borash, <laughs> a dear friend of ours, former guest on Between the Sheets in the past, and uh, always glad to have him whenever we can get him. The man, the myth, the legend. John Philip Havage. Johnny P, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Bix, uh, they, you guys had to get me because uh, a friend of mine in New York won't do the show for, because he'll try to kill you. So that's why I had to. <laughs> Jeremy Borat was available, but I, I'm ahead of him. The other person, though, it, even on the phone, you have to have too much security. <laughs> but in, in, the infam, in the supposed infamous words of the, uh, the great Eric Kulas, that sounds cool, but I want to do some shit to you. Oh boy, yeah. That's, that's, that, we'll be talking about that as the show goes along, that's for sure. Oh my God. Eric Coolis. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, um, this story goes back a long way. As I mentioned on, uh, the, on, the, on Between the Sheets, you know, and, you know, plugging this show, this story goes back to 1995 the beginning of the ECW pay-per-view talk. Now, at the time, Dave Meltzer was doing this uh, this thing. That it went over two weeks about who really owns ECW. Um, is it Todd Gordon? Is it this group called HHG? And who is HHG? Well, and- I mean, the thing was, I think, was that Gordon started kind of not being around as much, and then all of a sudden people started getting checks from HHG Group. Yeah, so people are wondering what it was called officially. So Dave Dave wrote this, was writing this article about the the status of ECW and how, you know, how they could become, you know, a bigger promotion. So on the June 19th issue of The Observer 1995, uh, Dave wrote this. Several in the company are trying to talk Paul Heyman and they're trying to use pay-per-view as a means to profitability. But Heyman is more leery thinking the company isn't ready. While SEG, Sports Entertainment Group, which does UFC pay-per-views... No, Semaphore this, Entertainment Group. Semaphore, excuse me. Excuse me. Has expressed interest in ECW as a pay-per-view entity. Heyman believes going on without adequate major market exposure is a risk. And a first buy rate that flops would do a lot of long-term damage. So, going back here to June 95, we have uh, SEG here wanting to get with VCW to do pay-per-views. Um, 
JP, when you were, you know, doing your stuff on for Barbara City, did any of this ever come up in anything that uh, that you talked about with anybody? No, I I um I have only heard this once before, and this is probably the source. And I in no way could ever verify any real interest. Um, we know Heyman talked to talked on the phone for hours to Meltzer and to Keller at the Torch. So I think this is just something that he may have said that Dave kind of took at face value. But then again, like Dave, like in 95, it was still run by the, the original owners of UFC, correct? Yeah. And so, Dave was very well connected. Exactly. So I, I have never heard this other than something that sounds exactly like it was taken from the observer. It never came up in any interview. And I talked at a lot of length with people about the run up to the pay-per-view. So I have, I have no idea about this. But it would make sense though, Fix, because SC, I could see SEG doing this thing where we're doing UFC and this, you know, it's what it is at this time period. It's got this negative connotation to the press. We're outlaws in a way. And now let's, let's find something in wrestling that's sort of the same uh, feel as UFC is to fighting. Here's ECW. And ECW at this time is, is you know, still traditional ECW in, in spring, summer 95. So I could see them doing that, but Heyman's right. I mean, the ECW is not yet there yet, you know, as far as exposure-wise. So, Bix, you, you think that, that SEG was looking at ECW in that way? Maybe. I mean, there are a few things to consider as far as, giving credibility to this you know one is you know like we just said dave would have been able to get all the key people on the phone absolutely um, now there are there are people who complain about dave not checking things with them even though he could like i mean we've all heard stories even people that you would think he would check stuff with like gabe sapolsky i'm talking about at least in the roh era who would express reservations with people because there were things that they wished Dave would have checked with them. But still, I, I think there's legitimacy to this to some degree, but maybe it just didn't go very far. But also, you have to consider, too, who's the main guy as far as, like, the point person for this type of thing at SEG at this point would be Campbell McLaren, who's the one behind all the bad in 48 states type of marketing for the UFC. And, you know, is basically a hippie burnout who would probably enjoy ecw hey when do they go dark uh, like not dark but when do they start having issues with cable companies uh, uh february 96 is cable vision i don't and then i think they have issues well, with we're back, we're, yeah our next show uh <laughs> between the seats we'll be talking about uh about some of those problems <laughs> i don't know i don't i never remember when viewers choice and request pull out though well uh time warner was 97 Okay. So I'm wondering how their relationship with pay-per-view providers affects whether they're interested in getting into the wrestling market or they then can't because they have a problem with their primary project. Well, you have to remember at this point, most there hasn't been a ton of bad UFC publicity yet. I mean, you know, so this is June, so UFC 6 hasn't even happened yet. We haven't had Tank Abbott you know, sending John Matua into convulsions and then mocking it yet. You know, ECW hasn't really even done anything that controversial yet, but they still kind of fit marketing-wise. So I could see why they might have some interest and why that might change. 
that's what I'm thinking. I'm I'm looking at it from the marketing perspective of SEG, and uh, you know, it would be a natural match for them to hook up with a wrestling promotion that has the same spirit as they do. Uh, Mark, yeah, they would have been able to sell ECW to the people they were selling UFC to at the time. Exactly. All right, well, let's get let's fast forward a couple of months. August 14th, issue of The Observer 95. Paul Heyman's views on trying to do a pay-per-view show seem to have changed. He was dead set against it a few months back, but now wants to open negotiations with Semaphore and or TVKO. TVKO is, of course, HBO's uh, boxing pay-per-view company, which, which is now HBO a, pay-per-view. Yeah, now that one's an interesting one because TVKO... You know, it's not some of our entertainment group. So, yeah, that is an interesting one to look at for sure. Um, obviously, it doesn't happen that we know of. But uh, what 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 do we think may have changed his mind at this point in time from June to August? Do we think it, it's maybe the great runs that they've been having in Florida that's kind of piquing his interest, or or are we thinking the fact that what we're about to talk about, the, the thought of losing some major talent. I think he needs a carrot on a stick. Exactly. Dangle that carrot. That's a great call. So let's just get to that then. All right. Let's talk about that. All right. August 21st issue of Observer. Now, this is, as part, this is part of the, a larger story that Dave wrote about WCW acquiring the services of Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, and Dean Malenko. And Sabu, who was not in ECW. Yeah. Uh, they've been working for the U.S. and ECW. Uh, except, well, Sabu at this time wasn't. Right. And, uh, you know, there were the foreign stars in New Japan's junior heavyweight division. Gerardo Malenko had been feuding over the ECW television title. The best consistent series of matches in the country as of late. As of the weekend, ECW co-owner Paul Heyman said he expected that Benoit was going to WCW. But they didn't think Gerardo or Malenko, both of whom he was planning on using to build his first pay-per-view show around, would follow and was surprised when Malenko called him, giving him the news Monday afternoon. Malenko and Guerrero will work their scheduled ECW dates through the end of August, including the two out three fall blow off match on August 26th in Philadelphia with the TV title currently held by Guerrero at stake. The deals with all the wrestlers would be to work for WCW when not booked on New Japan tours, rather than work primarily for WCW and be booked by WCW for Japan tours. So, JP, if Guerrero Malenko don't go to WCW. Do we get an ECW pay-per-view before the end of 1995? Probably not, honestly. You don't um, think it makes a difference, do you? <laughs> no, no, because you still have to, to do... I do think that there's a third option to the last thing we talked about uh, that's kind of related to the carrot on a stick thing, and I think it's that he knows he's... He's getting too much. It's it's that balance of wanting to be Studio 54, which is something that he was kind of, he had worked for them in their dying days and was kind of obsessed with. Well, actually, I wouldn't even call it the dying days. I call it like the reboot. Fair. Yeah. Fair, <laughs> fair. 54. But um, he always wanted that kind of ECW arena is like the, the nightclub setting and you pretend it's sold out even when you, I really wish I, I was more clued in because apparently they were handing out tickets locally you were getting free comps locally to get that place packed and i always paid to go there because <laughs> i didn't know um <laughs> but i think there is this third thing of like um and i guess i'll say it now because there's no like proper place for it but 
I think it's actually in the documentary from the February 96 Cyber Slam, where he talks about pay-per-view and the realities of it and says that anybody, his quote, which it's not this simplistic, but anybody with $250,000 can run a pay-per-view. Uh, that's, that's something he says. It's not that simple, but I do think that if he, I think he thinks I'm going to lose people. I've gotten too hot now where I'm on the other side of this buzz and it would probably behoove me to see if I can get an influx of money to pay for a pay-per-view and try to reap the benefit. Because I do think that Heyman in 1995 believes that he, he is one of the Kool-Aid drinkers himself who believes that, uh, he can have a possible cash cow with pay-per-view. 90. Yeah. Yeah, he he would probably think that in '95, and it. I love 1995 ECW. It's my favorite year of ECW, but they were not ready for pay per view by any means yet. In '95, completely agree. Picture you're in line with that as well. They weren't ready for pay per view, but the thing is that it also ends up being the most balanced product they ever had, and it would have been the most pay per view suitable product they ever had, in a sense. Yeah. 96 is a really underrated year. I think that if they could have gotten... That was a great year. I think if, if in the late summer of 96 you can get there, that to me that may have been the, the best uh, possible version. 96 they, well, has the best in-ring from the core guys and the best overall book. And the tone, toning down somewhat of, of the, the visceral violence. Thank like, there's you, still Tommy Morrison, for that. <laughs> right, right. So, so you're still getting your violence, but you're not getting as much blood. The, yeah, the, the thing, the thing I want to say is the reason why, and I've said this before, the reason why I always say that '95 is my favorite year is because that's when it had the the most charm, ECW charm. That's when it really, I mean, ECW was really ECW '95, and '96 it amped up to basically. How we would call something like a super indie? 96 ECW is definitely a super indie of its 90, era. Ninety five feels the most like one hundred twenty minutes as pro wrestling. Yeah, it's the purest distillation of the idea of it. Pure ECW, exactly. And ninety six is all right. Now we're just we, we've gone full commercial <laughs> in a way. To some to a hardcore commercial. So you're bringing in yeah. your Steve Williams, your Gordies that summer, stuff like that. Anything, anything before they they made their first appearance on World Wrestling Federation program. That's that's yeah. where the that's where the line stops. Now, does that it's count as September of '96 at that yeah. front row in that pay per view? Mind games. Yep. Okay. And then, okay. And then Raw after that. Yep. That well, um, that that. That's when the mood changed, as Taz would say. Well, especially because they have Joey Styles go on TV and be like, hey, any fans who might have snuck in their camcorders that can send us footage that they took? And then they run, like, badly obscured WWOF TV footage. <laughs> yeah. Claiming that it was fan cams. Well, all you have to do is put the, the little grid, uh, the, the camera view thing, and then just put fan cam blinking, and it's a fan cam. That's what they did all all the time. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. I don't know. The timing, again, the timing just wasn't right at this point in time. And they haven't really, they haven't dressed up the arena yet. You know, the arena still was looking like the arena. You know, that's about to change as 95 goes along. Yes. 
Although they do have that period, like briefly in early '95, where they upgraded the production. Yeah, they which, did a great television. Which I never understood, like why that only lasted a few months. Because, like, if you, it's especially noticeable on the network because, like, I would say like January through like March '95 looks like a different promotion because, like, they're using better cameras, they're using better videotape, and then the rest of the year looks like it might have as well have been taken from a VHS tape. My Which guess... Makes, go ahead, Jimmy. Go ahead. My guess is two things. One is that depended on the pocketbook. I, now, this is not fully confirmed, but it's also why you have somebody like me on this. Um, my guess is that uh, Steve Carroll gave an influx of, of money for that because he would have been... Uh, involved in the production aspects on a, at least a business level. I also think that they expanded. I know that it was a big deal of them expanding and sending those tapes out, but they were paying obscene money to be on the Sunshine Network and on MSG. And I think things kind of tightened up. And I think that's the reason. Because those are all, I don't think they owned a lot of the production stuff. I think they rented a lot, especially because Heyman was so kind of like slap shot in everything. What was the guy, Mike? Mike, uh, God, what was his name? Are we talking about production people? Yeah, Mike. Uh, wow. so Charlie, Charlie Brzee's and um, Mike Wonderful. something. Thank you. No, but it was a Mike too. That's always that was always thanked at the end of ECW in the credits. God, along yeah. with the Stonecutter Media, and all which that. is Steve Carroll. Yeah. Yeah, but it's Mike something. I can't remember his name. But anyway, yeah, there was, you know, they, they did improve the production, and then it did go down, so I don't know. I mean, probably part of it, too, I would guess, is that they were maybe also needing to rent edit suites. Exactly. They moved, to New York. they moved to New York, and I think, thank you, Bix, you're helping me there, because I think what it is is they moved to New York, and at first, whenever people do projects at first and they have a money guy, you throw a bunch of money and you're like, oh, it's going to – and then uh, you know, a month or two goes by and you go, okay, we're bleeding money. Maybe we need to step it back. I think that's what happened. Yeah. Well, that, right. that's probably the truth. Because then at that point also they're just ed- able to edit in Ron's parents' house. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's move on a few months later in 1996. The January 29th issue of The Observer – uh, Sabu, of course, has come back, uh, reappeared in November to remember, and it says that Paul Heyman promised Sabu that he'd headline each ECW pay-per-view show before June the 12th. There's no definite date as of yet for an ECW pay-per-view show. Oh, those Paul Heyman promises, JP. <laughs> oh, a, yes, this seems so believable, because it's, but also, like, who's telling Dave that other than Paul Heyman or Gabe Sapolsky? Um, and there's probably one or two other wrestlers, but is Sabu calling? Like, no. it seems so Paul Heyman, but I also think this is something that like Sabu helped get out there <laughs> in some way. Like, I'm sure he probably said some nonsense like that because he was always robbing Peter to pay Paul, in, not only in financial terms, but in terms of like things he'd say. But I really am curious. I would love to know the source of that. I'm willing to bet it's Paul Heyman. <laughs> Bex, you, what do you think? Maybe his roommate. <laughs> what was his roommate's name? Dave. Yeah. The roommate, he sounded exactly like Paul Heyman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
it's five months. Well, I mean, if he promised Sabu that when he came back, then it would be late 95. So they were trying. I mean, they're trying. It's in their minds, you know, as we're seeing here. There's something that's definitely in the thought process that we're going to do this. It's just a matter of when. You know? There's absolutely a good amount of talk within – well, it would have been within like two or three – within the month of, of this uh, issue at the CyberSlam that I referenced earlier. There's a lot yeah. of pay-per-view talk on that CyberSlam. It's, it's kind of considered something that's going to happen within that year. So, yeah, I mean I guess it is possible. Paul put the, the, the cart before the horse and was just like, yeah, June, June will get it done. Well, May 27th Observer says differently. The latest target date for our first pay-per-view is the fall, perhaps the November to Remember show. Now, as we look at November to Remember, which will be, you know, in the, going to November in just a little bit, they haven't really... The thing about Eastern pay-per-view is what drives it is they have the angle to just to sell the show. And they, they don't have that yet. At this point in time, I mean... By the way, what? What? I just looked it up, looked, trying to find episodes on the network that would have yeah. it in the credits. ECW music coordinator Mike Esterman on QTV. On QTV, Mike Esterman. There you go. I knew it. Mike Esterman. Yep. By, by the way, I spent years interviewing and talking to people on the record, off the record, tons of research, blah, 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 blah. I never at any point heard anybody say anything about qtv or mike esterman on qtv or whatever yeah, yeah. i'm gonna guess okay i just found and from what i'm looking at trying to see right now mike esterman is a celebrity agent but also what on qtv looks to be like one of those like local rap like on nyc tv we have here type of like interview shows or local like music video shows I'm guessing that Mike Esterman was a guy who had a small, like, music video show that aired on public access or something, and he is music coordinator because he's getting, because he has music video tapes that he has legal clearance to use, and he is loaning those to ECW. Bingo. I've, I've always thought it was, it was uh, a very pathetically thought out um, cover for, in case of lawsuits. Because they played so fast and loose with intellectual property, especially music stuff. Like they thank Tommy Boy. I like it's a lot of that stuff is very questionable, and I think it was just some sort of like I use the term pathetic, and that's not the right word really. But I think it was like half-assed. Like, well, in court, we'll say this because we right. know this. You never, right? I think you told me years ago you never heard the Tommy Boy story until outside or outside of uh, the WWE documentary, right? Absolutely true. Yeah, that the whole Tommy Boy clearance thing, uh, which then sort well, of related. Remember, he said Paul said Tommy Boy was paying them. Oh right, right, right. But then it became some kind of money. Oh my god! Paid for for uh, Scorps music, WWE paid them money, and then they paid. Yeah, it, it's it's all very convoluted and kind of phony. What did you just say? All right, I found Mike Esterman's dance explosion from 1990. Well, there you go. It's on YouTube, and he looks like a guy who would be working with ECW in the 90s. Does he look like a guy that Heyman would have met at the front door? At, at like, the China Club? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, wait. Play it back. Yeah, yeah, I... Okay. My name is Mike Estrem. ...has been changed or altered, and the people that you will see are regular patrons of this club. So if you missed the taping of this one-of-a-kind dance show, then sit back and buckle your seatbelts, because I'm going to take you into another dimension. Now, the only dance show of its kind, Mike Esterman's Dance Explosions, where we come to your neighborhood head on. Hi, if you want to know what Mike Esterman does now... Oh my God, look at that hair. There you go. That's 1990 right there, folks. The explosion is brought to you in part tonight by the Ramada Inn, by Adams, Norfolk, Virginia, by 97 (laughs) Star WGH Radio, by the fine folks at Hardee's, by Montgomery Donuts, the Cake Division, by the special friends at Camelot Music, by Eagle Snacks, by Metro Beat Fashions, Dance Explosion, the dance show that really moves. Alright, enough of this. Yeah, this is clearly some guy that had that like had some token weird public access music shows. Okay, alright. He books celebrities now. Mm-hmm. His most notable client is Mario Lopez. He works with the fu- here's some notable other notable names. He books Tyson Beckford. He books Tori Spelling. Kelly Rowland of uh, Destiny's Child. Oh, he has an episode. He has an episode of On QTV on his own YouTube channel. RuPaul. Get, get, get up. Bella. Get, get, get up. Get, get, get up. Get, get, get up. You gotta get up. Oh, oh my goodness. Connie Walber, Danny Trejo, LL Cool J, Wilmer Valderrama, Vince Neil, Vanilla Ice. What a groove of talent this man has booking uh, power for. This is quite the rabbit hole. <laughs> this is quite the Paul Heyman rabbit hole. This is what this hole. show does. And there, <laughs> yeah. you know, we have interviews with uh, Daisy Fuentes and Heavy D. Nate Lachey. Oh, and, and if you see him now, when you'll see him on YouTube, I mean, on, on his website, mm-hmm. bald, bald head goatee. Okay. Wow. He has <laughs> Joy Fatone. <laughs> Oh, he's got celebrity endorsements. Yeah, of course. Fix, can you search Pacer to find out if he has any kind of like legal stuff in the state of New York with like Dan Cortez or something? Because I just feel like he's got to be involved in, (laughs) or like Simon Rex or something over unpaid (laughs) appearances on his uh, cable access show. Amazing, amazing. So that's who that's who Paul Hamill was working with for uh, for ECW uh, music stuff was Mike Esterman. Who they probably had a background going way back with the club club stuff. I think legally, though, this is like going into court and being like, my friend has met music celebrities and also owns CDs, so we're good, right? Like, I, I just feel like it's such Eamon Flimsy nonsense. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the September 16th issue of The Observer. The plan right now is to build for the biggest show of the year on November 16th as November to Remember. It's a definite that won't be a pay-per-view show, nor that there will be a pay-per-view day for at least four months as to properly marketing something like that new, like that, when you would need to give the cable companies a good form of advance on the date. And as of right now, nothing of that type has been done. So there you go. I always felt like this should have been the pay-per-view. Not necessarily um, that card, but I, I remember 
I would have been 15 at this point, and I like I didn't have access to the information until like a year later. But as a fan watching week to week, I felt like if they were going to do pay per view, because even as a as a non like quote unquote insider fan, you you knew that that's the goal, and it just felt like this would have been the date. Not saying the card itself, but saying that this seemed like what they were building towards, and then it was kind of well, here's the yeah, you do the Sabu Taz angle at the end, and that drives the next show. Right. That's the hook. You do the big thing at the end with Sabu and Taz. You go off the air with that as the you know ending moment. And, yeah, that would have been a big deal. That, that is the thing that would, that would have done it. Now, is it before or after November or remember in 96 that they do the the heels in the ring and the faces up on the stage. And Taz says, like, there's everybody knows there's going to be a they're drawing up contracts to do a big show in the first quarter of uh, the next year. And I want that guy. He's, it's it's more push to set up uh, Sabu and and Taz. Yeah, I don't remember the timing. Yeah, it's it's in this area, but I'm I'm wondering because I feel like at that point they knew they were doing it the next year, so it's probably. Uh, after. Yeah. Well. All right. Now, let's go to the week of November 11th. The Observer covered 8, November 18th. The plan is to build to a major show in February. Paul Heyman had to make a decision about the latter part of the week. Well, not take a pay-per-view date in February. As to do pay-per-view right, you need three months lead time, <laughs> not four, for the right type of promotion. Heyman's planning on doing a Friday night if he does one and want to do it on a weekend without WF or WCW. So the February schedule at this point shows UFC on February 7th, WF on 16th, and WCW on 23rd. No, it's in the eight, February 28th is the best day possible, although the odds were as good as not that Heyman wouldn't do a pay-per-view that soon. Friday night pay-per-view. That's, um, that's an interesting concept. They didn't do it, but it would have been different. It'd be interesting to see how that would have worked because boxing used to do Friday night pay-per-views in the past. So and and they did good great buy rates back in the old days on Friday night. So why not try and give it a shot on a Friday night? You know, but it didn't happen. And then in February, all right, the uh, eight, week of the eighteenth of the November, the November twenty third, issued a torch. The latest word of pay view is that due to limited available dates in March, the event will now be held sometime in April. So now we're in where we need to be. That gives ECW extra few weeks few extra weeks before having to lock in a date. Although all indications are that they're 100% intending to lock in an April date in the next few weeks. The event will be held live rather than on tape delay. Until recently, Paul Hammond wanted the show to be taped 48 hours in advance and post-produced to avoid the stress and pressure of a live show. Request TV wanted the event live. That's interesting, JP, that Paul wanted to have the show to taped and airing on pay-per-view and not live. That kind of would have uh, that, I don't know if that would have been the best move. So request, I think, had the right idea in mind. You agree with that? Yeah, this is him wanting to have his comfort zone, and it kind of plays out with him insisting to the point of, like, at one point claiming to the pay-per-view people he was going to pull it. I mean, which was – it was a meeting, apparently, from what I understand. that it, it, Within five minutes, it all got sorted out. But he demanded that his people would be on camera and, and have a – and that he'd have more of a control in the, the directing the pay-per-view. I think this was just like a big uh, comfort play for him because he realizes it's happening, and now he's kind of like, oh, crap. Like, he had dangled this forever, and now it's happening, and he's like, okay, damn, what do I do? Well, I do 
I don't think it's just that. Okay, go we'll on. get into later, you know, co- comparing it to how, you know, UWFI did their first time out and stuff like that. If it's pre-taped, he doesn't have to have super high goals in terms of the pay-per-view buys because he doesn't have to spend nearly as much money for satellite time. Well, that's absolutely, yeah. And creatively, I can see where there's a lot of benefits to it as well. Well, I do think CW is a produced package product on television. Yeah, They're tightly controlled by him, even though it might not. It's he's one of those where you can either lean towards chaos or lean towards that crazy like a fox uh, kind of thinking, where you could go based on any one of these items. You could either go, well, he doesn't know what he's doing. This is insane, or you could go, oh, this is brilliant because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, but if if any promotion. Well, the promotion that the internet was going to be all over, it's ECW, and if there was a show that was taped with spoilers, it might have really would affect, I mean, it could really affect the viral. Mm, yes, yes. I'm more concerned, I've always been more concerned regarding this note with whether his young male audience wants to stay home at 9 p.m. on a Friday. Are they that excited that they're grouping together? Because Friday seems kind of like a great date. I know like in a lot of markets it aired late on Friday nights once you quote unquote got home from the bars. But are they grouping together to watch this at like say 9 p.m.? Or are they missing it because they're out and maybe remembering to catch a replay? Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons, but I, I'm in all actuality from, from the Hayman perspective and looking at how each of their previews went as they were broadcast live, they had a lot of problems on their pay-per-views with, with shit happening. Um, they never had the smoothest of experiences on a live shoot. So he definitely wanted to try to avoid that. And they weren't built for it. And I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah, they weren't, they weren't built for it, which is why I think that this is his – he's probably right as a, as a first reaction to go, I need to be able to control this because, because I think he knows what's going to happen in some cases. Uh, with like running out of, I mean, that first pay-per-view, you know, with, with time at the end, it's just, they weren't, they weren't used to that. I, one last thing, I do think it's interesting. I feel like the February thing was something that Heyman was totally spitballing to Dave the week before, <laughs> because when he talks to, to Wade within that week, it's now like, there's no mention of February, all the dates in March are gone and they're totally targeting April. Yeah, uh, we, we've learned over the years that Paul would spin yarns to both of them, separate yarns. <laughs> they definitely would do that. Well, but I remember, we'll have more on the general concept of his spinning later, too. And, 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 and you know, he learned from the best with that because one Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. would do the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To both to both outlets, yeah. Exactly. And when I, right. when I, when I yeah. grilled uh, Wade on what we're about to talk about, yeah. Uh, he made very clear, I was on the phone with that guy several times a week for like an accumulation of hours. So the idea of him talking about Wade and Bruce as if he'd never met them or heard about them. And like, it is pretty ballsy and insane when you think about the fact that the Torch guys were at the arena like twice. It's almost as like personal, like they were on the stage as kind of like personal guests of Heyman to see the show and report on it in 95. And then as we'll see here, things dissipate and stories kind of change in the way Heyman talks about them. Yes. Yeah. And real right. quick, before we get to this uh, little bit, the meat of all this to close out this segment, 
Uh, I don't know if it's the same guy, but if those videos gave us an indication that Mike Esterman was a DC area guy, um, Pacer does have a bankruptcy case for a Michael Esterman in Maryland and some kind of federal case against this, what appears to be the same Mike Esterman, which I can't get to load for some reason. But now he's a big-time celebrity agent, Booker. So. It, it could very well not be the same person. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what I found. So, All right, now, that's that. Let's, let's get to this. All right, the, the week of November 25th, Torch cover, November 30th, Observer cover, December 2nd. This is Dave Lenoff. One of the strangest deals in a long time. A combination angle and non-angle took place on November 23rd in Revere, Massachusetts. A 17-year-old named Eric Coolis was put in the ring with the gangsters and New Jack juiced him apparently with a Zacto knot. Apparently, Coolis, who had never had much of the way of formal training and probably never had gigged before, moved as he was being sliced and it hit an artery and blood flowed like a faucet. Coolish used his name Mass Transit, sub for a no show Axel Rotten in a tag match, tag title match with Team with Devon Dudley. He needed 50 stitches to close the wound. Supposedly, Coolish came to the building with some midget wrestlers and thought he was going to do something with them, and then they bailed on him. The idea of the angle was for him to wear a uniform like a public official and get destroyed by the gangsters. And New Jack asked him for the match if he wouldn't mind bleeding, and he apparently said he would. He wanted to cut himself, but New Jack wanted to do it since he was more experienced. The show was held up after this incident for a long period of time because various people, including Coolis' father, were freaking out because it took 25 minutes to clean the ring up from all the blood. The father was screaming about suing the promotion and later claimed that when he brought his son to the hospital, they wanted to press charges of child abuse against him because the authorities were alerted because of how bloody he was, and nobody believed that something like that happened in a pro wrestling match. Wow. To get their bayface character over more, New Jack got to the incident on the house mic said that either for all he cared, the guy could bleed to death, or even he hoped the guy would bleed to death, depending upon which version one chooses to believe. Torch reported, when the ECW's paramedics, damage control crew, couldn't help him enough, official paramedics showed up and stretched him out. Tommy Dreamer entered the ring to check on the situation and restore order. His father was going berserk in the front row and screamed about suing and pressing charges. Torch said they'll have more details on the incident next week which I'm sure we'll get to. Now, in a post on uh, the Rex Sport Pro Wrestling News Group on November 28th, Dave Shearer has some notes in a thread upon the various other posts, just saying that, quote, he called a few people, including a few of the workers at the ship who were disgusted by the incident, and they have stated that it was not deliberate and that New Jack was legitimately upset that the kid was hurt as he was, and that the worker asked New Jack to gig him, but New Jack did not deliberately slash him. And meanwhile, back in the Observer, that show that night in Revere, Drew saw 974 fans, but a television team the previous night, Webster, Drew only 300. All right, JP, this is a pivotal moment in the history of ECW. So uh, when you were doing the interviews for the documentary, what was the thoughts on this situation all those years later? And keep in mind, we are going to be relitigating this a bit as the show goes on. Right. <laughs> First, first of all, very shocked and upset that you have Dave Scherer, but there's no Tom Misnick thoughts on this. Don't <laughs> say that first of all. Um, well, I, fa- I found those when I was digging for the stuff we're going to talk about later. <laughs> I kind of weirdly want to elongate this five, by five minutes at some point and hear that. But anyway, um, so the good heart of ECW people, your Lou D'Angeles, your, your, your uh, Blue Meanies, 
um, they definitely feel for this kid and, and, and were legitimately upset by seeing the whole thing. I know Lou, and I don't think this made a doc, but he was in the match directly after as far as like coming out to manage. And, um, and he was just like, the, there's still blood on the mat. And he's at the apron and he's like, oh my God. Like it was, he was in the back. He saw everything that happened. And then he goes out and he's like, he even seems shook just talking about it years and years later. Um, first of all, I don't think that those, uh, the, the, the midget, and yes, there were midget wrestlers that he came with. That's not a, a joke. I don't think they bailed on him or anything. That's a, that's definitely ECW faction talking. Um, he was moved to New Jack rather quick because Axel didn't um, want to drive up. Axel, Axel told me, he's like, my days of, of driving, like, you know, six, seven hours, he felt at that time they were done and they couldn't get him a plane ticket uh, in, in time. Uh, I do know that Dreamer, like everybody says, now obviously I couldn't get the family to talk to me, but everybody says Dreamer is like the one good guy in the story who like really seemed concerned. He understood the seriousness of it. He stayed with the kid. He was like, you know, a supportive guy in a, in a hospital drama who like walked out with the stretcher, like holding the guy's hand and stuff. But I do think that new Jack meant to do exactly what he meant to do. He was, you know, I joked before, like he took it very personally when the, the kid, uh, Kula said, um, kind of like, hand waved what jack was trying to explain to him and was just like oh yeah that all sounds cool but i want to do some shit to you and it was very clear that he really didn't know the first thing about you know in-ring wrestling on a professional level uh still definitely think he meant to teach the kid a lesson but not go as far as it did (laughs) i mean i don't think he was like i'm gonna end this kid's life or something like so drastic or anything um, I do think he got caught in the moment. It's also like what substance were him? I mean, Jack told several stories to me about being on cocaine uh, during that, what would have been that time period. Those stories were like isolated from this one. But if you add it all up, you go like, okay, well, were you on cocaine that night? Or like, what were you? Um, I know the locker room wasn't happy with the kid because he just started eating all like whatever food was out there and they had a very small spread. There were all these like literal like faux pas culturally but i don't think anybody thought well jack's gonna try and like maim the kid they thought well he's gonna get stiffed a few times because he doesn't know what he's doing but um they were expecting like a chad austin incident maybe right 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 and i think that uh everybody you mean between the sheets listener chad austin (laughs) yes (laughs) yes i I love him i think it's one of those things where you're like oh wait till he tries that crap with our crazy friend x you know i'm not going to nail somebody from the community, but like, imagine we're all down at SCI and you're like, oh, if so-and-so thinks he's going get, to get away with that, wait till he's in that heritage room with, with X from Twitter. But then X from Twitter, like, you know, stabs the guy in the jugular and you go, okay, this, uh, this wasn't what we thought was going to be the lesson. But they did definitely close ranks really quickly. And the one thing I'll leave you with, because we're going to, you know, rehash this is, says there were about 300 people. And when I interviewed Todd Gordon, he was very upset, and I think well, it says he, Webster was three hundred. Says Webster was was oh, was nine hundred thousand. Yeah. Oh, that's even better because he told me um, the quote was something like, "Oh, this is this little incident that happened in front of like 200, 250 people, and I don't know why." And I'm sure we'll get to this. Bruce Mitchell had to make such a like a a thing out of it. Well, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't help the fact. 
that it was a, a RF video fan cam and it was released and it was marketed as the mass transit incident. Bingo. There was a lot of bad coordination. Like Heyman didn't go right to Rob and say something. Rob told me that he was like, oh man, I could, you know, he admitted, you know, years later, I guess it would have been 01 when I first talked to Rob about this. Like, oh yeah, like we, we were telling people on our hotline and we were like, oh, it's so gory. And because they, I, I think he had no concept for God knows why, but he had no concept of how bad this was or how it would look. And for some reason, they didn't get to him quickly enough. To tell them to just just the tapes because they years later they disappeared a lot. Of, I had a hell of a time working with RF and getting stuff that I wanted. There would be stuff where I'd try to trick him and I'd request stuff and it would be sent to me, and I didn't know. But like uh, like there was one Rod Van Dam dive in like South Carolina where he, he just lands on a kid and his dad, and that's completely cut out. But I didn't know that at the time. I just I knew that I wasn't going to get this tape from Rob directly because he had been sued. So I started trying to find ways to like get around that or call him personally and try to beat the bushes on stuff. And so they got smarter about it. Yeah. Well, that's good. Good on them, I guess, for business. Reasons. I mean, it cringy as a human being, but yeah, I guess good on them on a business perspective. Isn't there one story too? I forget if you were who told me this or something else. We're like, I think you were who told me about this, that. There is one where they end up, I forget if they got sued or whatever over Shane Douglas hitting a fan and it didn't happen. But, like, I think it was Rob, of his own accord, erased it, not realizing that it would show that Chain didn't do anything? I believe that's a story from Francine, to me. Um, yeah, well, because it was, there were two incidents, one of which, one was at, a, like, a flea market somewhere in PA near Philly, and the other was where I live, in Allentown, at the Ag Hall. And somebody grabbed Francine inappropriately and kind of forcefully and yeah it was like they threw a punch he tried to stop them from grabbing her and they kind of threw a punch shove at him as i recall and yeah when he went he got subpoenaed for trial so he was like you know tried to get in touch with rob to get the tape and they're like oh we we erased that don't worry and he's like what <laughs> yeah oh so it was because he was acting appropriately he may have done something but he was at, do, in it in an entirely appropriate way and because it was a fan violence incident so to speak rob just erased it not realizing that if something did happen it would be good to have the tape because shane was just defending francine they had so many incidents that by this time like i think had been beaten into rob to get rid of the the evidence so to speak of any of anything and yeah so it was like it started working against them at times which is just yeah it just shows you the insanity of ECW as they go on. There's also like, and I'll keep this real quick. There's also, I think some of the footage makes it into the documentary where they did a taping in New Orleans and people were throwing stuff at the Dudleys and Gabe goes back to the, um, the entranceway and you hear him talking to Heyman and asking, should I shut the tape off in case of something? And that made it on, you know. <laughs> um, there was no proper place for me to use it to show kind of, you know, not as a gotcha, but more as like a, this was the, I, you know, there's segments in the film that talk about like the atmosphere, specifically with the Dudleys, but it just didn't, um, it slowed things down and it didn't work, so we didn't use it, but it was like, wow. And that's in like uh, sometime in, I think it's May 98, because that was like a TV taping too. Uh, it may have even been the, the Beulah broken neck angle. Uh, the same, like, 
night and match, but they didn't show this part on TV. So like, yeah, like this, this kind of thing was going on and there weren't, you can tell by that. It's, this is May of 98 and Sapolsky still doesn't have a proper directive on when he should and shouldn't do things, which in itself is problematic because it, you know, it becomes kind of like a cover up thing. If you've got your top lieutenants who are working both for RF video, but they're also a liaison between you and RF video back to, you know, the business, which is just Paul at this point. And, um, and he's kind of unclear on what he should and shouldn't be doing himself. And that he didn't even have that clear at a show where he was not the only camera. No, he's not, he's not primary in a sense, but the other stuff is post-produced and this is, you know, you know, Rob's not, you know, it was a big thing for Rob to get off his butt and edit the stuff, or I guess Doug would have to do it. All right, let's go to the week of December the 2nd now. Uh, Torch covered December 7th, Observer covered December 9th. And Wade Keller leads off with the cover story. Is ECW ready to go national pay-per-view? By Wade Keller, Torch out. Later this week, ECW in all likelihood will finalize the March 97 date for their debut on national pay-per-view. This major stuff for ECW comes on the heels of an embarrassing, scary incident in a small show they promoted on the 23rd in Revere, Massachusetts. The incident, which saw an underage wrestler with little in-ring experience suffer serious head lacerations from New Jack, has caused many people in the industry to question whether ECW is ready to expand. People are asking whether ECW is too reckless, too violent, too extreme, or frankly too bush league to make it a go of it nationally. If the promoters of hybrid fighting have been sidetracked by negative publicity and concerned politicians, what will ECW face? When mainstream America sees ECW as symbolic of the breakdown of society's values and the marketing of senseless graphic violence. ECW's top man, promoter, owner, and booker, Paul Heyman, a.k.a. Paulie Dangerously, says he is aware of the possible national backlash against what ECW promotes. While public awareness of USC has increased greatly because of the negative publicity has received on ABC's 2020 and many syndicated feature shows and newspapers, Heyman says he would like to avoid such a barrage of bad publicity. Actually, I'm definitely afraid of it, he says. If ECW is afraid of a backlash by the mainstream media who are totally unprepared for the type of violence ECW features is the heart and soul of what makes us stand up for more established wrestling groups, ECW has a reason to be worried. Eyewitnesses of the incident on the November 23rd Revere event have been outraged at what they saw. In the nine days since the bloodletting incident occurred, the torches received numerous phone calls, faxes, and emails regarding the incident. The Usenet discussion group on the internet, along with commercial computer online services, have hosted literally hundreds of messages during the week regarding this incident. A torch reader who was at the event wrote, I was at the show in Revere and almost got sick. It's the bloodiest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. ECW and Paul Heyman went way too far. The kid was bleeding like a stuck pig. Paramedics and EMTs came in and took him away on a stretcher. The kid's lucky he isn't dead. The person on the internet wrote, This incident ruined a knife for all except the bloodthirsty animals and made me feel ashamed to be part of the human race. Another eyewitness wrote, There, was, there were literally puddles of the kid's blood in the ring, and it took 20 minutes for EMTs to get the kid out of there and for the ring crew to bump up the blood. Another eyewitness wrote, this is without a doubt the single worst thing I've ever seen in my 10 or so years as a wrestling fan. Another person wrote, why doesn't ECW just go find some homeless people willing to do anything for money, put them in on the ring, have New Jack come out and chop the guy's fingers off one by one and throw them to the crowd as the fans chant ECW, ECW. Well, look, <laughs> Heyman was always very clear he would not book Bobby Rogers. <laughs> I mean... Oh. Come on, you thought that too when the letter was very specific about <laughs> fingers being chopped off. Yeah. For those who don't know, Florida's <laughs> Bobby Rogers, um, also known as the guy who went on, what was it, Sally Jesse? Sally Jesse Raphael, claiming to be yeah, the, gay, right. the gay WWF junior heavyweight champion. 
and a kind of claim to be a Buddy Rogers relative, had an had a longstanding offer to Paul Heyman that he would let him chop his finger off in an angle if he, he could work for ECW. <laughs> hey, he did work with Rob Black, though. <laughs> but he didn't chop anything off. Right. Messiah. And that angle ended up in C- CCW, apparently, or XPW. Messiah didn't suffer the same type of fate, no. <laughs> right. And I don't think it was agreed to, so... No. Oh, my goodness. All right, the above messages are from fans who seek out that which ECW in general offers. The tone of discussion all week followed that pattern. With many people saying they are fans of ECW, but ECW crossed the line. Heyman says there are lessons to be learned for the incident, but doesn't think that it's indicative of ECW style is out of control or an inevitable course towards disaster. The boy's name is Eric Coolis. He turned 17 last month. He has wrestled part-time on small charity shows for the New England Wrestling Association, most recently doing comedy-style matches with two local midget wrestlers in the area. He and the two midgets came to the ECW show that night, hoping to perhaps sell themselves in their comedy match to ECW. When Axel Rotten wasn't able to wrestle a schedule, ECW looked for a replacement. Paul Heyman says the midgets sold him on using their friend Coolis as a replacement against the gangsters. Amos said the 400-pound coolest told him he was 19 years old, that he formerly trained with Killer Kowalski, and that while he had never bled in the ring, he had experience at a brawly type of match. Steve Coolis, Eric's father, tells the tourist that Coolis had wrestled 10 or 15 times previously, but nothing that he considered formal professional. He said Eric never went through any training camp, but for years his dream of being a pro wrestler. Heyman agreed to let Coolis team with Devon Dudley against the gangsters. Coolis wrestled as mass transit and came to the ring wearing a uniform, presumably meant to indicate he was a bus driver. He wrestled as Ralph Cramden on small Northeast shows. <laughs> <laughs> to the moon, Alice, to the moon. After Coolis and Devon got to the ring, the gangsters stormed the ring, as usual, bringing a garbage can full of objects and weapons with them. Devon and Mustafa brought to the crowd. While in the ring, New Jack broke an acoustic guitar over Coolis' head. He didn't slam the toaster into his head a couple of times, which some correspondents say cut Coolis' hardware at that point. New Jack then held up Coolis by the hair and picked up an object from the mat and proceeded to carve his forehead open. Heyman said New Jack had seconds earlier bladed in Coolis as Coolis had agreed to be before the match. It was now putting on a show, pretending to carve into and jab his forehead with a long, narrow object. By this time, the two cuts New Jack made with a razor blade had resulted in Coolis' face being a mask of blood. At this point, Eric's father saw his bloody son and began going berserk at ringside, shouting for New Jack to leave his son alone. He's only 17, he screamed. New Jack grabbed the house mic and said, I don't care if that motherfucker dies. Anyone tries to take these bills from us, then they'll die. Meanwhile, ECW's damage control staff came out to try to stop the bleeding. Literally, armful after armful of towels were brought to the ring to soak up the blood. ECW called for an ambulance. When paramedics showed up, they continued to try to stop the bleeding. Tommy Dreamer ran to the ring, gave the paramedics some shirts because they ran out of towels to look at the blood. While this was going on, some fans were chanting, you fat fuck and free Willie at Coolis. Jesus. As Coolis was stretching out the ring, he managed to give those fans the finger. Well, good for him. The chaos continued as local firefighters and police showed up to make sure everything stayed calm. There were reports of some fans fainting, one fan having a seizure, and many others leaving the show, especially parents of kids. As Coolis was loaded to an ambulance and taken to the local hospital, the ECW ring crew literally mopped up the ring mat. There was talk among the authorities of shutting down the show, but they decided not to, in part over fear of a riot, they canceled it. Oh, thanks, Vince. <laughs> now, cool by the going... way, too, real yeah. quick, I, this gets talked about later, too, I think. The fan having a seizure had nothing to do with Kula. I mean, maybe if there were fans yeah. fainting, maybe, but... 
Yeah, I don't. And uh, having a seizure just made everything more chaotic. Yeah, I, I think some of this is kind of overblown in a way. Maybe it just kind of sell, selling more drama among the fans because I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, yeah, it does read very whisper down the alley, like tall tales, or, you know, legends of of what happened. Yeah, it was so well, hot that someone shit himself. <laughs> yes. All right, Kula score does follow need around 50 stitches and is on medication, but otherwise is not seriously hurt. He said, though, it's extremely premature to say he's okay. He says he is in pain and will need to see a specialist to further repair his forehead, which is said to be cut from ear to ear. No disciplinary action will be taken on New Jack by ECW. Heyman says that New Jack merely cut Kula twice with a blade, both times getting final permission from Kula right before he cut him. Heyman says he believes Kulis wasn't prepared for the feeling of being cut with a razor blade since he had never bladed or been bladed before and therefore jerked his head the second time, causing a big gash on his forehead. It's not unusual for wrestlers to have their opponent cut through a razor blade if they're queasy about doing it themselves. While the percentage of wrestlers who bleed who have others cut them is probably less than 5%. Steve Kulis said despite this incident, his son unfortunately still wants to wrestle full-time as a career. What a mark. I didn't give him permission to wrestle anyone but the midgets, Steve Kula said regarding his son. He's upset you should never let him wrestle. My kid doesn't have a hair on his face. You tell you, you tell a kid this is your shot and you it's all he's ever wanted to do is be a pro wrestler. What are you gonna do? Amos said even his way to the Amos, Kulis was asking if he earned a job with ECW for what he did. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Said his father when he was cut, all I could do was scream. Get him out of there. I was really shaken up. A girl was stretching out, told him told me, I don't know if he'll make it. He said he has received one phone call from ECW several days after the incident. Amos says he told the coolest to send ECW all their medical bills. Steve Cool says his son's welfare is his only concern, and he gets not seriously considering suing ECW over the incident. While the incident was out of the ordinary, strange, dangerous incidents are no strangers to ECW, be it fans throwing chairs to the ring, wrestlers bleeding while brawling the crowd, a fire being started, or fans standing around stacked tables as wrestlers are thrown off high places and crash through them. I consider what happened a scary incident, Heyman said. Thankfully, it wasn't a lot worse. It was a very, very scary incident for all of us. The system we have in place works, but it needs to be upgraded. Because of this incident, Heyman says he's going to take much greater care in making sure anyone who wrestles these debut cards has formal training background. Not to mention that it must be an adult. He said all wrestlers will have to go to ECW's training center and demonstrate ring aptitude before they will be built on ECW cards. An embellished resume is not uncommon, he says. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me that at this point, (laughs) Paul Heyman started having every single wrestler he wasn't personally familiar with go to Long Island? (laughs) That's what he's saying here. Bullshit. (laughs) This PR spin is like, uh, is is this the torch of the observer? It's torch. This is him to weigh. This well, that's okay. So, so Wade, Wade would take the journalist tact of just, you know, put quotes around it, and that's what he says. But, like, yeah, they're not even asking for licenses from these people. In fact, wrestlers were, I don't want to say joking with me. It's not as though they took this as funny, but they, were, they would say, like, can you imagine even asking somebody for a license? It's just not how our business works. Yeah. And I don't mean like a, like a, like a Virginia, you need a license kind of thing. I mean, just, like, what's your driver's license? How old are you kind of a thing? This is not even yeah. brought up. Right, and also, oh, yeah, he said Killer Kowalski trained him. Saturn is right there. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, he, he would know. And uh, the close out the torch part here, as far as blading, Heyman says he has thought long and hard about banning the blade entirely and may still do so. Gee, yo, sure. But as of now, believes that may be too strong a reaction for what was an isolated incident. Blading is certainly not for amateurs, he says. 
There are a lot of people who here who have no qualms about it and who think it adds to the storyline, their matches, their careers, the marketability of the product, what we have to offer over and above the other groups. I don't think we or they should be denied that opportunity, but I think we need to implement better measures. As ECW prepares to expand on pay-per-view, Heyman says they have to find the proper and appropriate balance for their style. None of these are easy decisions or black and white areas, but certainly we will address these issues for humane purposes. And on a street level, it's a wholehearted business decision for the survival of the company and for liability purposes. With a locker room full of wrestlers who thrive on pushing the envelope, Heyman said more than anyone has responsibility to create an atmosphere that is controlled and professional. November 23rd, Revere, Heyman fell in that role. To see nationally, each of them must raise professionalism of the company and the product that it offers or be ready to have the door to national success slammed hard in its face. Okay. Before we get to what Dave wrote, if nothing... Oh, here. No, I know. If nothing else, Heyman is just straight up lying to Wade because he basically says that New Jack <laughs> used a regular gig on it. Yes. Absolutely. When it was st- stated that and, and, if, and we've all seen this, right? Yes. We've mm-hmm. all seen it. Okay. You've seen New Jack picks just something off the mat and does it. Like it says. Whatever it was. It's which, picked up from the mat, not a blade. Which, for what it's worth, too, um, I believe it was John Lister in his ECW book, Turning the Tables, said that it, it was actually a surgical scalpel, contrary to the popular belief. And who knows? I mean... You, you know, the gangsters always brought that trash can full of weapons, so who knows what was in there? Well, okay, there's <laughs> this too. So in one of the RSPW posts, I didn't end up including this in the notes in part because you know how Google Groups is in terms of tracking down the original post and stuff being quoted, but it doesn't say exactly who it's quoting or whatever. There was someone who said that I think someone else on RSPW was at the show and you know, explain that, you know, the trash can was all stuff that was taken or confiscated or whatever from the crowd. And that at one point, I think, I guess after the match and maybe New Jack left whatever it was lying in the ring, a fan yelled out, hey, that's mine. (laughs) Did he mean he brought it and they collected it as a weapon? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they did that. No, I, I remember. Happened. I remember, which is nuts to think about in 2019. But yeah, that was that was, and that was their way of mitigating people just having stuff on them and like hitting a wrestler because they got too into the moment. They would collect your weapons and then give them to the wrestlers to figure out what they did and did not want to use. Because if you remember watching the old ECW arena shows from a year earlier, the fans always had the weapons on them at ringside. Todd told, and they were grabbed from the fans. Todd told a, a great a great little anecdote about them confiscating uh, a canoe at the arena. And then that's when they knew, like, maybe we need to, like, legislate this. Because somebody brought a canoe, and they was like, what were you going to do with that? He's like, oh, because so the wrestlers can use it. <laughs> As if he, like, you'd have to buy a seat just to have the canoe with you. So, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, they really, this was the brilliant idea. I mean, it's not a horrible idea, but this this was actually the fix of the original idea yeah but again like just to stress what we just i just said like that's an outright lie it is the whether it's an exact knife or a scalpel or whatever that is what is used to cut eric coolis there is no traditional pro wrestling blade as far as we can see and Heyman has to know that video is gonna get like it's i am curious when the quote was given it's obviously you know again classic Heyman buying time like, I'll just say this thing, and who cares in an hour if he sees it? I'll change my story then. <laughs> it's crazy. 
right. Paul Heyman is has what he's saying here. Now, regarding Eric Coolis and what he said, uh, asked Heyman, is, was that good enough to get a job? As, I mean, that is true, though, right? Just, I mean, like, yeah. You say something yeah. like, how did I do? Or whatever, it, right? It is, it is sadly absolutely true. So, I mean, what do you do in the situation when the kid is not, he doesn't share the same attitude as his father regarding this. I mean, the kid was like, I, I wouldn't say happy, but he's not pissed, really. He's giving the fans a finger on the way out, you know? Well, I think a lot of it is just from having – I was, again, never able to talk to the family at that point. It was just years on. And actually, Eric was uh, not with us anymore. But yeah, um, he's not just 17. He's got the maturity from everything I can tell of like a 13-year-old uneducated kid. I mean that was kind of like – it's tough because you don't want to throw stones at the family. But you're not yeah. dealing with – we're talking about this. In with, with hindsight, but also having some emotional stability within this conversation and mental stability. And I think, like, his dad both yelled, like, I'm going to sue you, and he's only this year. But then later was like, oh, well, no, I'm not really going to do that. And just, like, can you use my boy again? You know, er- er- Eric's all over the place. He's, you know, I do think he legitimately got upset and was, and was panicking for his life. And then once he kind of stabilized, he's given the finger – to the fans. By the way, I do, I do also think it's hyperbole that somebody said like he might not make it. Like, look, it was horrible, but I, I don't know how much he really lost consciousness. Well, also, I, think, I mean, it was terrible, and they probably did still it in the artery, but I, it's still an artery in the forehead, right? Like, I, I feel like whoever would have said that was somebody who had the most basic medical training, who was just only adding to the hysteria. Unfortunately. So my overall point would be you're dealing with a lot of people here, specifically that family, that doesn't have the best compass for these sort of things and doesn't handle like um, the intensity of a dramatic moment in their lives particularly well. And maybe doesn't have the best uh, constitutions, shall we say, for, uh, for, for these kind of things. There's no real principles to, to anybody involved in this. Is that maybe Tommy Dreamer to some extent? Yeah, poor Tommy Dreamer. <laughs> you know? Yeah, weirdly enough, he is definitely the good good guy. Not that he was a horrible guy, but he's also, you know, he's a wrestler's wrestler, but it never not in these terms. More of just like the goofiness of on the road kind of stuff. Away from the family. Yeah. But wow. Uh Bix, anything else from Wade, the Wade stuff uh you want to talk about? Um I'm curious what change Steve Coolis's mind to go from I'm going to sue you to no I'm probably not going to sue them to suing them his son get, getting uh, like as stupid as this sounds and illogical to us being told that A they'd handle medical bills and B that his son could get a job off of this are like the most rational things I've kind of pieced together and then when neither of those happened Right. Like, as goofy as it is, he would have kept his mouth shut if they gave him – I would bet you money that if they gave him 500 bucks and told them, we'll use your kid in the first match the next two uh, Revere shows, that it all would have gone away. And, and, this ha- and this happens a lot. In all kinds of situations, 
of different situations, whether it be um, sexual harassment, whether it be, you know, anything like with a cooler situation or, you know, anything. If you give somebody a job, they'll shut up. Or you give somebody money, it's, it's called hush money or whatever, you know, it's. Oh, ECW it, was famous for giving fans who they were worried like, oh, well, you know, uh, Rob Van Dam flipped onto this guy and it looks like he might have a bruise on his arm. Uh, bring him to the back, ask him who his favorite wrestler is, have that wrestler meet that person and give them a T-shirt. Like that was done. That was the, basically they talk about all these systems, which is hilarious in these quotes. I mean, that's oh, not just an ECW thing either. Yeah, yeah, but but like their their system, if they're being, if you gave them, if you gave uh, Paul Heyman like truth serum, he's like, well, our system is really in the moment. Uh, give them merch and hope that they're really obsessed with a, a wrestler who can then go talk to them and calm them down. And then more, and more than not, that shit works. <laughs> it, it certainly bailed them out of more litigious situations than not. I would, from what I understand, you know, so. All right, that's Wade. Now, let's go to Dave. This past weekend backstage, no fans around. When a tape of the same incident play reported that New Jack was laughing about it. And so the people say New Jack should be fired, which seems to be something that's always on the verge of happening in any given moment anyway. We're getting track record for a wrestler in Smoky Mountain. New Jack was dubbed by ECW in late 95 for the first time. For allegedly hiding behind the dressing room door and clocking another wrestler, wrestled as D.W. Dudley with his billy clubs, splitting him open. By the way... Was yes. that how that story was reported at the time? No. It, it, <laughs> th that jumped out at me there, because at the time, I think it, the way it was reported was they got into a fight and New Jack had the billy club and hit him with it, right? Correct. Here, Dave is saying, no, New Jack waited for him to come back the, from the ring, hid behind the door, and then clocked him. Yeah. Interesting. I there's also quite the melee from what I understand because it was, a, it was up at the Flagstaff and Jim Thorpe. Yes. And I, I was told like during people trying to like break them up and like Jack just swinging wildly that like, I think it was Mikey Wimpreck like fell into like one of the windows and that thing like overlooks a cliff, that back part. So years later, Mikey was telling me humorously because it's in hindsight and he lived that like, there's this moment of him going like, am I going to like fly through a window off a cliff in the middle of like rural PA because like Jack just jumped the guy in the back. Like it's that, like that he was using it as an example of how nuts those uh, Jim Thorpe shows would get. Yeah. Anyway. Paul, Paul brought it back a few months later, said everyone in the dressing room agreed to it. It's pretty well known. A lot of the wrestlers weren't exactly thrilled about it. And that Dudley is no longer with the company. Oh, they doesn't believe that was the reason. Well, no, it wasn't a reason because DW Dudley stayed with the company months after New Jack came back. Heyman needed not only an opponent for public giving his farewell, but a team to replace them as a resident hoodie tag team. So they won that one mistake and they'd be gone. Through Heyman's creativity and hiding their weaknesses by having them generally wear short matches, do little wrestling, keeping their music on for the entire length of their matches, unless they were in with a good team to carry them. Heyman made sure made, made them one of the more problem backs of the promotion. Just a few weeks after their return, New Jack wound up in jail for a short period of time, which would be the one mistake in any other promotion. But admittedly, if ECW has consistent policy, they couldn't fire him for that because others have missed shows due to being in jail. And to the best of Dave's knowledge, none have been fired of. <laughs> Besides, only made a bigger baby face to the local crowd. There was a videotape of the incident in the car, but Heyman took the video and it isn't for sale. Oh, it not it? <laughs> Lending one to become more suspicious about the incident. 
David gets to see the video of the of the uh, coolest deal, but Heyman has no problem with anyone viewing it. There have been even accusations New Jack did the deal on purpose. Oh, that's hard to believe. Those of us in the videotape are split in the opinion as to whether the video showed the kid moved as New Jack was cutting him, which led to the ridiculous six-inch long cut, or whether you couldn't tell truly tell by the video. The public's response by New Jack, the public response by New Jack on the mic in the arena was someone staying in character. Although Cools and his follower were pretty upset later in the week when New Jack went on the ECW hotline and said he wasn't apologizing. Although, again, that's a position where one stays in character. But none of them seems to know the difference. Wait a second. The, yes. Are we to infer that the Coolists were calling the ECW hotline themselves? Obviously. About the only difference in Heyman's story and the Coolists' story is that Heyman said the kid asked New Jack to blade him while their side said that the kid wanted to blade himself, but New Jack insisted because the kid had never done it before. Heyman also said the kid told him that he was 19 and been trained by Killer Kowalski, none of which was true. The kid was trained by some local midgets and came to the building with the midgets, hoping to do a gimmick match where the fat kid wrestles two midgets when the midgets disappeared. He was asked if he wouldn't mind working against the gangsters, while his father said everyone knew his son was 17. Well, maybe he said, I'll pretend you said 18. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, then you have to. Rob was there. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. Well, okay. Well, was Let's Rob there the- or was just Gabe? Yeah, I was about to say, like, you know, we're getting Probably in the weeds, but I'm not, I, I don't know that Rob would have made it all the way up there, but Gabe was the one who filmed it because the first time I ever saw it was in Gabe's living room because I verbally bullied him into showing it to me. Not bullied in my mean way, just come on. And then he finally showed me it. And I was like, appalled. Like, and even he was like cringing watching it again. Yeah, I remember when I watched it for the first time, I was like, ooh. <laughs> That's nasty. But uh do all right, what is the truth here? Did Coolis tell him he was nineteen? What is the truth? Or do we even know the truth? I don't know that we know the truth, to be honest with you. I've probably talked to over twenty people about this specific incident and I mean it seems to be agreed upon with, you know, the big asterisk that I wasn't able to talk to the family, or obviously Eric Coolis, but it seems to be that he did agree to be bladed because he had never done it before and he was afraid and he did, he seemed to kind of look up to Jack or like take him seriously because he romanticized like ECW and this like belonging in this tough guy life. So he was willing to do that because um, the way it looked to me and the way it was expressed to me was, the, the, you know, this idea that like he wanted to earn a job, like the idea that he said to Paul Heyman as he's being wheeled out, like, did I do good? Um, everybody told me that, even people who like like Meanie, who just have no, who aren't n- known liars and have like no skin in the game and like spinning the story at this point. Um, but I, I've never heard that he. I've heard that he lied about his age, but I've never heard that he said he was nineteen. And I don't know that there's a way to know because the Kulases were so like we had just talked about a few minutes ago. Depending on where they thought their standing was with something, they did change their story, which is really sad and unfortunate as this ends up going to court. Yeah, and I don't know what exactly they said in court, but like you read what's being said here, they don't appear to deny that he said he was 19, but then Steve Coolis just says everyone knew he was 17. No, they did. That's also, un- that's un- there's no way of him knowing that, number one. Number two, as far as like the statements in court, as far as I remember, he uh, perjured himself on a few occasions based on statements not only that he made to the cops, but to media that they actually used. So he was all over the place. 
did Axel Rotten get any heat over this? Like, if you'd only shown up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he presented it. He said, that's my fault. When I brought it up, for some reason in the moment, I, I interviewed him in April of 01. I didn't recall that he hadn't shown up. So I asked him about it thinking he was there. I was just kind of – a lot of times when you interview people, you do a lot of fishing expeditions to try to – Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and he's like – the thing he says to me, and I like still have the tape of all these interviews, he says, that's my fault. And I'm like – for a moment, I'm like, is he just going to like make up a story that like he did something? And what it was was that he, he – uh, he was never sent his plane ticket, as is, you know, very, very believable and plausible with Paul Heyman and ECW travel. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he refused when they told him the night before, we'll just drive up here and we'll give you the gas money. And he, I think he would have had to borrow a car or something, but it was a non-starter even before that. He just, I, I don't believe anybody blames him to, to cut to, to the chase. And I don't think anybody, like, you know, blames Devon for not protecting the kid properly because that was his tag team partner. Devon's not, Devon's not even in the ring, you know? Right. Like, I, He's like, on the floor brawling with, with Mustafa. Right. I'm like, well, you could make the argument what I'm saying is like, oh, uh, he could have looked out for him better or something. That, but thankfully, no, it didn't ever seem to be any heat on Axel or Devon. It really seemed like they right away kind of closed ranks. I mean, even like years later, talking with Dreamer about it, like not on camera, but like – I knew what the story was from talking to so many people, and I knew that he was like a good guy in the story, and I knew that he was appalled by it. And yet he wouldn't, even after ECW had been closed down, he wouldn't kind of break ranks from it, even when he knows I'm not recording him. You know, there was that yeah. kind of, that happened within that week, real quickly. Yeah. Jack, by the way, did laugh about it. Like, I asked him about it, and he couldn't wait to tell me how funny he thought it was. Which was... <laughs> You, you know, a chill goes through you because he's such a charming guy sitting and talking to him. Well, he'll, he'll just say stuff like him. that and you go, whoa, I'm, I'm dealing with a rattlesnake. Knowing him like I, I, I've known him over the years, uh, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, this, this, I mean, let's be, I mean, let's be fair, folks. Jerome Young <laughs> has killed a man. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, was that ever actually confirmed? Well, let's just say, it, <laughs> uh, it, well, he wasn't. Let's just say he didn't serve time over it. Well, he he claimed he had several justifiable homicides. He said it was. I had four justifiable homicides. I, I think there is, bitch, yeah. like back up just a little bit. I believe that there is, in real life, away from doing quasi gimmick. Who knows? I do believe something happened where there is one homicide that was not prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, but you know what? I mean, coming from where he came from, the hat. That happens a lot, and it is what it is. Sometimes, sometimes it's you know it's self defense. So it's, it's different way. I mean, people people have their their they have their bad time. Well, know? also, and assume we don't know. We least don't know all the facts. Telling some of the truth in it, like read his torch talk. <laughs> but he admit. I mean, he admits. He admits to the stuff. Though. I mean, so he's not scared to shy away. From the issue, I mean, yeah, it happened. So he's, I mean, he's a guy who's, he's a different guy. Let's put it that way. He, uh, violence is not something that he'll shy away from. We should all ring, out of the ring, whatever. <laughs> to, this, to this whole uh, Meltzer section, we should also say to our younger uh, fans here that, yes, we had the internet, 
but the communication of these of of everything and uh, that like this would not happen the same way at all in 2019. Oh, as, uh, as no far way. as inter- information flow, like the confusing notes and the changing stories, and Dave Meltzer not having a video for like two weeks. If yeah. a mass transit, if a mass transit incident happened in 2019, it would be streaming live. Number one. <laughs> well, yeah. it would be all. It'd be all over the media. Right. The, the mass media. Right. There's no way. There's no way it wouldn't. It would be a humongous story. Because we'd wrestling have, stuff that could go viral, yeah. We'd have cell phone pictures and video on Twitter and in our DMs by midnight. Easily. Yeah, it, 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 it would be it would be a crazy atmosphere. I mean, real crazy. Right. Even if it's not televised, all of this is getting out at several angles of it. I mean, it's New Jack making a show of getting the thing out. Like I would say at a minimum, there would be three to five videos of the actual cutting. Right. Because he gave you time. It was almost like he, it sounds perverse to say, but because you're dealing with this like quasi reality where he's both doing this as, you know, he's still doing the worker thing where he's pausing and letting everybody know he's about to do it. Right. But he's also doing it for, in a, in a, in perhaps a menacing way. Yeah, what made me think of that, even though it's not exactly the same kind of situation, was kind of like the climax of the Nick Age David Arquette match. Yes, where there were, I mean, granted, you have the it's David Arquette, David Arquette, but still, the videos that people were posting all kind of started around the same point. Mm-hmm. And TMZ ran with that, which of course is David Arquette, but still, I mean, it it would have been a story. It would have been a story to some degree, yes. It certainly would have been a story locally, like, more quickly, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, real quick, how great is it that Dave says that, you know, they needed to replace a hoodie, they needed a hoodie tag team? (laughs) (laughs) They needed needed to replace Public Enemy, they they very, uh, I'm trying to figure out uh, the, the best term to use here. Resident hoodie tag team, Bix. That's what it's well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know they they could have. Well, it, who would have been the, the the team that replaced them? They didn't, but they probably weren't going to leave. Was PG thirteen? Yeah, they get PG thirteen later on, but it's totally different circumstances when they get them. But that would have been the perfect replacement at the time. But hey, the gangsters, you know, they're there. I just so, love it. And, and DW Dudley, DW Dudley is still doing. Like promos with the Dudleys in like March, and and the gangsters come back in December. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And remember, uh, there's a lot more with this to go. So probably. Oh yeah. yeah. So we're we're moving on. Oh, Hamas is looking at either March the second or March the third for the potential dates for the first pay per view show. March third if it's Easter Sunday, but they can get a favorable deal if they take the date. And truthfully. If it's held at night, that should be a negative as wrestling. The long history of drawing some of his best gates on holiday evenings. The plans were up. A two and a half hour show starting at 8.30 p.m. Oh, could you have imagined that? Well, let's talk about yes. more of it with Torch. Says each is looking at March 3rd as the most likely day for their debut on pay-per-view because Easter Sunday, a date that traditionally is not known as a good pay-per-view day. Pay-per-view distributors and cable operators will have lower expectations for the event. Well, that's a nice reason. ECW sees this as an advantage as they don't see running the event on Easter Sunday as an inherent negative, yet they would have leeway in terms of what they need to deliver to satisfy a cable company. The other day being considered as March the 2nd. There's a chance the preview would be delayed until April, but Paul Heyman says it won't be any later than that. He says basically 100% if they will lock up the preview day, probably this week. Easter Sunday, I mean, yes, 
that lowers the expectation. So from their side of things, if they bombed, they could use that as an excuse. How novel. Thoughts? I forgot about that whole thing. And like, I'm so glad because that's a rabbit hole I could have never gone down with, with the documentary. But I just remember going, oh, my God, like he was trying to use Easter Sunday as kind of like hedging his bet for about a, for at least a week there. I, I mean, I don't know if he's using this as a test balloon with the sheets or if he's just telling them what he's already kind of thinking about. But it always struck me as kind of a nut thing to to put this on Easter Sunday. Look, regardless of what you think of ECW fans, they're still human beings. Like there's a reason that they had to apologize in show for the crucifixion angle. Like they're still well, you know, very morally malleable people, but they're they're still human beings who like show up at grandma's for Easter. The idea Well, that- uh, well, I'm going to bring this up. Okay. Um the ECW at this time is still basically a major northeast promotion, correct? Correct. W- would you say that? Okay. Um North, the Northeast, you know, heavy Jewish presence in the Northeast, correct? Yeah, but they're also based out of Philadelphia. I know, but still, Easter is, uh, <laughs> you know, not the most Jewish of holidays. But that well, way. Maybe, yeah, no, of all, like, the, the Christian holidays, Easter's probably the one that Jewish people would probably pay the least lip service to. Exactly. So... <laughs> That uh, that's probably and he, and, you know Heyman. That's what he knows. So yeah, yeah, you think, yeah. But point taken. But he's been in wrestling now for a decade. I, I could go either way because Todd Gordon's still very much involved, and they're both you know no uh, Jewish guys. Yeah. But but this is a guy who was in WCW when they ran right. San Antonio <laughs> on Easter. Well, that's my point is he's been in wrestling, which is kind of like being in the military in the sense that, like, you're around a lot of different people. And there's no San Antonio, too, Vix. Come on now. (laughs) Well, but Philly's still pretty heavily Catholic, though. There's just no way he doesn't know that this is a questionable thing to do. And I do think it's kind of like the thing that he doesn't even necessarily want to do, but the, the benefit is that you're hedging your bet. If you don't do well, well... You know, it was your first show on Easter. So, and also I'd like to tape it kind of a thing. You know, like, I think he was way more nervous than he let on about making this. Well, there's something too. If if it's on Easter, is it a live show or is he taping it two nights earlier? No, he's taping. Yeah. Well, because that goes to what I was just saying, though, because, like, my point was Philly is pretty heavily Catholic. That's where my comparison to San Antonio is. Oh, Philly is where the shows are, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but still. He he's nuts though, so I bet you he wanted to because they I mean they're they're famous for the stories of them trying to get the TV on the air in Philly on Tuesday nights via satellite uplink and staying up pretty much two two days to do it. I would bet you money he wanted to tape it on Saturday even and do a regular arena show and then somehow turn it stay in Philly and just turn it around and uplink it to to satellite for pay per view within twenty four hours. That's a guess. I'm not saying that that's you know true at all, but like. That seems like a Paul Heyman idea from 1997, you know? Yeah. All right, let's go to the next week. December 9th, uh, Torch cover date, December 14th, December cover date, December 16th. Paul Heyman and Todd Gordon both told video dealer Rob Feinstein not to sell tapes of the show from River, Massachusetts, where Eric Lewis was bloodied up so badly. Too late. Well, good luck with that, too. <laughs> I mean, he did stop. He did stop. But it didn't stop. 
me. I mean, he st- uh, they stopped selling it, but it was out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to say the preview date is most likely April 30th. If you send in one week at the WrestleMania, or possibly April 13th. You mean March 3rd? March 3rd, excuse me. And April 13th is the backup date. With him having reserved both dates, a final decision will be made for a few more weeks. When well, the torch the torch comes in with ECW's off secure live primetime special network one, which plans major growth in ninety seven for April thirteenth. The two dates may change though, since ECW wants, if possible, the primetime special to take place before the pay per view, if possible. Okay. Now this is an interesting one. Next, network one. And network one was basically like the newest in the line of your America One, American Independent Network, Channel America type of things, which I don't care if they were planning on expanding. There was no way they were doing a live special. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? They, <laughs> there's no way this isn't just something Paul made up. <laughs> I'm amazed that Wade did not hedge his own bet and use a quote, though. This is Wade, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, the Network One stuff, I believe, never comes up in The Observer. Like, it just seems at this point, and this is right near the dissolution of their personal relationship, uh, Keller and, and Heyman, like, why would you report this as if Paul didn't just say something crazy during a two-hour phone conversation? I'm a little surprised. <laughs> Wade's Wade. Way, way to put it out there. You don't care. <laughs> Network one. Jesus. Yeah, and, uh, and also, like, Network One doesn't even last long, so maybe they did put a little more money into it, and that's why they closed so quickly. Because they they go out yeah. of business in '98. Yeah, but come on. <laughs> I mean, the other thing too, it's like, what value would a live special even have to a network? On network One, one. <laughs> network One, which at this point is the number four low-powered network. <laughs> and how are you getting, like, clearance to do it live on all the satellite, like, channels? Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense. to me. No. Yeah, like, also, right, yeah, why would it only be Network 1, and why would it not be the other ones that are, run- that are running ECW TV? So, yeah, like, like, um, so what is this? This is, okay, so I'm still getting ECW through Sports Channel Philadelphia at, at this point. So you're telling me that like Sports Channel Philadelphia is gonna like go look we can't run the Phillies early season Phillies game because tonight at you know eight o'clock we're gonna show a live ECW space. Like this is not the way it worked then. And, like, and, and yeah, and this is right when I first get Direct TV. So I just now got Direct TV. So now I'm able I, ECW wasn't even on in Atlanta at this point in time. So um this is during one of their those instances. But um Right now, I'll have, I have I can watch ECW, MSG, Empire, Sunshine Network for sure. Those are the three I know for sure. Um, maybe a couple other ones. So, yeah, I mean, where's the court? Yeah, where's the coordination between all their major markets? Where they all all this? Do you really think the station operator for any of these like was even aware of? Because well, because it doesn't exist. Number one, but let's just pretend it did. Like, that was never happening. No way. Absolutely not. But also, Absolutely. like, why not also have it on America One and or the other one? Like, because I don't know if ECW is on all these or whatever. I think they were also on America One, though, at the time. Like, And also, like, hey, I'm Well, they were on America at, One back in the day. That's where I first saw ECW was on America One. Right. No, but I mean, I'm looking at, like, the affiliate list, and it's like, 
there's not like not this wouldn't have happened. You know when they went off you know when they went off America one? Hmm. Take a wild guess. Oh, uh lesbian angle? Your lesbian angle. Yeah. So they're, okay, so they're not on it they're not on America one at this point though. No. They were they were back in ninety seven. I could have sworn uh, that they, they probably coming. got back on there, but yeah. that, they got taken off. Because that's the le- that okay, the week after. The week after or two weeks after, it's right after that's when they go off. Because that's where my gap in my original ECW television began because they were off in Atlanta as well because of that. So I had no ECW television for a few weeks. Until Atlanta put up, they got another station in Atlanta. So, yeah. That just the point is there's no way this is true. ECW replaced by Paul Alperstein's AWS. <laughs> also, I mean, and also, like, you know, we'll get into this more, I'm sure, but, like, nothing really changes long term. Because uh, the paper ones are happening on April 13th. Exactly. All right, short-term contracts have been offered to several top formers to lock them into long-term booking ideas for baby show. Obviously, Saz, 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 Sabu versus Taz will headline. And that's they, it. There. Yeah. All right, Torch. Paul Hammond addressed several key issues regarding ECW's future as ECW approaches confirmation of the March 30th date for pay-per-view. As far as Blade and ECW goes, Heyman says there's no pressure for wrestlers to use it. Name me one time in the last year when Sabu was bled. Not once. There are an infinite number of ways to do things regarding a match. There's an audience out there to see this blood to see this, talking about blood, but because I can't get it elsewhere. As long as it doesn't deny others who are not involved in the practice the opportunity to rise to the top, such as Taz, Sabu, Shane Douglas. I don't see how it becomes a discriminatory practice like when those who use steroids are pushed to the top. Here, there are more people who are on top who don't bleed, if not on a regular basis or ever, be it by their decision of mind than those who do. On why he would even consider banning the blade if only people participate in wrestlers who agree. Paul says, I've considered banning maneuvers, which I consider to be risky. I've considered banning objects. I've considered banning finishes. Everything needs to be taken into consideration when A, it involves the company's liability and all honesty, and B, the safety of the people who work for you. Beulah broke her arm beating up Fonzie. Okay, is the ring a place for someone like Beulah? The assessment was, yes, it is, but maybe in a different state cars. She broke her arm punching him. When you own a business and run a company, all these things become, if not daily considerations, Topical discussions that come up during your work weeks. Whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, you already banned the blade early in the year. Yeah. Like, and now it seemed like that's kind of being ignored, that there was an official ban? It's not mentioned here, is it? No, I remember that in research. Uh, I remember doubling back because it just kind of like, it's never brought up by uh, Keller, but they're just all of a sudden they blade again. Yep. Just, there's no discussion of it. It's just... Part of the discussion again. Yeah, you watch early ninety six ECW. You don't. I mean, if you see blood, it's hard way. They're the only promotion that bans the bl- only promotion note that it bans the blade after the Tommy Morrison stuff. Exactly. W- yep. I mean, WWF doesn't really bring it back exactly, and it's in the middle of Billionaire Ted. Even if Brett just did his thing, but like WCW doesn't care. Oh no. All right, on um, whether he's concerned with blood transferring by the match or the rest of the stuff are open cuts and wounds during a match, is consideration. It's something we honestly have spent not a great deal of, but some money investigating for other safety. I don't have any grand answers yet, but we're searching for them. We're trying to find proper balance. These are things we take consideration and obviously worry about. Regarding blood on the match specifically, Heyman says we've had several different medical reports from different medical journals regarding the state of the virus. Once it comes to the content of oxygen, the length of time the antibodies can stay alive. 
I'm not, talking, I'm not just talking about HIV. I'm talking about hepatitis. How many times a week does a mat get cleaned? We clean it every week. It's steam clean. Well, does WCW clean their mat? Do you know that risk that the risk for staph infection is so incredibly higher than by the fourth night if the canvas is not clean, let alone if there's blood? But just from what you track in from your boots, the risk for staph infection on a ring is it cleans over 100 times greater than from one that isn't cleaned. That is an extremely important health concern, and we've addressed that. It's not just HIV. And you know what? He's not wrong <laughs> at all there. Not, no, no, but this is classic, like, he, But he is deflecting, yes. Yes. Wait, because, like, like, dumped in there is, like, I, I don't believe for a second they steam clean the, their, their thing every, every week. Like, that's who's doing that? Is, is you Chris can look Eddie at their mat. You can look at their mat and no, they weren't steam cleaning every right. week. <laughs> I do not believe that Chris Shetty was go- on a Sunday morning was going to the ring truck with Roadkill and be like, all right, we got to get the mat out and steam clean it. Yeah, Chris Chatty wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be steam cleaning anything, I don't think. Chris Chatty. He's chatty on this show, JP. Oh, that's Who's right. I, I, that, jab, that, that jabber, Chris Chatty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now, okay, he does bring up the Tommy Morrison thing in a second. Okay. So. Yeah, regarding wrestlers who are bleeding and fighting among fans, Heyman says this is an issue we have faced. We started when the Tommy Morrison thing broke. We had to make hard decisions. We had to see where the fallout would be and what the risks were. We spent money on consulting people on it. We certainly do it far less than we have in the past. And after this incident, talking about the coolest thing, We'll be curtailing even more, but there is a limit to how constricted any product of this nature can be once you have decent, educated information that comes across your desk. So, yep, there's the Tommy Morrison thing, which, you know, was the impetus for the original band. Yes. So he does bring that up. All right. Hamish so tape of the Revere incident to every major television affiliate he is negotiating with. Uh-huh. Review distributors and uh-huh. sponsors for the review, so they won't be blindsided by it should the tape become available to a tabloid TV show. Uh-huh. They were all notified that Monday morning that we had an incident that's probably going to cause bad publicity, and we'll be the first ones to alert them to the situation, tell them our side of the story, and give them a tape so they know what happened. Uh-huh. Here it is, guys. This is how bad it is. If you're going to dump me, tell me now. Uh-huh. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> JP, I mean, really? Well, really? Come on. Paul said it, so it must be true. Cue <laughs> <laughs> uh, me just chanting ECW for no reason and diving <laughs> off of a balcony. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think his only benefit during this time period is people wanting to believe things despite what they saw in front of their eyes, including wrestlers, by the way. But also the fact that, again, we didn't have. Uh, a wrestling media or, or interactive fan stuff like Twitter, even the message boards weren't enough because people would have, this would have been sunk so quickly. All, yeah, all but, here's, but here's Wade, Wade's not even holding him holding to the fire. Yeah. Wade just lets him say this and he's not you know, going back at him. But he's yeah. believing this is a matter, he's reporting this is a matter of fact. <laughs> that always confused me too because Wade, like, Regardless of what people think of Wade, positive or negative, like I found him to be like not only very intelligent, but the closest thing to like a journal. I'm not saying he's better or worse than Meltzer or anybody else. I know it's very contentious between all these entities. Even back then it was. Um, but he's the closest thing to like your classic journalist. And you know, he has the most it, classically journalistic approach. Right, right. So it is odd to me, having spoke with him about this stuff a few years before this to kind of see where he 
lets Heyman up off the mat on stuff. And you wonder how much of it is, and and, and I'm not calling, calling in a question uh, Wade's integrity. I just know from having been around this that, look, all journalists make deals to a degree. You, you want information about one thing, you're willing to like let another thing go in that moment, and you tell the, the person, look, if this becomes a story, I have to go with it. But for now, I'll like I won't hold you on it. I won't report it, or I won't like really grill you. And one uh, of the things that strengthens strengthens the torch is that the torch is the one with the on the record quotes, right? So yeah, but still, I mean, are you are you going to trade your journalistic integrity for quotes? You know what I'm saying? No, mm-hmm. but no, I'll say this: in fairness to Wade. In 1996, it's not like you can just go on to Wikipedia and see a Network One affiliate list. It's not like in 1996, like he's vague. I guess maybe he should have followed up. Like, wait, are you saying you guys clean the mat, or you can, or you have the mat sent out to be cleaned? For example, like that—that that probably should be here. But it's also like, if like if Paul just said he sent it out, there's really it's his company. You know, he's the one who owns the storage, I guess. Like, there's not a ton of investigating Wade could do on that. And he could have even said, I would, like, it sounds very Heyman. And from what I know of, like, their interactions, like, it wouldn't shock me to find out, uh, Paul would say, like, I will show you the receipts. And he just never gets around to showing you those non-existent receipts. And what, what, what do you, the only thing you can do, which Wade should have done for things like this, is put at the end of the paragraph, we were unable to confirm any of this, you know? Yeah, I mean, something, something, because, I mean, we're sitting here, we, I mean, we can see the bullshit that's coming through the print. You know, I mean, really, do you, how can anybody believe that Paul Heyman was was visiting all the major affiliates and showed them that tape on his own volition? I don't think he's saying he personally visited them with the tape. Well, how'd they get it? I think he said. I think he says he showed. Heyman says he showed a tape. I think he's saying I he told them about it and then sent it. He showed a tape. I get what you're saying. That you you're re. I can see why you'd read it that way. Okay, let me see. What does he? What is the actual quote on that? Or do we not have a straight up quote on that part? Heyman says he showed a tape of the incident to every major television affiliate. He is negotiating with the potential distributors and sponsors. So it's not who he's with now; it's people that he's negotiating with. Oh, uh, so, so he ne- would be meeting them in person. I he's meeting them for in person, exactly. Now, one thing I will say, though, it does become a point of contention whether or not, I guess, whether or not it was as literal as Wade took it. I mean, granted, I'm going to trust Wade much more than Heyman, but that does become one of the things that sort of litigated later is. Did Paul actually say, I gave a tape of this to everyone? Well, well, Wade later says he does because that's uh, a, a part of the heart of my interview with him is him saying, I had, like, at one point he says, he said this, he said this, I had no reason to believe. I remember Wade very vehemently saying, I had no reason to believe that if I called Hugh Panero or any cable, uh, you know, any cable channel, distributor, whatever that they weren't going to know exactly what I was talking about because Heyman was essentially, I don't want to say daring him to do it, but basically saying we don't want any problems. And so we made these people, that same comment comes out of Wade's mouth in September, 2001, when I interview him in Vegas. Right. And also, I mean, as we'll get to later too, 
Wade has talked about how Paul told him, check everything I tell you. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So. I mean, it's a ballsy confidence man scheme, to be honest with you. And I'm using the term scheme loosely because I don't think there's a diabolical plan. But as, as I've said a million times during this, and, and you guys have too, it's just like he would do stuff and hope that he didn't get caught on it. And dumb little things, just little quotes, like the, 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 the steam cleaning thing is a perfect example. Exactly. He was exactly. constantly doing this, and this was probably the wrong one to do with Wade, but it was almost this intellectual game where he felt challenged. And he really didn't want to lose to to Wade on this for whatever reason. It was so goofy. Yeah. All right. Hamas says he has planned for a dozen different possible directions he would take ECW from a business standpoint, depending on the success of the potential March 30 a pay-per-view. He also expects to double ECW's clearances come January, especially with Network One's plans to expand their exposure on independent broadcast stations. How? Regarding the WFECW working relationship, he sees there's two people who are on the gun from Ted Turner who realize there's a very powerful media conglomerate back in a rival organization that could drive them out of business. And he <laughs> says there's nothing more to their relationship than meets the eye, and he does not have any desire to work for the WWF or have the ECW officially work with the WF on a larger level. Sure. When is Brackus's first appearance? In '97. Let's see. Let's pull it up. It's. I believe it's post uh, pay per view. It's '97. It's after the pay per view, definitely. It's. It's after the pay per view. Yeah, because the WWF stuff doesn't start ramping up until like the summer. Yeah. After Rob, is, after Rob Van Dam's on Raw. Right. Rob Van Dam going on Raw is when the, when that really gets going. But hey. but that summer is a lot of the Lawler stuff. Yeah, Lawler season. coming in exactly. That's. That's another big key, big part of it, too. Brackus until later, because I think I see Brackus in January of 98 at the end. He was there in 97 for sure. Okay. All right. Yeah, 97 for sure, because November of 97 had all that, you know, the WF flag and all that Oh, stuff. right. Yeah, they buried Dreamer under the – okay, yeah. Yeah. So – but anyway, we know how that turns out. So uh, – Yeah, and – Oh, independent broadcast stations. You mean low-power stations? <laughs> yeah. Hey, America One sure had a lot of affiliates, too, but... Not here. Them. <laughs> they, they had... I, I think they eventually... They eventually had the affiliate that Pedicino was on, that station, Channel 14. And there was America One station for a little while, but then, yeah, not long after that. It well, think about it this way, too. In all of our time interacting with other wrestling fans online, has anyone who talked about watching ECW or even USWA on America One or Channel America or anything like that ever talked about watching it on a broadcast station? Or is it mm. always people who had uh, C-band dishes? C-band dishes. Yeah. That's what my brother taped it off of for me. So, yeah. Yeah, as far as the affiliate thing, like like I know for Sports Channel, they, they, they had Prime uh, here in, in the Philly area. And it really was just to fill holes. It wasn't like they had, uh, you know, like, well, it's 8 p.m. It's not like the like Fox, where it's like, well, it's 8 p.m., so now we switch to the national Fox stuff. It was more like, oh, it's, you know, the middle of the night, so this is when we show Prime stuff to fill up, you know, our 24-hour schedule. Oh, yeah, Prime, like, that's the thing. Like, there was a time where ECW was not on MSG Network properly. Yeah where you could still watch ECW on MSG a lot of the time because MSG was carrying the prime feed in the middle of the night. Right. Yeah. 
All right, real quick, uh, December 16th. We only have one little thing here, so we'll, we'll use it here. Uh, Torch cover date, December 21st. ECW's pay review will probably switch to April 13th. But this you- is before all of the other stuff officially <laughs> goes down. So. <laughs> but now it's set, except probably not, except, yes, historically. Yes. <laughs> Buckle in, folks. Let's go to the week of December 23rd, 96. Torch cover date, December 28th. Observer cover date, December 30th. And Wade Keller. It's about to go on a diatribe. Cover story. ECW is too extreme, say pay-per-view distributors. Content of their programs and the long list of controversial incidents add up to a no-go on pay-per-view by Wade Keller, Torch Editor. ECW management and wrestlers were gearing up for their debut on pay-per-view in late March or early April. Those plans were derailed last week when Request TV, one of the country's two major pay-per-view distributors, said ECW was too extreme for their taste. Viewer's Choice, the other national pay-per-view distributor, had already turned down ECW seven weeks earlier due to problems with program content. On Thursday, December 19th, when asked if a date had been finalized yet for ECW to review, Michael Klein, Vice President of Programming for Viewer's Choice, told the Torch that they had informed ECW weeks earlier they would not be going into partnership with them. When looking at the demo tape they sent us, there was a scene of a kid receiving gifts from his father and the boyfriend snatching them away from him, he said. This young boy was also in the wrestling ring about to be hit with a weapon by a grown man. We are not in the censoring, but there is a guideline for what we will put on our channels. Portrayals of kids about to be beaten are not the kind of images we want to be in partnership with, so we pass on the show. And real quick, he's referring to the Tyler Fullington angle, where there's a birthday party for Tyler Fullington. Raven is Raven in that. And then the scene where Tyler stands in the ring in one of the shows, and while Salmon has a cane in his hand, and Tyler does the Raven you know, arms out thing. I think that dude read a whole lot more to that than what it actually was going on. Yeah, that's uh, not what was ha- I mean, the the birthday party is definitely subversive, but it's at time, especially with Meanie and Stevie, it's playing for laughs to some degree. Uh, yeah. Well, getting over the sinisterness of of the Raven character and the other one, I I feel like he saw a, like a maybe a screenshot or something. I don't know. Uh, but that's not what was going on there. Yeah, I mean, if you don't if you don't know the context, then you know that's one thing. But I mean, so if this this was a demo tape, though, so obviously, it, I would guess that it had pretty much the whole match or something on there. But uh, yeah, <laughs> a whole lot of a whole lot of uh, outrage over really nothing in that in that case in that regard. So. It makes sure also to put quotes like it put this in and put quotes on the uh, they had informed ECW weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. They would, uh, which seems, you know, knowing what's coming, it seems like a, a protection of sorts from <laughs> being. I'm sure before they got this out, you know, behind the scenes, they'd already been accused of things. Is what I'm saying. The torch I'm speaking of. Yeah. yeah. Now when at so as far ahead. as the violence or threat or whatever part with Ty. It was that Tyler stepped in front of Raven when Sandman was about to hit him. Yeah, he was protecting Raven. Yes, mm-hmm. and of course Sandman immediately stops. Like I could well, see how... almost tears. Yeah, like yeah. he's his father. Yeah. Yeah. Again, a whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing. All right. When I asked the tape of the incident, ECW sent them of seventeen-year-old Eric Coolis being cut badly in the ring had any influence in their decision. <laughs> oh boy. 
Klein said he never heard of the incident and then never seen the tape. Uh-oh. That's not what we heard earlier. But that decision was probably made even before the said incident took place. The same day when SVC the preview day had been finalized, requested to be President Hugh Panero told the torch he wasn't sure that they had finalized the date yet, and there were still some issues to work out. When NASA delay in finalizing the day had anything to do with the content of the original demo tape ECW sent them, or the tape ECW recently sent them in the Revere incident, he said he didn't know. So he find out the next day. The next day, Panero said he, said he checked into the status of ECW situation and said they were not carrying the event and the decision had finalized that day. He said as they're evaluating ECW for the past several weeks, there was a series of controversial incidents that concerned them. He said there was two incidents they couldn't look past, one of a wrestler sitting another wrestler and inadvertently a fan on fire. And the other of a 17-year-old getting injured with a fork. Within what Paul Heyman told the torch two weeks earlier, Panera said no one requests knew of the Revere incident before Thursday, and no one there had seen a tape. But requests called ECW on Friday, they came clean and described to them the incident in detail. <laughs> oh, Paul Heyman. Panera explained, we were in the process of evaluating their event. I don't know how objects like forks and fire get involved in their rings, but we have standards, and those don't fit, just like the UFC and the fit various standards to be on pay-per-view. So does this group. This is wrestling. It's a weird duck. ECW is a little more real than it, than not, it seems, so it fell into a weird black hole. If they want to be on pay-per-view, we're going to treat them like a combat sport and ask them to tell us how they're going to prevent such incidents from happening. They have to show that they will have doctors at ringside and age requirements. We realize they are realistic and not purely theatrics, so they should, be, they should hold themselves to the same or higher standards as the combat sports. It's either real combat or bad theatrics. The WF and WCW, these guys are great athletes. That's how they can do things safely. They look dangerous. In the case of ECW, I don't want to carry an event that doesn't know what it is. I don't want to see underage kids with gashes on their foreheads. Panero pointed to boxing having to clean up his act that their brawl broke out in the ring in the recent Riddick Bo Andrew Galata fight. They issued too many all-purpose ringside passes. On their next event, they had better security, and it didn't happen again. Panero did say it doesn't necessarily have a problem with bleeding on the events. Blood is not a problem. He said we carry box events where boxers bleed. Wait, wait, wait. Setting aside everything ECW did wrong here, how has he had people negotiating with them, yet somehow he thinks ECW might be a shoot? Because of the weapons. That makes I mean, it a shoot? Yes. Right. You, 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 you got in people's minds, because because the they're not blading with they're not seeing this blading with razor blades. They're seeing them use these weapons that brings the blood out directly from the weapon. That's bringing the blood out. It's because not, the bloodletting is real. Exactly. You got to remember, there's a lot of people that, and then still to this day, there are people that believe that they use ketchup or blood yeah. capsules or. I mean, it's much less of a thing than it used to be, but yes, and especially yeah. still, even still in 1996, 97. One of the yeah. biggest feedback things I got from, you know, people who knew me but didn't like wrestling at all and were nice enough to watch the documentary was the blading thing blew their mind. And they, one person even said, I wouldn't have believed it if they wouldn't have gone into detail about it. Like, they just didn't, there's no way they, they couldn't, fathom it in their head so i i totally believe all that the other thing i want to say just to just before it gets too far away that the hugh panera part where wade has quotes from him and he says there were two incidents that they couldn't look past the first one is the fan on fire thing and that's that was from october of 95 yeah now, yeah that yeah. tape was now how do they know about that because that tape was destroyed on purpose 
once they knew it was going to become a lawsuit. They had they had to have done research on that. Or okay. even Paul felt like because of the lawsuit, he had to tell them about it. Okay, well, that makes sense. The second thing is interesting to me because in the same thing here, he says that he didn't know uh, about the Revere incident. He also lists the second reason they couldn't look past as, uh, let's see, quote, uh, the other of a 17-year-old, quote, getting injured with a fork, end quote. Isn't that him misinterpreting the Revere thing, though? I think I think he's trying to say he did, they didn't see that, which is okay. which he says that. But he may not have known that was Revere either. He may have known that was something yeah. completely different. Because <laughs> yeah. ECW, you know, the way they are, it could, it could happen anywhere. Sure. But the thing I take away from that, the whole thing, is uh, the most is how he totally, you know, says that you know WCWF they have real athletes. And they're able to do things safer than ECW does because they have a bigger production. They're more commercialized. Their guys look better. ECW had, you know, had this had this look production wise. Everybody was, you know, had you know, this weird gear. There's not there's not the athletic look in ECW at this time in '96. So that kind of turns it off too to a commercialized pay per view distributor. They see this is like, look at these guys. This is like, you know, got guys in, in blue jean shorts and shirts and all this other shit. Wrestling is supposed to be guys with tights and muscular physiques doing stuff. Especially coming out of the 80s boom. Yeah, I can totally. And this is before the Attitude Era stuff. I, I do want to say that I wish so badly there's a very small amount of, I mean, it might even be two or three people that I look back and go, God, I wish I had given a little more effort to, uh, to trying to get. And, and um, one of them is Hugh Panera. Like I, I sent an email to, to his offices and never got anything back. And I didn't really pursue him too much, but I really would love, I, he probably would have went, I don't remember any of this. Like my life went on. Yeah. Love to have tried to get him to sit down and talk about this, even if it were like on background or something like that. You know, just just to get a feel on the on the phone for like what he recalled and what he thought. Well, because, one thing we're gonna get into a bit though is at least like in terms of like negotiations and stuff, he was not the one dealing with ECW, which yeah. I feel like is part of like all of the fallout and bullshit and spin we're gonna get into as well, like. I feel like it was a failure on the part of both Panero and Heyman to not try to direct Wade to someone that was actually dealing with ECW. And we know probably why Heyman would have done that with, with Panero. It's unfortunate because I just, I think he took a call from a journalist and then was like, Oh geez, like, what is this? You know, I think, I think Wade kind of snuck through by being tenacious is the way I, I kind of recall Wade describing getting to Panero. So, I'm sure he was just like, oh, crap, why did I do this? Because he doesn't want to look bad. You know, he doesn't want to seem ill-informed. But at the same – because he – you know, he's running at the time a major pay-per-view provider. But he's also probably like, they did what? Oh, do – I okay, I need to call you back because he's probably now calling the people who are doing the negotiation going, why why are we talking to these people? What have we not been aware of? Yeah. All right. ECW was told the news by phone Friday and an official letter was then sent. When asked Monday the status of change or if reconciliation was possible, Panero said they've been told pretty much is final. 
according to Paul Heyman, he officials and request TV engaged in a conference call on the following Thursday and plan to have a follow-up conversation on Friday, which is the day after this issue's deadline, about working out a deal to keep the plans for pay-per-view on the table. April 13th is apparently still the target date, although sign- all signs over the last week were that it would take too much time to alleviate requests, concerns, get a deal done soon enough for the April 13th debut. If ECW were to meet a list of conditions, some industry sources indicated this week that a pay-per-view deal could eventually be reestablished for later in the year. Heyman says this controversy has been blown up proportion all week on wrestling hotlines, the internet, and among his wrestlers. So the first time we have dealt with a concern from a quest, he said, but it's the most severe and the most public. Wrestlers were not told to glitch the baby plans at the Friday or Saturday night ECW shows, but as word spread earlier this week, there was concern, outrage, finger pointing, and soul searching. As Spot shows all the boys used to talk about how he used to talk about and look forward to the next ECW arena show, said one ECW wrestler. Now all anybody was talking about was the pay per view. Another wrestler said, now yeah, ECW and I get a pay-per-view, the first thing a lot of wrestlers are going to do is call an executive at WF or WCW and wish them a Merry Christmas. The controversial review incident was, ironically, apparently not a big topic of a conversation with the wrestlers recently. Most of them hadn't seen the video, which graphically showed closest of the blood spurting out of Coolis' head. Instead, the wrestlers based their opinion on the locker room scene after the match, which saw Coolis being stretched into an ambulance with his head bandaged, apparently asking about whether he did okay. And would be welcome at the ECW, which Coolis denies he said. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just say early in the show that the wrestlers had watched the video? Wasn't that reported? Am I misremembering? Was it said outright or was it implied? I think it might have been implied. I don't know that it was said outright. It was watched in the locker room? Oh, because New Jack. Well, that doesn't mean everybody saw it. That means somebody was standing there when Jack saw it. I would bet you Jack would have asked. Uh, and maybe I'm completely self-creating this in my mind, but I feel like Jack went to Rob to see because Rob was at all the the, the spot shows selling our video VHSs. I think he went to because they would bring that little TV and a VCR to play stuff. I think he, as I recall, went and asked to see the tape the, the next week. Okay. Because Rob was selling it like at the next weekend show. Oh, absolutely, it was. So I, I, I don't, and I could totally see Rob or Doug stooging that off to Meltzer and or Keller. Yeah, because they liked ch- being chatty and being in the community, like which I totally understand. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, New Jack who cut Kula said it was been one target of criticism. He told the torch Sunday that Heyman advised him not to comment on the situation for legal purposes. But no one yet knows the entirety of the situation. Heyman did say he's not holding out high hopes for resolving the February controversy anytime soon. He's already working on Plan B, which presumably means scheduling a live TV special on Network One for April 13th instead. Well, first of all, wasn't that already scheduled? <laughs> yes. Well, let's talk about Network One. When contact Tuesday morning, this Christmas Eve, an executive with Network One said they had received tape of the incident. When asked if the incident in any way threatened ECW relationship with them, she said she got the tape. So long ago, she didn't remember the content, but added that it concerned her. She said her assistant actually watched the tape, but she only saw excerpts, but she remembered it was horrific. She had a get great reviews for the show from our viewers. She had a great relationship with the distributor, and she and they assured them that it was a one-time incident. Their one apparently would have been the only entity to inform the various affiliate stations of the incident, not ECW, according to Heyman. Okay. I have something to real quick. I'll throw this out there. Yeah. Uh, that line. I have a great relationship with the distributor network. One was dealing with Steve Carroll. Yes. I was just going to say that's clearly Steve Carroll and Stonecutter. 
being referred and to there. Because Steve Carroll had his hands in a lot of things. So that's why they know him as a distributor that they buy content off of or have content licensing deals or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, Stonecutter was officially ECW syndicator, right? Correct. Yes. I think that that's the – I think it was – the that little shell company was specifically formed for that. Like I don't think he did business as Stonecutter otherwise, but he I think he just would develop – this, you know, small companies to distribute specific things. Gotcha. Although when he did MLW, it was through Stonecutter, right? That's possible because he could have seen name value in like people remembering it being attached. Because like he does a lot of things out. Like he's big in the bodybuilding world, apparently, for putting on shows and distributing their shows and, run, and running those as live events. I know he did. Um, he did something under the brand of uh, WrestleZone right as ECW was filing for bankruptcy because we were given access to those shows to film. And they were staffed with Atlas as security. Uh, they had old uh, one or two ex-referees of ECW, or I guess technically still referees of ECW because those guys still thought the company was coming back. And it was completely filled with uh, ECW guys and then like local stuff and like the smoke, stuff like that. Oh, God, the smoke. For those not yeah. familiar with the smoke, he is a... He was, what, a Pennsylvania-area rock impersonator? Yes, and he is now a noted cosplayer. (laughs) He's a cosplayer of The Rock, or just Um, If you go on his Facebook, his latest uh, cosplay thing he goes to all the conventions with is uh, Thanos, with a ridiculously giant Thanos costume. I mean, this man put in work on this. So all respect to the smoke. (laughs) Who, by the way, is hilarious. I took a ride with, with the smoke in sometime in later in 2001. And, um, oh no, it was 2000 actually. And uh, I was in a car of four people. And uh, he really, at the time, like thought he was essentially as big as The Rock. Tremendous. All right, Bix, what were you going to say? Well, I mean, first of all, I just found a clip of the smoke doing a celebrity interview with someone at a convention. He looks nothing like The Rock other than his haircut and his skin tone, by the way. At least at this point. What what year? Like, I know he's a lot older now. Well, 2009. Okay, yeah. Like, he did look like a dime store rock in 2000. Like, you, you could see it, but it was still kind of like, all right, guy. Wasn't there also, like, another Pennsylvania rock impersonator that went by Solo? Yeah. I, I know there was a Solo. I think he was uh, somehow involved with Alpha and the Samoans. Yes. And we're not talking about Solo Snooker either. No, although I made that mistake at some point. A lot of people had. A lot of people, lot of people had. Was that the same guy? All right. You have any more well, because also Snooker Jr. went through so many different names, too. And he's, yeah, and he's you know, Polynesian, so. Yeah. All right. What, um, was there anything else here? Note, by the way, that Wade did not ask Network One about a live special. At least the way he's saying it here. <laughs> yeah he didn't ask them directly did he he, he talked to them but didn't ask them directly that is interesting isn't and it? if he did he did he didn't mention it exactly that's weird so anyway now let's go to Dave Meltzer who has this the observer this leaves ECW only with action TV as a potential carrier if it wishes to go on pay-per-view 
which would be roughly 70% of the universe, favorite universe would be in care of the show. It may do in a live event, almost certainly not financially feasible. The break even would be a 0.5 level buy rate. I figured that no one would think it would be well out of reach for the company. Paul Heyman said that doing a fair view through Action TV was not one of his backup options for the major first quarter of the year show, provided a request doesn't carry the event. Heyman said December 23rd that there was no chance viewers' choice would carry the first event, but still held out hope it might carry a second event down the line. He was still hopeful of reversal in the request position. As he said, fan, he said we had a meeting with them on December 26th. He said as a Monday, he had rec- heard requests wasn't carrying the potential event, but said that between the problems that had arisen this past week and the fact that Extreme Fine Chances had moved this pay show to the March 28th, which caused an ancillary would create significant marketplace confusion, the any thoughts of the preview show on March 30th were out the window. He said he was definitely doing a major show on the second weekend of April, either on pay review or with a tip to get some kind of television or such a show. Press live or one or two day tape delay. Still going with Sabu versus Taz and most likely Raven versus Cherry Funk as his double main event. All right, fix real quick for those who don't know what Action TV is. Okay, so Action was I don't know when they went out of business. I should probably check real quick. Action was a pay per view channel. Once people started to have more than one pay per view channel, that was I guess primarily like direct to video B action movies. Right? Okay. And I don't know. I didn't have it. Oh, you never had action. Okay. No. And let me think about this for a second. I told you I never got pay per view proper on my from on my house until I got direct TV. My okay. cable company, I did not have a pay per view with them. I didn't. I didn't have the box to get. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So you were able to do Scramble Vision. Yeah. So and I, I was I, I got the okay. I was able to watch previews another you know other ways with that one. Not in my house. Now and at least for me on Cablevision, action shared channel space with Spice. So it was action during the day, Spice for porn at night. For <laughs> another kind of action. <laughs> yes, and let's see. What do we have? We have oh, we have an action paper. Oh wait, no, they also had night action. Because I'm looking, at, I'm looking to see what I can pull up on Google, and oh, that's right. At some point, they were owned by BET. Although I don't know if that was the whole time. Yes, that BET. It doesn't look like Wikipedia has anything about them. Actually, I hope. Do we have? So is any of this like a an action Barker channel? Okay, here we go. Oh, this is, it's 17 minutes long, so I won't play the whole thing, but... Her treatment can be deadly. Action is only on pay-per-view! Demon! Oh, they also have some bikini thing here, too. Okay. This, okay, so this week's action are The Surrogate, um, some B-movie, and The Bikini Open 5. China O'Brien. Oh my gosh, man, I haven't seen in a long time. She was a uh Cinemax Skinemax actress in the eighties and nineties. And note that she's getting like star billing underneath that movie morning, too. Really yeah. Eastern Daylight Time <laughs> and seven to eight AM Eastern Daylight Time. Because of the length of the materials for October, the feed will be split into two parts. Okay. There you go. Well, look come on, is there anything we can get a brief clip of? Come on. Okay. Oh wait a minute. Go back. Yeah. Oh wait. Do you want me to go back a little more? Okay. No, no, no. Go. No, no. Okay. We got Class 1999, Maniac Cop 2, and The Dead Pit. 
That's uh, some movies aired on there. Go back. Okay. Uh, oh, there we go. American Kickboxer 1, Maniac Cop 2, Class 1999. So that's type of movies that's, that's being run on there. And they had a whole uh, channel for it to buy yeah. these on pay-per-view. Yeah, American Ninja 4. Okay, enough. B-Y-O-B-B. Bring your own body bag. <laughs> Hollow Gate. Awesome. All right. I wonder how I much of this stuff's even on video. I would be very curious if uh, if Steve Carroll was already providing uh, softcore entertainment to places like Action uh, TV. Oh, I can believe that. Because that's something he did do, which is why he had an in with pay-per-view providers. Now, I'm not sure if that relationship grew out of dealing with them, but I think it predated the ECW thing where he would have dealt with them. Could be. Could be, good. Could be uh, onto something there. All right, Haley clearly requests reviewers' choice that issue needed to get things like blood, brawling the crowd, swearing, and beating up the women. He would have to cancel the show. Haley claimed requests had no qualms about any of the above. He said he would be willing to negotiate and give up one of those things, but not all or most of them. In the past, WCW received stern warnings from requests and reviewers' choice when it was used blood. When it has used blood during this review events, and that's part of the reason not the WF nor WCW used blood on pay per view and pulled camera shots back away from accidental juice. Heyman said items like that are what separate his company from WWCW because they can't compete with them, but otherwise because they don't have the budget for the lighting, fireworks, and special effects. Problem is to catch way to the situation. The very thing the current ECW cross swears by the product because of. And because it's what the major groups don't offer all the things that make taking the product to the next level almost a fruitless dream at this point. Heyman has long thought about getting his group review eventually from a time frame where most of the industry laughed about the very idea of it ever happening. Until recently, where it appeared not only what it would have happened, but there was good enough odds that the event could be mildly successful, albeit not on a level WF or WCW. So Heyman basically saying it's you know the smoke and the smoke and mirrors and the the violence is what drives them and it appeals them to their fan base that WF and WCW can't do. But my thing, JP, was were they relying too much on that stuff in this time period? I mean, maybe I did. I thought that they mostly toned down, especially the second half of '96. Like, I mean, they were doing crazy stuff with like choke slamming Tommy Dreamer off of everything in the world that year. But I, I don't know. I think that that's kind of a, a crutch excuse to some degree. But man, I, I, You'd have to take a very detailed poll back in like 1996, and somehow like have people filling out surveys to figure out what draws people. What I do, I do think the violence drew. Like when I would go to shows locally, the people who who weren't weekly viewers, they went to see the spectacle of violence, and I think the fans like me were like, "Well, that's part of the thing that's interesting, but it isn't the main draw." So it was kind of a, a mix of like, who are they drawing from? If, if Heyman's talking about how he needs to broaden his audience, he may think it's a balance well, of violent content. It was. Believe me, I was part of that. I mean, because when I went to, you know, the first time they came to Marietta, of course, Russell Palooza 98, the legendary pay-per-view. I mean, oh, that, was yeah. a, that was a bloodthirsty type crowd. They wanted violence. They didn't want wrestling. You know, not like, you know, real athletic wrestling per se. I mean, they were wanting blood. They were wanting, you know, the violence and stuff like that. So, 
as I mean, yeah. this will go well past what we're looking at specifically, but that became a problem that again we we uh, dealt with in the documentary. Is like if you get past the first pay per view at that point, then as the audience broadens and they try to reach out more, you're just getting a higher amount of people who are going for car crashes and going. Well, then that's what the promotion became too, JP. Yeah. Not, that's why ninety eight like the one of the worst years in the company's history as far as like product. Because it went way too far in that direction. But they were way making money. Far. I mean, J Gabe yeah. Kulski says 98 was their best year by far compared to the prior years. So they exactly. were full speed ahead, like almost indignant about the, any criticisms of it. Well, you know what? Let's read on because Dave does get into some of this. All right. And well, this, is, this is not everything he wrote because he wrote a lot and I had to cut it down. But this, this gets to the heart of what we need to talk about as far as this part. The cancellation raises numerous questions regarding the future of ECW, not so much to survival as much the potential to grow to the next level. While many, if not most of the wrestlers, even many who deny publicly, will probably admit ECW is a hardship place for either those who don't have the talent to work in the big two, or for those who do, yet use ECW to get their market value raised and get WCW interested in using them in a better position than they would have otherwise, since they may be the best of the business of being able to present talent at its best. And it's so good at it that in many cases he's fooled even people who are in the businesses to just how advanced some of his wrestlers really are once they leave him. <laughs> Public enemy. As a fact that has been noticeable in the industry for the past two months, is also the listing of the National Underground Cult phenomenon that is or was ECW. One major higher up in the WF noted that at the big company live event and TV tapings, there are far fewer Sabu and ECW banners, and they've been largely replaced by NWO as the main counterculture underground phenomenon. And these different banners, which were often confiscated WCW tables, are no longer a problem there either. Hammond and stuff obviously recognized that and created the BWO with a similar T-shirt to, in a sense, merchandise the underground phenomenon. Then, in a sense, his first legitimate is his first legitimate threat because WF and WCW can never be underground or anti-establishment. That is interesting to read <laughs> because the one thing that when I was going through the old observers for the '95 stuff. Two instances come to mind. King of the Ring in Philadelphia, in your house in Hershey, in the same year, heavy ECW fan base at those shows. And there were signs, the chants, everything. So it WF, it definitely was a problem because they were running a lot more in the Northeast than they, they had run in recent years. So you get that prevalent factor on those shows. Way more than WCW. Well, and also... Big two fucking sucked at the time. And that's changing, which takes us to what Dave writes here. Yes. Yeah, another fact that arrives of ECW that has changed is that ECW was getting its cult following. It was arguably the best wrestling in the United States. Certainly, it consistently the highest quality matches, the most innovative, and Wimple Tilden showed almost surely the most consistent, strong major arena shows in 1995. Some aspects of the company have improved over the past year, and financial model accounts, it appears from the outside to be far stronger and does great merchandise for a wrestling company that size. Attendance, while not improving at the level WF and WCW did in 96, still increased over this past year. Heyman's ability not only to recruit, in many cases create talent, maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses, but what was arguably the best booking and best television show anywhere in wrestling, made ECW the end thing among those who knew the best. However, as top talent left, while ECW remains with its hardcore reputation, it dies hard, such as how certain great workers develop and maintain reps as being top hands in the business years after they stop actually delivering the goods in the ring. To a lesser extent, that's half with ECW. They don't have the pure ring talent to compete with when it comes to wrestling with WCW anymore. 
even though the effort that put forth by the wrestlers is equal to the information in the world. Now, a few guys are close to the top level, but there's anyone in each and every level of Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Ben Mysterio Jr., Dean Malenko, or Chris Benoit, the guys who have made it such that most of the WCW events are no longer disappointments they were at the time. People like Sabu and ECW were building their hardcore reputation. What ECW can offer is what WCW won't because whatever short-term good it may do for WCW to do the so-called hardcore style isn't worth it to either your company in the long run, the juice, the swearing, or violent angles, matches, beating up of women. While there can be no denying that's what the current ECW audience wants because they can't get it elsewhere, it has led to the creation of an audience that has too often come cl- too close to becoming part of the action in a negative way. Hamas spent one year solely building out Sabu and Taz for the most important match in company history. That match from a financial potential standpoint has been largely snuffed out by the inability to keep things under control and are creating a ring style that does the major decision-making power won't feel squeamish about giving it major exposure. That's interesting stuff there, JP, that Dave is saying. He's pretty much 100% run on the money. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, he is. Although, like, it would get worse, actually. Um, yeah, but 96... Mid-95 through 96, the minute they got anybody, like, I mean, Jericho's a perfect example. Um, Those people that they could have used to try to prop things up and and keep that whole, uh, what's the reference people always say, the the buffet, where you have a little bit of everything. Those, it's almost like if you go to the buffet, but I don't know, um, all the Italian food at, at the buffet is gone. So you only have... Uh, other specific foods to pick from. So they, they just started getting crab legs like crazy. And in this case, crab legs are just like stunt bump and crazy violence. And you get desensitized to that stuff. I know I did. Well, the thing is that, you know, what, what, you, sh- what you need to do then is you need to constantly stay on the poles and find the next guys that's going to be the guys that could be like a Jericho Malenko Benoit. Well... You found them before. That was hard back in that day, though. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, in the mid-90s, it's not like you had this endless supply of great workers on the American indie scene like you do now. You had to look for either international talent, mainly, or guys who had built up their skills and their reputation by doing Japanese tours. Not necessarily. But to a degree, though. I mean, In late 96... All right. Um, they had brought in Devin Storm, you know, for the Taz match, but Devin Storm was a guy. Devin a Storm Starling. was not a polished worker for a f- at least a few more years after this, though. Yeah, but still, Ace Darling is around. Reckless, Reckless Youth. I was about to say him too. I was going to say Quack, Re- Quack and Bush. Again, Quack's not a polished worker yet, though. Either doesn't matter. I mean, you bring these guys in, and they're doing a style that's not. Straight up hardcore style. Part of the problem is the perception of the audience, though. I, I will like Quackenbush sets off a bell for me. Like that guy's getting laughed out of the building. Like Lance Storm got beat up bad by that audience and kind You're of. You're right. Like, You're right. Rejected and bullied. So, so like imagine Quack back then too. Like the way he the way he looked and and spoke would have been rough. Well, unless, also, he, unless he got himself overdoing ring work, which guys could do that. Yeah, but, like, Northeast Indie guys weren't the ones doing that on ECW shows. And also, uh, your your Northeast Indie guys of that era are probably going to be, you know, especially trying to get over in the ECW environment, are probably going to end up throwing shitty punches and kicks and it'll get laughed out of the building, too. But one thing, though, that Heyman starts doing, though, as we go into 97, 
is instead of trying to find all those new hot young acts, he goes to the South and finds the veterans like Ricky Morton, Tommy Rich, PG-13. Tracy Smothers, you know, PG-13 eventually later on. But he brings th- those type of guys in, which, you know, it's good to have, you know, a veteran presence as well in the locker room. So, and they could do, they could do all kinds of matches. They don't have to de- depend on the blood and the guts. Sure, so, but you're capitalized great worker types were Jericho, Scorpio, Eddie, Malenko, Benoit, <coughs> the Luchadors. They were Scorpio guys just left. Right. But they were guys who were either international stars, had extensive international experience, etc. You were and not Dr. Death Dr. Death was still, you know, was that was around. Gordy was around. Yeah, they weren't they weren't docking Gordy of what you know. Yeah, Furnace and Lafayette. But again, it's still yeah. mainly guys who you're bringing Brian in. Smith. Yeah, but it's still mainly guys you're bringing in because they have that international <clears throat> credibility. Yeah, they've got a higher profile. Like you're otherwise, you're waiting around on VHS tapes. You're waiting for a friend to be generous, uh, and and like I mean, even a friend of Paul Heyman, because like a lot of other, uh, a lot of other promoters are just looking out for. Can I bring this guy that I saw this VHS tape into my small little thing. They're not necessarily trying to help Paul. I don't know what his connections to like what they had of Indies around the country, but outside of the people we mentioned, those Northeast Indie guys that we all know from the second half of the nineties, you're really just hoping that somebody sends you a VHS tape and keeps calling Paul's cell phone. And Oh yeah, he's got to actually uh, call you back. You know, he's actually, cause he's trying to do 18 jobs and he's kind of nuts in his own way. Well, the one thing is, problem. One thing though is, you know, Candido is just not about to show is shown up. So Candido's in. Um Bigelow is, you know, coming. Um Mikey's turn excuse me, Mikey's turned into a great worker. Yeah, I mean there are guys there and, and they're guys that, that you know they, they could have found some some people. They could have, if they looked hard. I mean, I mean, guess he's guess he's like Doug Gilbert. You know, Doug Gilbert wouldn't have done it because he's a little dense. So honestly, and this this is like total hindsight. If you could have invested a small, small amount of capital, maybe even not that, maybe just free merch and tickets to some of the more dedicated fans who were tape traders to be essentially talent scouts and make them feel important. Uh, that they get to talk to Paul about these things because Paul was really good at making any effing idiot feel like they were important. Um, you might have gotten something out of that if you have three separate people who aren't necessarily good friends doing that and getting like free arena seats or free seats to, I guess they haven't quite expanded to New York in a, in a, in a foothold way, but they go, Elks Lodge is like February of, of 97, I think, is when they that, that becomes a permanent thing. And even, though not, and even though they're not the most polished guys in the world, especially at this point, but as 97 goes along, you got the Omega guys in Carolina that you could have brought in. As and not really on people's afraid. radar yet, though. Well, the hardest have been on WF television. Well, well, hold on. There's something obvious we're missing, too, which is like, and I, I'm, I'm you know, not trying to further stir up the pot with, like, newsletters and whatnot, but you've got um, Dave Shearer and therefore Jess McGrath and uh, to some degree, Mike Johnson, who was writing periodically for them, 
who are fans who come to the arena and would have been happy to help have helped out in scouting things. I mean, they were, Jeff's was writing a article about the Indies and talking about reckless, like way back when for, for uh, the Lariat, which is Dave Shearer's publication at the time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, quite frankly too, if we're just talking about us indie guys, especially even people that could have driven up to ECW, if they were willing, if they had just looked further beyond the, you know, the Northeast Indies, they would have had more utility guys that they could have just brought in that would have been able to fill spots. Like your, I would say like your Pittsburgh, Ohio, Maryland, and Virginia guys were of a higher caliber than your yeah. New York, New Jersey, Look Metro around. Philly guys. And they had connections to, I mean, Stevie and Meany are going out to Pittsburgh to work for Norm Connors. Um, they are Adam going Maryland. out to MECW, yeah. Yeah, yeah in Maryland. Excuse me, yeah. Yeah. And Maryland too. So like, and you have the excellent people like that who are based out of there. So, and I think Scott Levy's even working Maryland Championship Wrestling at this time. So you, you had guys out there, and like people would come back. Like Raven would bring a person to Heyman here and there, but it wasn't. It was more, you know, it was, honestly it was more of like Raven found a guy he wanted for his flock to be a flunky or something like that. All right, let's continue. <clears throat> The attitude that appears to exist with some key people in the company apparently truly believing in that anyone that's saying anything negative about the company is rationalized as being an enemy trying for un, like some un, unexplicable reason to put them out of business. Here we go. That has resulted in a night heating loud and clear red flags. There were warning signals trying to have them avoid what happened this past week. And what if, if they're rationalized that way again with the attitude that what happened was a result of enemies being out to get them, but eventually happen again next week or next month, the cancellation of the pay-per-view shows a crippling blow to the company's chances of becoming something more than what they are. A small independent group that has now survived for several years, but has still never sold 2,000 tickets to an event in this history. <clears throat> you can only go with that it's us against the world mentality for so long. You know? Especially when you're blatantly working with the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> yeah, which at this point, they're at this point, that's subsided. You know they're not that it, it it stopped for a while, but you 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 were out there for some shots, but it's about to pick back up heavily. You know as '97 gets going, so that's a different thing. JP, what's your thoughts on uh, Dave's uh, stuff there? Yeah, I think that this last that that last summation is 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 really important, and it was a big important moment for them too because they're right on what they think is this precipice, um, but. They're looking, you know, it mentions them, you know, kind of us against the world and how long can that last? Well, Heyman finally got caught in something and Hugh Panero stepped back because he's a businessman and he didn't know enough about it. So you have to focus on the, it's almost like for the short term, I'm sure once Heyman calmed down, he was like, all right, us against the world, we're, we're so close and now we can't get this thing and how do I rally? And we're about to find out how they rally because they're going to need to look to blame somebody and you can't blame Hugh Panero and nobody cares about blaming this kid who got cut and his dad. So you're going to have to find a bad guy while you, you reassess. Cause to me, it's always been and this may be jumping the gun and what we're doing, but to me, Panero was always like, Oh crap. Now I can't, whoever was supposed to vet this didn't vet this properly. I got a journalist calling me. Now I have to see how big is the media that picks this up. Or like in today's world, it would be a blogger picked this up or a small site is railing against us. Is this going to get picked up by a major media uh, uh, faction? And I think that's what Panera was waiting on. 
So when it doesn't happen, we'll see what happens then. But for now, the bad guy becomes the people that were one of the people we're about to talk about next. Who has some yeah, thoughts. And, and real quick, uh, Dave, Dave notes, or no, Wayne notes that he should be locked in and return to the Revere, Massachusetts. Saw the bloodletting incident for January 4th at the Wonderland Greyhound Park. Night four there, back in Webster, Mass, at the Town Hall for a TV taping. And he says, well, the latest on pay-per-view story next week. But now, let's get into a couple of excerpts from Bruce Mitchell's column, Some Revolution. <clears throat> Bruce writes, New Jack's 50-stitch butchering with a knife at 72-year-old miners in terrible apex so far in a series of senseless acts in ECW short history. Because ECW's done nothing to curb this escalating series of incidents involving wrestlers and fans, a 17-year-old kid, Eric Coolis, now has to deal with the consequences of a trauma that will scar him physically and emotionally for the rest of his life. Coolis was cut so deep that muscle in his forehead was sliced clean through, which was a permanent scar. The cut was so long that his grandmother burst into tears when she saw it. Really, though, he's lucky. First, he's simply lucky to be alive. The stomach-churning scene revered where blood shot out of his vein every time his heart beat underscored that it took EMTs over 10 long minutes to staunch the bleeding. But even luckier, according to Paul Heyman, immediately after the show, the kid got his ECW initiation. And all those smart and savvy ECW fans are going to see the moon-faced fat kid with a huge scar across his face. It's one tough son of a bitch next time he wrestles. Of course, ECW talent coordinator might be wrong there. Coolis obviously was a tough end for the fans of Revere who chanted, you fat fuck, while he lay in his own gore. And of course, the kid's blood then buying him apart in an important ECW angle. So this was just a meaningless match on a little spot show. Something extra for the ECW fans there to enjoy. And Heyman felt no compunction trying to spend Coolis' agony for, to his promotion's advantage. He told media members of the show that this was just part of the extreme scene. No big deal. And no indication of whether ECW, to paraphrase New Jack, care whether the kid lived to die. How bad could it be that the president of ECW, when negotiations for pay-per-view ongoing, didn't seem overly concerned? The horror and inhumanity of what occurs simply can't be captured with words. It sure was captured on videotape. And then there's Paul Heyman, who apparently has been too busy spinning to have time for Eric Coolis. Paul Heyman doesn't spin like a normal person or even a normal wrestler. Spinning for Heyman is an art form, a challenge for him to prove that he is smarter than the person whom he is spinning. Creating creative half-truths, variations of the truth, relevant truths, the truth, and lies are all mixed until Heyman has his subject so dazed that he or she just gives in to the avalanche of verbiage or in some cases refuse to talk to Heyman anymore. For example, Heyman's detailed account of how cool smoothed his head while Nietzsche was blading him sure sounded good, didn't it? Too bad that one view on the tape dispels his entire assertion. But then Heyman went too far. Anyone revere or anyone who has seen the video knew damn well that Heyman would be crazy to let any television executive who was not an ECW apologist already see the incident or even hear the details of it. But Heyman couldn't resist the opportunity to spin the situation to make it sound as if he had everything under control. Well, <laughs> J.P. Bruce is going hard and heavy here. Bruce was always disgusted with this. I think it's one of his better pieces of writing uh, because I don't think he's being childish here, and I think he's making a point about this being a real-world incident Yes. Uh, and what it says about being reckless and this, uh, this ever-escalating, uh, not only need for, for, for violence, but this escalating like lack of care about, and quality control about what wrestlers are doing in the locker room and like what they're doing in the ring um i always thought this was a great column uh but it certainly certainly did not help and it definitely raised the ire of of todd gordon and paul Heyman and those 
the ECW, uh, I wouldn't say the fan base because only a certain amount of the fan base knew at the time, but certain fans, to, you know, more prominent fans who were involved. Um, yeah, I, I had something on Wade and I'm completely blanking, so uh, I'll move on. I'll pass it back. Bix, <laughs> what's your thoughts on uh, what Bruce is writing here? I mean, one of the things I think about it's <clears> not. It's not like directly alluded to, but it's, you know, him pointing out, yeah, it was captured on videotape. With all the shit that ends up going down on e at ECW shows, was having every single one of them preserved on videotape by Rob Feinstein and friends really worth whatever he was paying to them each year? <laughs> and like, and well, that like, JP, do you know, do you have any idea what Feinstein was paying to do the fan cams? Or I don't, as part of a larger don't. deal or whatever? I, I don't think it was a per-show thing. I did ask, and I couldn't really ascertain what it was. Rob is very aloof until you get to, like, money stuff, and then he's very, like, crafty about things. Like, when you talk to Rob, you're just like, you know, how, how is he running this business? He just seems to kind of just been like, like uh, you know, somebody who stumbled into this and happened to have a camera. But then when it comes down to, like, business stuff, he's a lot more guarded and a lot more thoughtful about it. So I was never able to, like, eke that out of him. Well, I mean, one of the things that, I mean, really goes to show what you're talking about, whatever anyone wants to say about Rob Feinstein personally or as a businessman, that dude had whoever it was, his dad, whatever lawyer they hired, draw up agreements for ECW footage rights that are still binding today and have been binding for the over 15 years since... WWE bought the rights to it out of bankruptcy court. Oh, and he's careful about it too, because I mean, technically, technically, when we made a licensing agreement to use the RF video fan cams in um in that barbed wire city, uh, we did have a very brief discussion about the fact that he he could have licensed us the actual like we could have used technically. The uh, the the regular uh, the footage, well, the TV footage. We don't have we wouldn't have had access to the raw footage. But he but even said he, he sells it still, yeah. No, I know, and he licensed it to high spots as well. Now we weren't, we didn't think it would be the best move for us, and he really didn't want to have the conversation anyway. It was like we both kind of went, maybe that's not the best idea, like really quickly, mm -hmm. um, because I don't think it would have fully benefited us with the look we had of like the the footage we had shot especially initially i mean it was just the handy cam you know we were like 19 20 years old when we started this. yeah um and we didn't have the best stuff uh by any means we didn't have any financial backing but he didn't want to he didn't want to run afoul of wwe because he had really gotten away with having this license in perpetuity you know i mean the rumor's always been that that uh that dreamer uh made sure that paul signed a piece of paper on a way out the door because by that, I mean, we're talking 01. We're talking like Paul's really screwed a lot of people, caused a lot of divorces, caused people to lose their mortgages, caused them to lose work. And one thing that Dreamer did was, in his anger, uh, make sure that Rob was taken care of. At least, and again, I want to say that is the rumor. I have no way of proving that. Well, for what it's worth, though, years ago, I talked to Bill Barons, and I forget how it came up, but I mentioned the Feinstein thing, and this was when it was more rumor before it started becoming more clear and and before you had talked about all this stuff. And he was like, based on the deals I negotiated for Rob with Smokey and USWA, he said, like, that was basically the deal that 
we signed, so I totally believe that that's what ECW had to. Yeah, that doesn't seem uh, out of line to me. It seems about right. I mean, I, I don't know what it would have been worth, but like they were so shoestring. Um, I know that there were one, once or twice in 95 uh, about like where they, they had a break with Rob over something. Yeah, Might 95, have, 96-ish. I, I think part of it was money, but part of it was just what he could and could we not do. We talked about on the show. Well, they were also yeah. clearly scapegoating him for some stuff, too. Right. But then once the once it just became a staple of the shows and part of everything, I mean, that was completely Rob's business. I mean, the existence of ROH to this day, for people who for some reason are listening to this and have no idea about ECW, and, and this is like a, a learning, uh, a complete like blank slate learning exercise for them. The reason that ROH exists today is because they needed to replace that massive part of, of their revenue that RF Video no longer had. I mean, when I first met Rob, uh, was right as ECW was folding, and they were doing good. I mean, he drove a nice car. The, the place that they worked out of was a very nice place. And then it went through a rough stretch, and then it got really good again because of the ROH training school and everything. And then after the scandal, it was like a small like storefront thing and him and some guy I'd never met before. Well, what they had was they had, you know, ICW, they had USA Pro, they had uh, Jersey All Pro. They had the local indie shows that were now starting to take off. But uh, they weren't was, selling. They weren't selling per se. You're right. What, what was going on where they were selling to certain people, then people were buying from the people that bought them from RF when they were buying from RF. I, mean, I don't even think it was that. I think it was just a matter of packaging it. That packaging well, it into ROH as kind of A, a best of the indies, and B, eventually the claiming that they that. discovered these people. Yeah, the I, King of the Indies set that up, though. But I think that, that, but that was more marketable than all the stuff they had been trying to do for a year. Because remember, like, he promoted the Jun Kasai CZW Cage of Death tape heavy. Sending it to Meltzer and all sorts, and it just it, it didn't seem like it did especially well. He was trying to make CZW thing. He tried to CZW when when I interviewed him in the summer of '01, like it became a running joke in the editing room between me and Kevin Kiernan about like, do, do you think Rob likes CZW or do you think he likes CZW? Because he, I would ask a question specific to to ECW's history. And he would just say, that's kind of the spirit that CZW has. And all. like at the time, he was like really all in on trying to make the CZW thing happen, especially the, the best of the best tournament where um, the Briscoes had that, that match where they were. Oh, because all of a sudden Rob buys a switcher and has an extra camera. And... Right, well, yeah, that's during this, the changeover to like, I remember Doug picking uh, Kevin Kiernan's brain, like my creative partner, for those who don't know who worked on uh, Barbed Wire City because he had some technical know-how and, and like Doug had never done those things. Doug had just kind of held the camera and then dubbed tapes. So yeah, they, they go through this whole process in 01 of trying to do two camera. It was kind of this like arms race between them and Smartmark Video. Well, they were both working with CZW. <laughs> like, right. And also uh, Carino's because we were able to set up camp at Rob Dimension and Steve Carino's very early um, PWF. P thank you. PWF shows. And uh, they were there was this arms race of like two camera shoots at the time, 
and then trying to get the stuff out as quickly as possible and, and you know who's going to use who for announcing and can they use both and it was a whole thing with several promotions jersey all pro jersey all pro also had Montrom. yeah there was multiple as i say there's more than one usa pro had there had, had uh, their harrington talents yeah usa pro had their in-house so there was multiple ways of watching these shows that wasn't just rf i mean you could get the, these shows from different people it should also be mentioned too that the shoot tape market again if you're younger i'm sure you probably heard this but i'll say it again to, to get my old man card we would spend 20 to 25 dollars on a tape of a guy talking basically every podcast now where, where a wrestler just tells you whatever it's all over the high spots network yeah on the zone there right that used to cost you 20 to 25 a pop until dv you know dv uh dvdrs came out and then you know it was dirt cheap yeah to get them you, from a third party during the more bootleggy era for rf and high spots you would also get the matches they were talking about too and that was nice but yeah um anyway so i guess to close this loop and get back to I mean, as far as what Bruce wrote, I mean, there's other stuff here that I didn't even, you know, include talking about, like, you know, even if he said he was 19, so what? You didn't check type of stuff. And you can't go by somebody's word. Yeah. I mean, you know, people read this on the Torch website if you never had. It's one of the better Bruce Mitchell art yes. articles. But I also understand why it put between that and Wade's reporting, it really put a target on the torches back where ECW interests were concerned, but it is really a chicken or the egg kind of thing. I think Wade felt lied to over and over again in the run up to this. So he really wanted to nail Paul on, on the specifics. And that's why he's calling around. That's why you see like, Oh, we talked to such and such a group and they said they weren't aware of this or they had just received the tape. Now I'd be very curious to find out. Um, and there, even by this point, you can tell that there's no true way to ascertain it. Uh, like when he's calling Network One or he's calling another place and they're like, we have received the tape. Well, that became a thing with ECW that, you know, Bruce or Wade were sending tapes to this place. These well, places. <laughs> that's what they, they were claiming for a while. Well, but they would also ultimately claim that they had made the company aware of this. They had kind of cold called their partners, their, 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 their partners that they were working with and said, we want to make you aware of this. We're sending this to you. I guess it's time to get to that then, isn't it? Meanwhile, on the Internet... Let the drama begin. This is far from a complete accounting of the Internet Wars of that week, but should serve as a decent summary for our purposes. Yes, I put this together, and if you want to do the legwork and search Google Groups, there's a lot more, but I kind of cut it down to the stuff that'll give you an idea of what happened without bogging it down too much. So, without further ado, Chris? All right. We begin with Wrestling Lariat editor Dave Shearer on Christmas Day, 96, in the Rec Sport Pro Wrestling News Group with the subject line, Wade Keller, please comment. First, let me apologize for not updating the webpage. I've been lazy and doing the holiday, holiday party thing. Sorry, I will be updating very regularly after the holidays. Thanks, Dave. Now, as this past weekend, request backed out of being a part of the proposed of Fairview. Your choice already backed out by requesting the corner. Fairview still had great exposure and a great chance to be successful. Last Friday, my source of request told me that they had backed out the preview due to larger new incidents. The ECW has done the quest that had questionable taste. Specifically, Eric Cools was discussing Blade John Boston last month. My source told me the incidents were brought to our attention by a wrestling newsletter writer from Minnesota. The writer explained the incidents in great depth and even told us how to get tapes when we did not know what he was referring to. The request backed out of the deal. 
I wish to ask Wakell to comment on this, as he's the only sheet writer in Minnesota that I know of. He reads RSPW. If he doesn't, I would figure this note would be forwarded to him. Way, would you please comment on this? Were you the guy in question? If so, was this an incident someone with Mark Manson interviewed a Hank Aaron and got Bill Watts fired? Happy holidays, everyone, from the staff of the Lariat. What an asshole. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah can what, what? We, I'm, I'm sorry, but can we talk about that? Okay, sure. Go ahead. Um, this is kind of what came up when I interviewed both Wade, and then I sat across from Dave and interviewed him about that. Um, what, what does he want him to comment on? He seems to be... The, the crux of the argument, from what I can tell, between them, like, Todd Gordon's was more of like, oh, you're making yourself the story, and he was blaming Bruce, whereas Dave Shearer blames um, Wade. Because I, he was told that by his source of request that a sheet writer from Minnesota was the one that pretty much knocked him out. And we'll get oh, to that, but what did they do wrong? Yeah, like, that's what a journalist does. It's not narking, you're calling for comment. Now, I know that the way their mindset was is that he did this to somehow hurt the quote-unquote cause. And if he went beyond the bounds of what Dave Shearer believes is, is uh, a journalist's job. But I, I've never been able to ascertain why or what, what, what that would be. Like, he called because it didn't even say there. Uh, according to Dave's own words there, it doesn't even say, like, well, he sent them a tape and that's somehow wrong or against some journalistic uh, ethics code or, or integrity. He's saying that Wade made them aware of it and then said, so, so basically Wade called and said, are you aware of this? And they said, no. And he said, that's odd because the owner of this company I'm calling about said you did. And they said, well, we have no idea. Where is this? What is this? I mean, I don't know if that's what they said, but I guess that's, that gets into this deep minutia and I don't think that's important to get bogged down in. I just think it's odd that he thinks that, Wade should have some solidarity to this wrestling company that he's reporting on. And the whole comment of, well, question, but really phrased in a opinionated manner is, you know, was this an instance similar to when Mark Mann had sent the interview to Hank Aaron that got Bill Watts fired? We've been over that on this very Patreon show. We did a regular show that about it, and then we did a Patreon show on all the fallout. Whatever you think of Mark Mann, Mark Mann did nothing wrong either. No. no I, I agree with that, too. I mean, he's He's calling for comment. They're asking, what are you talking about? He's making them aware of it. They're going out and even, again, to just reiterate and then shut the hell up, he, Dave Shearer is saying that all he did was tell them, well, this is what I'm talking about and this is where you would see this. They may you have know? even asked him, oh, where could we get a copy of this? Or but, he and may yeah, have I, just said, well, <laughs> they're, he may have said just something like, well, they're, they're outside video distributors selling a copy. And we don't know because his source seems like a third party on this too. You know, he's, yeah. his source sounds like somebody who was then told by somebody within the office, this is what happened. A gentleman from Minnesota called blah, 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 blah. And also, exactly. you know, some of the stuff I didn't include, I think he mentions, you know, we know Wade reads RSPW even if he doesn't usually post. And I think he said he emailed him, but Wade didn't reply or that Wade no longer replies to my emails because there was already some bullshit between them, which if I can guess, was probably not started by Wade. Uh, <laughs> so that's why he does this. But also, like, Wade, like every other sheet writer in this era, has a voicemail that you, you know, machine that is, you know, ready and waiting for you to call if it's that important that you think he's just ignoring your email. Yeah. I would and he love doesn't to mention that. 
I would love to know the full genesis of how that relationship fully deteriorated because I know that Todd Gordon subscribed to the torch. And obviously, um, Dave Shearer was a, a, a very aware of the torch. I won't say because I don't know for a fact that he subscribed to it, but I know he was very close with Todd Gordon. And I know that Todd and Paul very much courted the torch. They had the torch as guests for one of the cyber slams. Uh, and then in the summer of 90, 95, they, I think that might be the same. They, they went up there twice, though, because Bruce talks about meeting Dave and Dave Shearer and the, the, the quote-unquote bleacher bums that Dave was kind of the unofficial uh, head of. They liked that the torch was there. They liked that they were getting coverage. And then a year later, it has really escalated. And by a year and a half, which is where we're at now, like it's a very negative, I wouldn't even call it a relationship. It's just two sides. And uh, the, the Lariat people, who then become the One Wrestling people, are very much against the, the Pro Wrestling Torch people. Well, speaking of One Wrestling. Yep. Yes. Bob Ryder on December 27th chimed in. The following of the summary of the events as best as I have been able to determine. This information comes from a variety of sources, including a high-level ECW source. Following the incident revered that involved a 17-year-old rookie. <laughs> rookie. ECW officials contacted Rob Feinstein and asked him not to sell any tapes of the incident and then return all copies to the company. By the time Feinstein received the mess, he had already sold between 30 and 40 copies of the tape. Okay, I got to interrupt, by the way. Anyone who's ever dealt with RF video knows that unless it's something that they were bringing to shows, Rob never pre-dubbed anything. <laughs> anyway, carry on. All right. Uh, he said was very concerned about the incident and feared it would be the ammunition that their enemies were looking for. Uh, ECW contacted their sponsors, their affiliates, Network One, Request TV, and Viewers Choice to advise them of the incident. They were told there was an, inc an accident, it would be negative, but people were trying to blow it out of proportion. ECW informed them that things were under control, but felt it was important that they know about it up front before being informed of it from outside sources. Wade Keller, editor of Purpose of Torch, began running daily updates about the incident on the his 900 number. ECW attempted to contact Keller for several days to respond to reports and finally made contact at 5 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. Just as the torch was being finalized for publication. During an approximately hour long conversation with Keller, ECW officials explained their version of their incident and that it had been an accident. Keller asked how they planned to cover things up to keep the preview people from knowing. And ECW responded by saying they had no intention of covering anything up. And in fact, it initiated contact with their affiliates and with preview companies so they had advance warning of the situation. Keller and Bruce Mitchell did not believe ECW and proceeded to contact Request TV. They reached Hugh Panero, the president of Request TV. Panera was unaware of the situation, knew very little about ECW and the fact they were a wrestling company playing to a pay-per-view. Panera was told by, about various incidents that had taken place in ECW over the past year. Based on these conversations, Panera became aware of the tape of the incident. It's not clear exactly how Panera got a copy of the tape or if he actually saw the tape, but his first knowledge of its existence apparently came in conversations with the torch. Panera reacted by deciding to cancel the pay-per-view. ECW has not received official notification of the cancellation. No contract had been signed, but plans called for signing to take place on December 28th. He said officials received word a few days ago that the contracts would not be signed because of content. On Monday of this week, Wade Keller contacted East to begin and asked if they stood by the comments they made about informing affiliates of paper companies. He said officials once again said they informed everyone involved and offered to give Keller the names to contact people who had been advised of the problem. In the case of Request TV, the president of the company had not been informed by ECW, but their contact person in the company had been made aware of the incident. On Tuesday, Wade Keller contacted East again and said, I have good news. I have called Network One. They verified your story. They were informed. There's this... no way that's what Wade actually said. 
there's no way that it was phrased remotely like that other than maybe I called Network One and they verified your story. Yeah. But it's all right. Uh, <laughs> do you want me to wait till the, the very end, or just... yeah, let's go. Ahead. Let me go and do the whole thing. Okay, yeah. yeah. I just but I'm, this I'm time just, the... I'm turning wow. red. But yeah, I, I have a lot of comments too. So... I know, but keep going. By this time, the word and lead the interview had been canceled, and various hotlines began reporting the reason was concern about content. Like Tuesday, a note posted on RSPW from Dave Sheer that for the first time mentioned involvement with Porter Keller. Sheer outlined the basic scenario, and Escalator responded and explained his actions. Throughout the day on Christmas, more information began to become available. And on Wednesday update, Dave Meltzer said that Bruce Mitchell would have more information about the story in his Thursday update. Bruce Mitchell, a torch columnist, contributed to the Observer Hotline. His updated report on the Observer Hotline at approximately midnight late on Wednesday night. In the report, he said that he and Wade Keller have been involved in advising and request TV of the incidents and implied that they provided a copy of the tape of the mass transit incident to the Quest officials. Mitchell commented ECW should have burned the tape when they had a chance. Bench said a complete report would be in the next issue to torch, and it would be the most comprehensive accurate report he had ever filed. Observer hotline messages normally remain active 24 hours. But the Mitchell message was altered, and all reference to involvement by Mitchell or Kelly had been removed by 8 a.m. Central this morning. The message still concerned the cancellation of the pay review and still contained much of the same information as the original updates. But all reference to involvement on the part of Mitchell or Kelly had been removed. He said officials are working on the trial and repair the damage. And a representative of ECW flew to Denver for means to request TV on Thursday. There has been no comment from Wade Keller, Bruce Mitchell, any of the online services or on RSPW regarding the situation and their involvement in it. Prodigy members who sent email to Keller received a form letter response that the allegations were not true and that someone was spreading incorrect information. In a phone call to Georgia Macropolis, who had never spoken to Mitchell prior to last night, Mitchell told her that the reports were wrong and they had nothing to do with the cancellation of pay-per-view and had nothing to do with sending the tape to request TV. On this Friday, I did the Observer Hotline. Meltzer come in on the controversy and said many people on the internet were blaming Keller and Mitchell. Meltzer said they had nothing to do with the situation that they had not sent to take the request. Meltzer did not comment on whether the Mitchell update in the Observer Hotline was changed. I was told by a source very close to the situation that Meltzer is the one who instructed Mitchell to change the update. Requests officially being flooded with email from concerned ECW fans with no replies have been received yet. Wade Keller has also been receiving a number of email messages, but his reply has been a form letter and not responsibility. It's just some people waiting for the rest of the story. That's about as much as I know. If I get more information, I'll post it. Bob Ryder, Prodigy Wrestling. Okay. I think before we talk, you should read the next one, because that's short and adds to this. Okay. Four days later, Bob Ryder, New Year's Eve. Man, I'll teach the guys half line. In my reporting of the events that led to the decision by Request TV to cast the East of Fairview, I say that Wade Keller and Bruce Mitchell provided the tape of the mass trans incident to official Request TV. That turns out not to be the case. Request officials do not have a copy of the tape. My comments on the matter were based on my interpretation of the Wrestling Observer Hotline report filed by Bruce Mitchell at midnight on December 25th, 26th, a report that was pulled only a few hours after it went active. I apologize for the error, Bob Ryder. <laughs> do I need to continue or are we stop? I here? mean, I'm thinking about it. Um... I think we should have taken notes, Bix. <laughs> well, okay. First of all, yeah, let's, let's stop here because I'm just I just scroll down. We need. I mean, we'll there's stuff we have to talk. There's stuff that's gonna be addressed that we're gonna talk about now in the next part. But it's like there's still other stuff we have to look into. First of all, Georgie never talked to Bruce before that night, even though they were both on the Observer Hotline. 
Remind people who Georgie Amacropolis was. Georgie Amacropolis, longtime fan, did the old Bulletins, worked for different I mean, magazines. a long time fan. I mean, but going are... back to, like, early Bruno era at the it, it, yeah, like late. Bruno San Martino fan club? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For those of you that, you know, follow my Twitter account, you notice that I post a lot of 60s wrestling magazine stuff. She's heavily involved in the fan clubs in the 60s. Yes. Lots of Georgie Ann pictures and in the in the uh in the magazines as well with, with wrestlers. And in this era, she's doing the Wrestling Chatterbox newsletter, which is more of just like a lighthearted fan publication. Yes. And she also was on the Observer Hotline and I you know, God rest her soul, I don't say this as a negative thing about her was also fairly well known to be the person giving the toll-free backdoor for the Observer Hotline number to a ton of people in wrestling. <laughs> um, there's no way she and Bruce had never... I mean, you know, we can ask Bruce. I, I, That just sticks out as weird that those people and, never and I like that's one thing that, I like that's one thing you take away from that the most. <laughs> but why... That's not, but why... I don't even get why he's mentioning that. I just... I was thinking about that when I was scrolling back through it now, but... I mean, and also... I. Who would have tipped Bob off to call again? And I mean, I, I mean, and I maybe not, you know, in a way that he would have taken, you know, I don't, I, I'd be shocked if it was anyone else who told Bob that there was a message recorded, probably not in a malevolent way at all, but who else would have told Bob that there was a new message? But who changed, who, who? Made the call to change the message. I mean, we'll get to that. The short version is that I believe new information came in several hours later, so Bruce recorded it to update it. I mean, Bruce never bragged about anything. You know, I mean, we'll get into that more. Not like and it may also, have even been. Uh, I think they talked about this within the last two years. Uh, you know, post the documentary uh, on one of their audio on one of the torch audios, and I think Wade might have actually called. Bruce and said, oh, you screwed up this and this. There were like small little details. Oh, there was something he fact-checked, so he was like, hey, why don't you Right, and they it? wouldn't have affected the overall thing, but Wade's big thing was this has a lot of attention on it. I don't want, and smartly, by the way, it was like two little things that didn't change the bigger picture, but it was like, I want to be spotless as far as the reporting goes. Yeah, and now, and you would know this better than me, though, Bruce didn't do any of the reporting call requests, right? In the first place. No, and that's always funny, too. I still hear people who will say to me, uh, like, oh, well, what kind of reporter is Bruce because blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, he's not a reporter at all. He's a columnist. He wrote exactly. a column. He did the hotline update, but that was based on Dave and Wade's reporting. And very rarely has he ever done – I mean, the closest he's come in the last few years, and, and I wouldn't even necessarily call that straight-up reporting, is he did – more of an investigative reporting column on the situation with CWF and uh, and um, my buddy Brad Stutz. But that wasn't even, I wouldn't call that reporting. I mean, like, he, I mean, the way he framed a lot of that stuff was like kind of like, this is the rumor going around, but it's like mm -hmm. he never really factually stated that any of that was what went, what happened. So, I mean, yeah. Right, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't know what you would call it, but it, it's not what a, a newspaper journalist does, and, and he would never claim it as such. And I mean, and quite frankly, as Bruce has alluded to on this very show, like, I don't I don't even think Bruce necessarily thinks that the rumors that he addressed in that article are necessarily the truth. 
No, he he um he doesn't. He was right. trying to play it down. <laughs> See, this is so funny. I thought I was going to walk into a situation where I had to be careful about some things with the subject matter, and and this is something I know very intimately that I have to be careful with. Um, yeah. Um, I I feel in some ways like not to put words in 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 Bruce's mouth, but that if he had a do over, he would have written that article a little differently. But he was trying to be fair to all parties involved. Right. So, so like, and then nobody was completely happy. But, but he was point, trying. The point is, regardless, is that that's not a thing he does generally, is report. Right. Yeah. Right. So, like, it, I always thought it was so weird, like, that he gets roped into this really at all. Because all he did was the hotline update and the column, both of which were relying on what Dave and Wade reported. And he still, to this day, has to address some people who, who say, oh, you sent a tape. Like, people who know better. I mean, didn't, you know, Bob just said, like, oh, I was wrong about that. Right. He didn't, and he didn't even make the call, not that there was anything wrong with making the call. Right. Which is something that Wade says in, in the, the documentary. He <laughs> says, it wouldn't have been wrong had I done this. Oh, uh, this dog is going nuts. Go ahead. I'm going to take this dog yeah. out. Please. Uh, is this okay, Frank so- Shamrock? <laughs> You're talking about Dave. <laughs> oh, Missy, Missy, hold on a second. Okay, before, so, I, before I jump away, just for one second, and I'll be quick. Um, this whole thing starts out with I just want to read you this, and this is the way that this is presented from Bob Ryder. Uh, this is a quote from Bob at the beginning of this thing that that you just read. ECW was concerned about the incident and feared it would be the ammunition that their enemies were looking for. Their enemies. enemies. This is very much written. By by whether it be Heyman or Gordon or some combination of the sword, this is very much an ECW uh, uh, per- permitted. There's a better word for it, but this is very much an ECW slanted article because they of certainly course. didn't call Keller or 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 Bruce Mitchell. I mean, it's very House of Organy because it's Bob Ryder yeah. and Dave Shearer. Exactly, <laughs> they're they're the House Organ of ECW. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're more of a house organ for ECW than anyone could even try to claim that Meltzer has been for like all elite or anything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they were the Cyber Slam. You know, ninety six was pro, all Prodigy, Bob Ryder, Prodigy Wrestling. <clears throat> I mean, other stuff that they were doing was Prodigy related, Bob Ryder, and of course, OneWrestling.com was founded by Bob Ryder and Joey Styles. Who kept his involvement secret basically until he sold it. Exactly. Or not long before he sold his staff. So, yes. Oh, and, and don't forget that, I mean, they were doing it on their own until the TNN era. And then, you know, Shearer claims he stopped reporting on ECW by that point. But Shearer and Ryder also started EC, the ECW website. ECWWrestling.com. Yep. <clears throat> Which is a year after this, but still. Um... And enemies, too. Like, okay, who did the ECW have that they consider their enemies other than what, Dennis Corluzo? <clears throat> uh, and, well, he's the main one. But Dennis's name never comes up in any of this. Cornette's not an enemy. Or, not really. Not at this point. I mean, not really. <clears throat> um, I mean, they're talking yeah. about they're talking about Wade and Bruce, really. They're yeah. not saying it exactly. Well, the writer, I should say, is not saying it exactly, but that's who he means. And the torch had a great relationship with BCW. Yes. 
And it was funny to mention, you know, of course, that their relationship with ECW would become even greater. <laughs> well, okay, well, okay, so I kind of want to say this for once. Uh, JP's done <clears throat> taking care of the dog, but I never thought of it this way until really I was putting together the notes. But I know Wade frames it as just that it was getting more popular, but... How much does this have to do with uh, Jason Powell taking over ECW coverage? I'm sure a lot of it did. It has to. Like, I don't see any way yeah. it couldn't. Absolutely. Because then you have this new guy, <laughs> this you know, who was Wade not had part of the other stuff. baggage. Yeah. Not yeah. and again, yeah. not that Wade did anything wrong, but it no. was for the best still to be able to put a new face on the ECW coverage. Well, because the torch readers. Or ECW uh, apologists, you know, would think that Wade has some type of bias towards ECW. <clears throat> so, which you know what, smart move by Wade, smart move by Wade to put somebody on the on the on the beat that was not involved in any of this stuff. <clears throat> there was no preconceived bias mm. on their part, and. Although, I mean, really, the Torch always had better ECW coverage because he, I mean, maybe it wasn't like more... that we was going to get. No. No. Jason, Jason full time. If you are interested in ECW history, especially, I mean, even just for that era, the Torch is the definitive document. Yes. Not the Observer. <clears throat> yes. Once Jason Powell gets on board, absolutely. <clears throat> Yes. Absolutely. And I don't think Jason gets nearly enough credit for that either. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. So, yeah, that was so that's pretty wild stuff there. Um, but what we still got way more to go. Now we go to Bob Ryder two days later, January 2nd, 97. <clears throat> There's been a great deal of discussion here and elsewhere about the apology to Wade Keller that I posted. The apology to Wade Keller was posted on Prodigy and RSPW was limited to the issue of whether the torture by the tape to request TV. Oh, brother. Requ <clears throat> when requests issued an official statement saying they did not have a copy of the tape, it seemed only the fair thing to me to do. Some people have interpreted the apology to be a validation of Wade Kill and Bruce Mitchell blameless in the situation. I remain convinced that Wade Kill and Bruce Mitchell went beyond their role as reporters in the situation, and that Mitchell in particular should answer the question. And by the way, he does put reporters in quotes. Yes. <laughs> I have several problems with how the entire situation developed. The first indication that there was any involvement from Keller came in a note from on RSPW phone, Dave Shearer. Dave asked Keller to respond to a rumor that Keller contacted request, contact request TV. And his con contact prompted the eventual cancellation of the pay-per-view. Keller's been selling the issues of his reports on his hotline and in the torch. Keller's complained bitterly to friends and others in the business that he had been unfairly treated. But it's been nine days since controversy broke on RSPW, and Keller has not responded online. Keller responded privately in email to various individuals with a form letter saying people should wait for the whole story to come out. Apparently, Keller feels only tour subscribers are entitled to the whole story, quote-unquote. <clears throat> Keller has not had a problem in posting RSPW before. He's told readers that there that they should never believe anything they hear until they hear from him himself or Dave Meltzer. When given the opportunity to clear things up, Keller refutes to comment. Most baffling point in this entire controversy is the Bruce Mitchell hotline message from last Thursday. A source who split to Mitchell tells me Mitchell received a call at home from Keller, instructing him around 3 a.m. to unchange the message. The version of the update that I heard, Mitchell made comments such as somebody had to stop them, quote-unquote, <clears throat> once they saw the tape and decided to cancel. And ECW should have burned the tape when they had a chance. Quote, or, quotes were paraphrased from memory. 
They're telling the message was boastful and gleeful, and Mitchell's not hesitant to talk about the important role that he and Wade Killer played in the cancellation of the pay-per-view. Mitchell has a history of making reckless statements regarding Stoneman's hotline reports. He reported several months ago to Sports Channel Philadelphia, canceled ECW television show the complaints from Gino Moore. Well, there's another, there's another enemy. About his being named ECW Fan of the Month, he didn't report that Sports Channel had changed their mind. It turns out the show was never canceled. Mitchell wrote a column on the, uh, in the August 3rd, 1960 torch, titled The Extreme Problem. The heavily criticized promotion is fans using the words like forest, jerks, clowns, freaks, creepy, pathetic, selfish status, and sadomasochistic. Excuse me. Bruce Mitchell's hardly an unbiased journalist, quote unquote. Bob Ryder, Prodigy Wrestling. This is completely transparent blame <clears throat> shifting of, of an incident. <laughs> like, it's, this is really, uh, I haven't read this in years. This is insane to me. And Bruce um, Mitchell, well, no, he's not an unbiased journalist. He's a columnist. Right. <laughs> he's an opinion columnist, yes. Um, <clears throat> by the way, I did read, hey, I was an ECW fan during this period. I would have been about to be 16 years old and going to shows at this point. And I'm reading this Boris, jerks, clowns, freaks, creepy, pathetic. Uh, first of all, it's out of context. But second of all, I'm going, yeah, I've been to the ECW arena. <laughs> there you go. That's about right. Um. yeah this is yeah this i'm i mean this is really transparent i i don't know why he thinks that he's he's pretending it's for everybody but that that he like he's like why why doesn't um wade keller respond to me but he but he says like on this board but he really means to me um why does wade have to respond to anything that that a guy on a message board says. Now, granted, this is 1996 internet, and it's a much smaller community, and people do know each other, but it's just, I don't think either of them are being reckless. They're just pointing out well, things. Even if Bob they were Ryder just like, I don't like it. Either. No, I mean, Bob Ryder is a guy who, you know, he runs the Prodigy Wrestling Service, which is a huge deal at this time. Mm-hmm. So he he is kind of a different, it's not like, you know, just some random scrub. I mean, Bob Ryder is a name guy in the wrestling, an online wrestling fan community. He's a big deal. As, as is Dave Shearer. As is Dave Shearer, exactly. Who are not, and we should make clear, who are not at this point working together. Um, not together, no. That would, that would come in August. Of, of, or at least the launch of OneWrestling.com would come in August. I don't know... Pre that, I know they knew each other because Bob would do the Prodigy play-by-play from the building, from yes. the W Arena uh, live. And Dave was may or may not have also been sitting up uh, in the the purchase. They were together because they would be mentioned together on commentary by Joey Styles talking about Bob Ryder and Dave Shearer here, you know, for the uh, for the online chats and whatever. Yeah, I know that they were, but wasn't that when one wrestling started? I don't. I just don't. No, it's ninety six. Okay. He would bring. Okay. I mean, Shearer claims that I think they weren't. He wasn't working with Bob yet, but that Bob would call him up to participate in the chats. Yeah, yeah, they weren't. I mean, they weren't working together together, but they were just there together. They, they were I mean, friends of. It would be like when I would go down to CWF. I made several friends who yeah. would then kind of like work on projects involving CWF with me. Like they were in that community. And and I have no I'm not throwing any shade at, at that for the record. Yeah. And also you gotta remember too, because you know, the web in terms of wrestling news is not big yet. I mean, I don't know how many people are on RSPW, but 
RSPW, in a sense, then, is like your wrestling crossover audience among the different online services because you can access it in some form from every service. AOL had been... I thought AOL started in 96 with Usenet access, but apparently it was 93. So you got access to it from all the different online services. Like, this is this is their big audience. There's a reason that Bob Ryder is doing this here and not on Prodigy. Also of importance... For people who don't know, the 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 Cyber Slam show of ECW that I referenced because it was partly a a quote unquote convention. They had like a Q and A thing with all the wrestlers that always culminated with Paul Heyman. Um, Bob Ryder would do like live commentary on that, uh, like like live typing out like what was being said. That was originally an RSPW convention. Um. Loud, louder, and I don't mean this again to be derisive, but like louder fans on RSPW were like, we should have a convention and we want it to be with our promotion. And that was ECW. And um, that convention was run until the last year, I believe, by, um, by a gentleman named Tom Misnick. But Dave Shear could have run it. He just didn't want to. And that's something that I believe he personally said to me. <clears throat> So there's there's deep ties is what I'm saying. Like this RSPW isn't just some random message board in 1996. Yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's your hub. It's your Twitter for hardcore wrestling fans who are like knowledgeable enough to be on the internet and know how to use it. But they're also a lot of them are very active people yeah. who go to make money in in and around wrestling. Or some who were like I don't know if he still was at this point. You know, Mark Marrow would post there. Um, trying to think who else in like the big two were. I'm trying uh, to blank. Not not big two, but uh, a guest on 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 this podcast, uh, Dave Prezak, yeah. I believe. I mean, yeah, you're. That's a good point. Like, it is kind of the wrestling Twitter of the <clears throat> era, and that would that would really change. Like, I would say, I mean, in '97, after this whole thing kind of blows over, is when I think the AOL users kind of really start to take over RSPW, and then. RSPWM, the moderated RSPW starts, and everything kind of splinters from there. And, and Prodigy falls apart, too. Yeah, so Prodigy doesn't have its strong fi- form anymore. AOL's Grandstand, which was their, you know, AOL-hosted, you know, hardcore wrestling. Well, it was their sports forms, which included a wrestling section that was, like, their hardcore wrestling fan section. That goes by the wayside, I want to say late 97, early 98. So... I mean, RSPW, until you get, like, your social media factions, is really the most universal gathering place you have. Because, I mean, for people who don't know what news groups are, news groups were, like, you know, a standardized protocol for basically kind of message boards that could be, that that you could access via news servers that different ISPs had. And, I mean, they still exist, but these days it's basically... I mean, I haven't looked in a while. It's basically because the, you know, the news groups that you can upload files to, it's not like anyone's really monitoring them. So you can do piracy to your heart's content. But there you go. So I love that he felt like he had to do this asshole-ish, like, I apologize, but only for that. <laughs> well, he obviously very, you know, he very much felt um, a part of, the ECW community. Let's put it that I think that that's like the fairest, most unbiased thing that you can say is that he felt like they were being attacked and he wanted to be a mouthpiece for 
essentially the de facto ECW side. He's their public uh, voice, yes, other than a company voice. Well, and Shear, too. But sure. we sh- and we should also make clear, like, even though there's no one wrestling yet, and his wrestling thing officially is that he runs Prodigy Section, which was he was that like a paid role? Was that actually his job, or was that more of a volunteer thing that he made into a bigger thing than it was? I don't know. I think initially it was volunteer, and like I, I, I again, I try to be very transparent with these things. Uh, uh, I did not speak to to Bob because by the time I came back to the documentary in early 2012, Bob was a um, a paid employee of TNA slash Impact. Um, and, and higher up, as I recall, um, uh, I believe from what I've been told, Bob started as, as just somebody on the internet who volunteered to do that. And then it slowly became, cause he moved from, I think AOL, the prodigy or prodigy to AOL cause he got a better deal. Part, partially the deal involved like how it was formed and, and like interface and how people could interact, but uh, also, I think he may have gotten some compensation. His main job up until he starts, and even during OneWrestling.com, is that he is a he runs a company that he does most of the work, if not all the work on. Travel which agency, was, yeah. Thank you. It's a travel agency, right? And I believe if he's not the singular employee, that I mean, you had like maybe one, maybe two other people, right? And it was ECW's travel agency too, and they ended up owing him money. Yes. Yes, as time goes on, he gets very, even more and more involved with, with ECW. Yeah. Whew. All right. Uh, now let's move on further. <clears throat> oh, it gets better. <clears throat> now we have an extra for reply to writer by Torch columnist John D. Williams. <clears throat> How about me ask you some questions? Perhaps you can answer them here on RSPW. Number one, what's specific, what's specific, uh, what specifically did Keller and Mitchell do that went beyond their role as reporters? Specifics, please, Bob. Number two, what specific rule, code, or ethic of reporting did they violate or go beyond? Again, Bob, specifics. Not your own humble opinion. If you're calling someone to the map for something, you need to define for us what it is, clearly. And the reason you do that, because there was nothing. <laughs> and there was no response by a rider either. I um, I, from what that what I could find, no. Not to that. And part one So of the that should tell the story. Yeah, and yeah. one of the reasons is only an excerpt. I mean... It, Besides that some of the other stuff just kind of re- was rehashed, too, was that if you haven't seen how quoting worked on news groups back then, I could not have pasted more than excerpts of this post to make it make sense or without rehashing stuff from a writer post. But anyway, um, I think now we should get into Wade's side of this, which he did not give in depth until 2006 after the... Uh, <laughs> Rise and Fall of ECW book had come out, which there's a lot more. And if you Google, I think it's still on the Torch website for free. But what I put in the notes was basically everything that's directly relevant to what we're talking about here. All right. So here's way 10 years later. Both top executives are requesting being viewers to have said not only did they, did, not, said they not only didn't see the tape, but they and their invite in their offices received the tape. Heyman told me on Monday, December 23rd, that he had never dealt with requesting President Panero, but consistent, continued to insist. Request TV was sent a tape. <clears throat> For the record, Request TV was sent a tape. New Incident was aware of the situation, Heyman said that day. You didn't corroborate your story. However, Panero, the previous Friday, was defending the Matone when he said not only did anyone sit in the company receive a tape, but no one ever even called them, which Heyman also swiftly told me he did. 
<clears throat> nobody appreciated it. We called our people and said, be aware of this controversial incident. Don't be blindsided. This comes up later. It's a stretch of the imagination. If they're saying they provide us with a tape, let us know these incidents. We never see the tape. Heyman told me regarding this controversy. In the three and a half years I've been running ECW, I've told you to assume everything I say is a lie and to verify it. Seek the truth and verify. As long as you're not malicious in your intent, I expect you to be a journalist before being my friend. I expect that. What a caveat there, by the way. As <laughs> long I, as you're not malicious in your intent, and then also I expect <laughs> you to be a journalist before being my friend. <laughs> and then he tells him, says everything I say is a lie. <laughs> At least he's honest. About being a liar. <laughs> About being a liar. That's not the story of Tony ECW wrestlers, though. I received a phone call on Christmas Eve from Taz. I read that I supposedly meddled and called CCW Cybertine to build pay-per-view. An angry New Jack also called. Uh-oh, that's what you don't want. I remember being shaken up with visiting my family that night the next day. I'm sure he was when New Jack called him. <clears throat> the torch of him made the scapegoat for CCW, losing his dream of being on pay-per-view. Few were concerned themselves with the details, such as the fact that viewer's choice had already turned out ECW weeks earlier due to controversial content, not related to the coolest incident. And Heyman did not let his wrestlers or the media know that. Well, Heyman wait, 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 wait. Regardless of New Jack being New Jack, <clears throat> I, I'd be shocked if Taz was not the one who threatened to beat him up. Like, te of the two, who's going to be more likely to be the one to, that would be threatening to beat up Wade? I believe yeah, that, but I believe that's absolutely true, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah you think he did do it. He did do okay. it, too. Okay. I think that that's like a public thing. Like, I don't think that's just something I was told in person by... by okay. Uh, yeah, um, but it, you, you can believe Taz would do it, but New Jack's not a level. <laughs> I'd be more New Jack who had been thing. friendly be with Keller too. I'd be more scared of New Jack. <laughs> oh, I would be more scared of New Jack too, but like you also have to remember New Jack had been friendly with Wade. Yes. And you also don't know where the you know, I'm not gonna take it on a whole personal experience thing because like you know, we got more a lot more to get to, but I I've experienced this myself and I can say that from from viewing others, like it's so hard to tell where gimmick begins and ends with Jack. I mean, uh, Jack, within the last year and a half, has been in the same room with Bruce Mitchell and known it and been fine. And now, yeah, but Jack's also aged. He's not it, the same guy. And in fairness, yeah, it has been years. But, like, I don't think in 1997, say by, like, June, that Jack is trying to physically assault Bruce Mitchell. Let's put it that way. <clears throat> I, mean, I believe that Jack is saying that he would, but I don't think he actually would. I believe that's a lot of like crazy like a fox. You don't know whether I'm going to zig or zag kind of stuff. In well, my I don't know. Yeah, it's not. It's look, it's an opinion. It's not, it's not provable one way or the other on my half. Well, also, I mean, New Jack is the one who can, could end up getting scapegoated on the ECW side. Well, I don't even know if scapegoat is the right word. <coughs> he does have a legitimate responsibility in it. But if there, someone I ends up getting fired in ECW, it's New Jack. I think he, over the years, began to feel that way once he's not on said first pay-per-view. And it's blamed on, uh, you know, like Request TV and Viewer's Choice. But over, over time, I think he felt that that was more of a power thing over him by Heyman than it, than it was a true thing that they had asked or said. Well, let's not forget as well that Jack was also, <clears throat> right after JYD had you know, died, was also kind of getting blamed for his death mainly because people were saying that Jack had, you know, sent people to run him off the road. What? 
I know he bullied him for the money owed, and I know yeah, that he bullied him for the money. Yeah, and that's yeah. you saw him at that show you were at. That, yeah, that made, that's what happened backstage. Right, right. You can see like a small bandage or some Vaseline or something on JYD's face from having to close up the cut that New Jack caused during the legend ceremony. Yes. So Jack's Jack. That's all I can say. All right, back to this. Heyman portrayed this at the time as basically one of the many bumps in the road, but only when it went public. Yet behind the scenes, the torch was being blamed. A fan helped a sign on Raw that said, Keller fears ECW. Our man spoke about the controversy in his WCW 900 Hotline Report. <clears throat> Internet website, some run by people also work for ECW in various capacities, travel bookings, ECW website reporting. Spread the word that the torch has been dead against ECW and stuck its nose where it didn't belong. Talking about you, Bob Ryder and Dave Scherer. In fact, even before the torch poured the story, rival reporters of conflicts of interest were tipped off by people in ECW that a torch had called preview companies to cause problems. Those reporters were quitting the bottom of the story, eager to try to make the torch the target of the venom of angry ECW fans who were excited about ECW taking that next step. Because the torch wasn't online yet, most people coming on torch's involvement hadn't even received in the mail yet the cover story detailed the situation. Conjecture, speculation, outright falsehoods fanned by the competitors of the torch who also were FCW made the torch escape go just as Heyman did 10 years later in the recent pub- recently published book. By the time the actual torch cover story was in the hands of the subscribers, the story had taken on a life of its own. Any thoughts, JP? Uh, I will only add that I remember reading this when it, when it first came out, and it is remarkably similar to everything he had said five years before to me uh, when I interviewed him in Las Vegas. So I... I tend to believe it. He's been remarkably consistent <clears throat> and detailed, and nothing seems out of whack or, or it's it's just not like a lot of the other quotes that we read uh, from from certain personnel on this that are just kind of like out of nowhere or like I dare you to find this or or we actually do this and it was something that's over the top. He's very consistent, and it's it's this he's. Wade is very passionate about this because he felt like he did the best job he could possibly do. And he takes what he does very seriously and he got attacked for it and it continued for years. And I think it's always bothered him that he doesn't feel completely cleared by it. I mean, by now he probably doesn't care, but in 06, he still cared. And that's a great point because like he did do a great job. <laughs> like, Well, this would be like him getting attacked for, I mean, this is one of a handful of things where they did an amazing job, the Benoit being the other one. But I think the biggest one in some ways for the torch was uh, the, the McMahon trial, the steroid trial. And I think this, the only thing that would have been worse than getting attacked for that is this story, which is why it's always really stuck with him. Yes. I mean, and I think it also doesn't help that those people then very, within a year of this, became competitors of his on a new medium. Which, you know, he wasn't on yet. Right, I mean, the Lariat exists, but the Lariat is still largely, like, literally, oh, they're not fair about ECW, let's start our own newsletter. Which had come, I believe, more from what Meltzer had written after going to the arena. Yeah, and Dave says that publicly. Dave Shearer says publicly that he felt that Meltzer... He and Todd Gordon often talked about how they felt Meltzer was unfair to them. And yeah, when he went to the arena and what he reported and some of the the, the arguments I've heard him make, which I wish I could remember offhand, but they're very they're very Davisms that people criticize Dave about to this day. 
about giving you like a piece of something and giving his opinion in it and not really kind of fleshing out the whole thing. Um, and, but yeah, that's what led to the latter. Absolutely. <clears throat> Vix, any more thoughts? Um, I, yeah, that is, would be an interesting thing overall to think about like what overall are like the best pieces of reporting that Wade did. I mean, you know, and with the, the trial, for example, I believe Wade's the only one that was there for the whole thing. I think, you know, Bruce was yeah. there for, I think... Two to three days. Yeah, a few days. I think Meltzer was there for about a, a half of it, like a week. But Wade's the only one who went for the whole thing, as far as wrestling reporters. And he did a phenomenal <laughs> job. Like, I've seen some of the transcripts, and it's like, I haven't compared it in depth. Wade did a just ridiculous job of being able to take notes of that time. Like, it's amazing how much substance he got in just taking notes in real time. It, it should also be noted that this is the complete dissolution of Heyman and Keller speaking on a professional basis. Yes, and okay. Ab well, and absolutely a private basis. But at this point, and you've mentioned this, uh, Bix, you might go, like, this is where somebody else is hired to then speak to him. Because the two of them, one will say Heyman didn't want to speak to him anymore. I know Dave Shears said that to me when I interviewed him, that, that Heyman wouldn't talk to him anymore. And I know that Wade has told me that he no longer wanted to deal with him off of this situation. And that's why Jason Powell was then hired. Well, uh, we were talking about this earlier when you were go going to take care of the dog that I was going to ask you, like, how much of it was that? Because you look at the timeline, clearly it has to be a big part of why Jason's brought on. But, you know, I think... Last time I saw Wade talk about it, it was more that he felt like it was a part of his business that was getting so big that it was best to have someone doing dedicated coverage. But also, I mean, you know, he clearly he told you in that interview that this was also an issue, too. Well, both are true, but I think it leans a lot. I think the decision was made heavily because he needed somebody to talk to cover things like ECW, things that were not because at this point also. The Monday Night Wars are ramping up to a degree where Wade really does want to spend a little more time on the phone with uh, with uh, with Bischoff or other WCW people, I'm sure, or whoever he can get in the WWF. Because at that time, he did have a good amount of sources there. Um, and I think Jason, because I interviewed them the same, I don't know if it was the same day, but the same weekend. We flew out to Las Vegas. We, we borrowed like $1,000, two dopey 20-year-olds. Um, and we got a crappy uh, motel room and they were at a nice, a nice one. It was, uh, Mitchell had vouched for me already to both Keller and to Dave Meltzer. And this was the weekend, like September 21st, 22nd in there of 2001 when uh, UFC was actually supposed to go back on pay-per-view. Uh, they had just been recently purchased by Zufa. So I thought I'm getting all the journalists. I had developed a, a relationship, a friendship with Mitchell at this point because he had met with us and we had given him an interview or he was nice enough to give us an interview, I should say. So he trusted us. He saw we were doing good work. He knew that we were like younger guys who didn't really have any connections to anything. Uh, I wanted to speak to these people. Unfortunately, Meltzer was going through a personal situation that actually ended up being the fact that he was finding out that his girlfriend was about was going to have a child. I shouldn't say about you, but that she was pregnant, which is his son now. Um, that's how that works. <laughs> and uh, so I got 
Was that? <laughs> I would hope so. Right, right. <laughs> well, I realized in saying that, I'm like, that's an awkward way to say that, John. All right. <laughs> uh, he, will be, he'll, he will be playing the part of his son now. Um, so, yeah, I got Jason and Keller the same weekend, and they pretty much told me the same thing, which was that, you know, well, uh, again, it could be specific because I was there to talk about ECW, that they were like, yeah, that was a major reason. I am sure that uh, Jason was brought on for other reasons, but they both specifically say, like, oh, yeah, I had to talk to to uh, to Paul Heyman. And, and Jason actually says that in, in dealing with Heyman's bullshit, that at times he would just start singing over over uh Heyman like filibustering um that that song glory glory hallelujah I don't remember the name of it but he claims he would sing that to, to Heyman as kind of a bullshit detector because Heyman was very personable and friendly with these guys like that quote where he says like more than being your friend uh you know you have to treat me like a, a subject or whatever he says there so like he wanted these guys to feel like we're buddies all right, now let's go to the week of December 3rd, 96. Torch cover date, January 4th, 97. Observer cover date, January 6th, 97. Start with a torch. Cover story. Request TV said they're still interested in ECW. Request president says better for ECW future. The controversies are being addressed now, not later by Wade Keller, Torch editor. <clears throat> the president requests TV, the country's largest preview carrier, so he wants to work out the problems of ECW that caused him to back out of their partnership two weeks ago. Two days before Christmas, requests Hugh Panera told the Torch he had informed ECW is pretty much final. They're not carrying on pay-per-view. Now, one week later, he said he's going to talk and work out the problems. And there said the reason everything was suddenly put on hold regarding the preview is that they had not been notified of past controversial incidents, and they felt each and every responsibility to let them know a potential public relations problem. These people, each and every, have to be upfront and honest. <clears throat> Panera tells the torch. We need to know how they're going to make sure everything is everything, everyone wrestling is 18 or older, but they'll show them a birth certificate. They need to control the use of their foreign objects. They maybe need to show us their scripts. He says ECW is not being held to a special standard. An example, he cites requests TV's refusal to carry an OJ Simpson review that had been offered, and there are controversies with similar foreign entertainment USC in past years. He says such controversy is not reserved for pay-per-view either. We signed the controversy with WFA such as the gun angle on Raw. USA never read them. WF thought the riot act when that happened. They promised USA not to do that sort of thing again or be kicked off the network. He elaborates on USC. I did the same thing with the combat sports people. Panero says, they came out with no rules. I said, we're not going to put you on the air unless we have some rules. And those people then got very professional, and they basically sent us a list of rules. They have doctors now in the whole thing. It got to the point where we got comfortable showing the event. The combat sports people tried to take advantage of all the bad publicity, but when the uproar got too great, they came up with a long list of rules. They now have rules, and they have lobbyists with lobby legislature. The same thing would happen with these people if they would just step up and respond. These other people need to respond to these issues, and they can work stuff out. Panero had been involved in the day-to-day negotiation with ECW before the controversy. Let's now learn more about ECW. We now understand it is a combat sports, but it's more like WF and WCW, but more violent theater. And the assurances that the kind of theatrics that they are doing is done competent. They are used to being a small local event. If they want to become a national event, we need to do our homework on them. We have not ruled out carrying them, but we need to know they are self-regulated. ECW's <clears throat> writer Paul Heyman confers with a torch. ECW is still talking to request TV. We're in negotiations to clear preview from March 30th for April 13th. Negotiations are ongoing. These instances have more things to the table. It's just another day in the office. That's it. He does not want to comment on the controversy regarding his role in informal requests about the incident. Prefer to look ahead rather than dwell on past controversy. The narrative source is better for each that this issue came up now, not later after the day of the event had been locked in and publicity had already gone out. For the longevity, CW is a national entity. These issues need to be dealt with now, Panero says. 
<clears throat> we need to know that what they do, they do well. We need to know up front how they're going to do that. <clears throat> ECW has step up if they want to be big time, respond to this, and maybe impose a rating code. They need to discuss this up front. It's not in there our interest to be running a national event and have a 17-year-old get maimed with a national pay review. How are they going to prevent that? We need to know that. It could have been an accident or a fluke. WCW, though, run an enormous number of events. They spend time training their wrestlers to be sure they can pull off their stunt. ECW has a show they do the same. But there says he understands the promotions evolve, and ECW is a young upstart. When they started out on Channel 9 in New York, people were blading one another. They fall to the point where these people became cartoon characters, and they didn't have to do that. I've been watching this stuff for years. They don't do much of that blading anymore. Actually, the big two don't do it at all. Obviously, they don't need to. These people, ECW, they, they have... Uh, differentiated a niche by being a little more graphic. Panero says he received about 40 emails last week from ECW fans that said with the cancellation of plans to carry the event. He'd also been following some of the controversy on the internet. Reports on the internet blamed the torch for ECW's problems and requests saying the torch made the news rather than reported it. The phone call to request an issue had been characterized by some as spilling the beans on the Revere incident. The national tone of the call was acquired by the review date. Became a major topic of debate on the internet before anyone even received last week's issue of the torch containing the initial reports. <clears throat> it got to the point that fans attending ECW events of the weekend were spreading the word that the torch cost ECW their pay per view. The issue became so widespread that Mark Manager addressed the torch involvement on January 1st, WCW 900 hotline update, and a fan up assigned the crown on Live Monday on December 3rd, which read Keller Fears ECW. I find this whole thing almost childish, Panero says. The issue with this pay ECW would just address the issues rather than inciting their cult falling over this. ECW should not be sitting down saying, what are the issues here? These people are familiar with us. They now are aware of some of the problems we have had at individual, individual events. We should demonstrate how we're not going to let that happen again, how we're going to control some of the actors to avoid that in the future. There's been a lot of concern within ECW and discussion around the industry that someone sabotaged ECW's relationship by sending them a tape. Technically a moot point, since ECW's Paul Heyman was on record saying he sent them a tape. Panero said no one sabotaged the event. When asked if he... <clears throat> Excuse me, scroll down too far. Had thoroughly checked, and it's 100% sure nobody would request receive the tape from ECW or anyone else. He said, No, none of my people. I think they received the demo tape earlier, but that tape was from ECW. It didn't have the Revere incident in it. We never see the tape of the incident from anybody. If people think ECW sends the tape and let us know about this problem, that's not true. No, we didn't receive a tape, and we didn't get instructions from them warning us about the incident. Panera issued a press release to internet news providers on December 31st, New Year's Eve, which stated, we were surprised, he said, we never mentioned that these public relations problems existed. And contrary to the claims made by ECW, no tape of the incident was sent to anyone to request TV. <clears throat> Panera told the torch, us not getting tape may have been a bureaucratic follow-up on ECW's part, but we were not sent a copy of the incident for public relations reasons. We weren't aware of it, and that's why we were confused about it. <clears throat> we are still willing to carry the event. We just want some insurances that these kind of things will not happen again. Our event people and the CEO had never seen any footage. As far as whether any, he or anyone requested seeing the tape as a 5 p.m. Monday afternoon, December 30th, he said, no, we're actually trying to get a copy of it now. And there, so they learned details of what happened in the very first from ECW officials when questioned, and some other sources, eventually including accounts of the incident by fans on the Internet. Our situation was we basically put a hold in everything because we were somewhat missed. The incident was not brought to our attention, Panera said. I deal with a lot more controversial events. If Paul Heyman had actually done what he said he was going to do, then we would have been less insecure about taking the event. We would have basically dealt with the situation a whole lot sooner. Even if he did send them out, which is a tape, he should have put in a phone call to the vice president of event program request if he was choice, explain the whole situation, which I know he did not do. He didn't do it either. Panera says he didn't have a discussion with ECW last week, but others in his staff have been speaking with them. 
He says because Amazon is a very busy time around Christmas and New Year's has been more difficult than necessary. I think this whole thing will begin to get resolved later this week or around the beginning of next week. I'm very open to talking to them. <laughs> well, this is a lot of information that is sort of lost to history. When people, uh, yeah, you know, like there's a lot of things in in those. What I assume are direct quotes. I mean, they're presented yes, direct quotes. quotes. Panero to Wayne, and Panero is laying up, laying up completely what the situation is. And Panero is basically saying here that this whole situation is Paul Heyman's fault. If he would have gave us the tape like he said he did, and we would have handled this immediately internally, then the whole situation probably would have blown over. And. It seems like he's saying that they found out about the Revere thing with Coolis from going on the internet and doing their own ECW research, primarily. Yeah, that's part of it. It seems like the only thing that had to do with Wade at all was the thing about a tape which Paul had mentioned and told him to check. Okay, I have a question for both of you. Yeah, it's Paul Heyman. But... Do you think this was just him spinning and not checking himself? Or do you think this was at least partially on purpose or maybe even accidentally on purpose to be able to fashion Wade into an enemy scapegoat? I think the initial knee-jerk reaction to anybody listening to that would be like, oh, this is, that's a crazy conspiracy, Bix. Um I also <laughs> think if you think about it for five minutes and you have kind of the depth of knowledge on him and, and all this stuff, that's not crazy at all. It really isn't. I'm not saying it's true, and obviously you're not asking if we know it to be true, but like he need he had a carrot. Uh he realized his carrot might have a problem, which is the pay-per-view, which is what he's now telling all his employees that they're working towards. And he realized he could double down on the us against the world, join the revolution type of that what has now become known as the uh, the Kool Aid drinking, he realized that it offered him uh, more time to to prepare for a pay per view, which he seemed woefully unprepared for, while but, at the same time scapegoating somebody and rallying the troops. I mean, it it was a super win for him in a way. I also think he got caught where he didn't think Wade was gonna. He didn't think I would bet he didn't think Wade could get through to any of these people to get them on the record. Well, my my thing is, I, I'm generally wonder if he if he actually thought there was a tape sent out, and there and it wasn't. Oh, like he asked Gabe or Feinstein or someone to do it. Yeah, as opposed. Well, I mean, Gabe was ECW office, but maybe he was liaison though. You yeah, know what I mean, like Gabe would have been. And I'm not saying this is still like shit on Gabe or blame Gabe. I'm just thinking out loud about who that could be. Maybe he thought it actually there's tapes that actually were sent out. But he also never told anyone at request about it. And if he was sending the tape, you would think he would have told the people at request first. It's also important to note that I don't think a lot of people realize that although um, history has kind of recorded, thanks to, in part to Gabe, uh, in large part to Gabe, that he was Paul Heyman's personal assistant. Um, and I think people kind of have this idea of the eccentric, crazy creative guy and then this other guy just kind of following him around all day uh gabe worked out of an office upstairs of todd gordon's jewelry shop at uh 10th and sampson street in philadelphia <clears throat> paul lived 
in New York. They did all business via phone for the most part, except for weekends when they were at the shows together. So he could, he may have called because remember, no text messaging, none of that. Maybe they're using email, but they're probably doing direct calls. Um, so if he did tell Gabe to do this, it's not like they're in the same office and he's like double checking. Hmm. But again, if he had actually done it, he would have told someone at request, we're sending you a tape. He wouldn't have just let the tape show up. Yep. So I, I don't think we can believe at all that he even attempted to send it. I mean, I'd be shocked if he did because I don't know. Like, I mean, even, even a non-wrestling person who runs a company and something like this happens, and maybe they're just the purest person in the world, so to speak. But they're running their business, and then one of their employees does something really insane that jeopardizes a major business deal that is that he has told all of his employees and he himself believes is the next big step. I think um, we'd all like to be white knights and be like, well, yeah, I would be transparent and blah, blah, blah. But what you're really doing is you're call, almost cold calling up um, a company. Like I, He wouldn't have called Cupanero, but he would have had to deal with the people, like the programming people, and been like, Hey, so we have a problem. I'm going to send you a tape. It's going to look bad, and I'm not going to be there when you watch it. But just know that this isn't like what we do. Like, it's a pretty crazy thing. I don't know that I would have sent that tape. I mean, in all honesty, the easiest thing he could have done, regardless of whether or not you think New Jack did the, did it maliciously, the easiest thing he could have done to take care of everything would have been to fire New Jack. That. That is a really good point, and I've never at any point <clears throat> heard that Jack was in any sort of trouble. If anything, it was going to happen. It wasn't going to happen because New Jack was seen as a hero by some in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. New Jack took out this kid that lied and was tr pretending to be a wrestler. Yeah, the locker room had circled the wagon so much by this point. Well, he did that, though. That's a really good point. Like, I'm not talking about the locker I'm talking about the fans. True, but he's also already told – this is you, – you stumbled into a good point here, Chris, even though you were making it about the fans, which is the second level. But on your very first level, like, Paul, on a day-to-day -day basis, isn't going to have to deal with the fans. But even on show weekends, he doesn't have to necessarily deal with the fans. He does have to deal with his locker room and keep them happy somehow and keep them doing what he needs to do in a very, quote-unquote, extreme environment. If he's already told, rallied them, he can't then turn around and fire Jack because then that kind of admits some guilt or, 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 or Jack becomes a patsy when he's already said, well, we did nothing wrong and we're being persecuted. I mean, I guess he, in knowing Heyman, he could have spun it, but I feel like at that point he'd already said, Jack, you're good. This isn't, this kid was a phony. And you have a locker room full of wrestlers who are probably, like, even if they didn't like it, would still be, like, a lot of them, well, he got to cut you bad. I went through worse when I was getting trained. You know, either being <clears throat> stretched or something. I'm sure there are people who would react to that way. Yeah, that's very, to this day, in different degrees. It's different stuff, but it's still that war. Well, I went through this. It's very much like, especially at that time, it would be trying to hold on to the territorial stuff. I know those guys had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder that a lot of them didn't get to travel. The territories had shut down by that point, and old-timers were like, well, in my day, and if you'll notice, by like the mid to late aughts, ECW guys are already pushing the narrative of, you know, we were the final territory. 
Yeah. I, I think that there is this, this idea and this adage of um, th this person must be weak because they couldn't handle it, whereas I am not because I can endure whatever. Even if I am unhappy, I don't publicly say so. Well, let's talk about the happiness of that talent, I guess. <clears throat> you said Russia have been told informally that preview negotiations are continuing. Over the weekend, there was no collective reaction to preview being in jeopardy. The house shows there was no blood in the gangsters' matches. There was bleeding only in the main event at each show, which may be a sign of pulling back a bit on the part of the book uh, by the Booker Heyman. <clears throat> Several, if not many, wrestlers in the locker room believed there was too much bleeding on ECW shows, and that bleeding losses effectiveness. When early matches contain bleeding, not to mention indiscriminate use of the house might brawl in the crowd, use more nonsense beating of women. Because of this controversy, wrestlers who have qualms with the promotion's content may have decided to speak up more than they had in the past, pushing for these elements to be used more selectively. One weekend, though, is not enough to judge whether major changes have been made in the product. There has been speculation within the industry that Heyman was dangling the baby carrot in front of his wrestlers, getting them from jumping ship. Yet they didn't have an expectation to actually go on pay-per-view because of the consequences should the event flop. However, sources say that some of the contracts top E7 wrestlers signed recently are void if the preview does not take place. So Heyman would risk losing talent if he were bluffing. I see a lot of good coming out of this, says one ECW wrestler. We've had our critics from day one. Some are oversensitive, but some have good points. Now those will be addressed. Huh. Well, they, I mean, you need to tone down. If you, if you do stuff at the beginning of the show, such as have a whole lot of heavy blood matches, whatever, then you totally killed the effectiveness of it later on the show. Yeah. I mean, it's simple. My, I'm curious if you're with me on this. My guess is that wrestler quoted at the end of Shane Douglas. Probably. And, 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 and then there's that, you know, the, the favorite carrot. <clears throat> so, I don't know. Especially because if you're, if you're Shane Douglas in your particular situation, you need to be optimistic. Well, he, where's he going to go in this time and place? Well, he ain't going to WBF, and he damn sure ain't going to WCW. I mean, has Shane by this point, I mean, well, he'd done the torch talk a few months earlier, but at this point, this is like right before he stops teaching and gives up on medical school, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if this pay-per-view doesn't happen, I mean, because this is right when he's on the precipice, if they, <clears throat> if they end up losing pay-per-view completely, I could see a scenario where Shane Douglas just quits wrestling. He would have been a lot healthier if he did. <laughs> His body would be where it is now. Especially because, yeah, 90, this is like we are literally also right before he just breaks down. Yes. Well, I was about to say, this is the last year of, like, I know a lot of people have made jokes about Shane, but this is the, the year... Uh, before he got very bulky and his body was breaking down and he just became this character of of the promo guy who just cursed a lot and said shooty-ish things. and Like, he still had a viable act within that audience. Oh, 96 is the best year of his career, I think. Right, right. right. Like, like far none. He's put himself in a bad position, certainly, at, at this point with other companies, but he's still a very viable, like, I think he's a smart guy who's aware that time is ticking on him and he wants to move and his the best thing for him is to be a major player in a newly emerging company during a boom and he's doing the best work of his career he's doing the best promos he's got a new valet and they're this hot act he's in the middle yeah. of this super hot angle just you know he 
when was the Halo angle? Was that 96 or early 97? Yeah, it summer of 96. Summer 96. So he's coming off, you know, the most heated angle in the history of the ECW arena. Like, if, you know, he has all this good stuff he's just had, and if things are about to go south, it would be like, oh, it's been a good run. But if he's got pay-per-view coming up and all that, like... Uh, and they're just about to start the root angle, too. Yeah. Within, <clears throat> within the coming week. As I recall. All right, let's go back to Hugh Panero. The, the following is a complete press release issue by Hugh Panero and Press Request TV regarding Big controversy. Say it was primarily drafted. According to Panero, to inform those getting their information on the internet about all the misinformation circulated. <clears throat> Request TV has been in ongoing negotiation, discussions with ECW to carry one of its events in 1997. During these discussions, we learned about specific incidents involving underage ECW refs who appeared to be seriously injured during an event in Massachusetts. We were surprised ECW had never mentioned these public relationship problems existed. And contrary to claims made by ECW, no taping incident was sent to anyone request TV. Whenever we work with any favorite event producer, we like to be thorough in investigating their ability to stage quality event. Therefore, my staff was instructed to research the alleged incidences and discover they were true, and also learn that generally ECW was theoretically more violent than other wrestling events. Based on this new information and the fact that ECW event would be a step up from being a local event to a national review event, we decided to be prudent to temporarily cancel the event while we did additional research to better understand how ECW operates. We are still considering carrying the event, and as we would with any national review event, we are taking great precaution to ensure that when an event does air, it meets all of our standards to create longevity for that particular event. All right, there's your corporate news uh, public release there to everybody. So we got that. All right, let's move on. <clears throat> Nisa pay-per-view controversy has been a subject of discussion in many places. Our man on the hotline said the following. New Jack of the Gangsters played a 17-year-old substitute wrestler be the ear, causing more blood to flow in a wrestling ring than I've ever seen before. He got very gory and very serious. Nisa originally said the 17-year-old jerked his head to cause him to smear cut himself, but I've seen it say, and that's simply not true. New Jack fast showed the crowd the blade and seemed to enjoy juicing the kid. It sure was not done within the usual pro wrestling context. He said we let the match continue while the kid bled profusely, lying in a pool of his own blood for quite some time. I love Ecevi's product, and I think it should be on pay-per-view, and I think, and I think it should be, as I said, a viewer's choice. But I think Ecevi administration has forgotten there are two worlds, two worlds in the wrestling business. What made Eric Bischoff so successful is he has one foot firmly planted in the corporate world, even as he runs a wrestling company. He has to live in the real world. Ecevi does not. It tries to justify terrible, serious incidents by imposing the twisted anything goes mentality of the old school wrestling business. Well, pay-per-view ain't old school. And in 1997, Pro Wrestling's Big Bucks. If you'd rather have a twisted brotherhood running a renegade promotion and creating your own definition of right and wrong, then no pay-per-view for you. Bingo Hall forever. Hope that's not the case, because ECW's product deserves better, and the creative mind of Paul Heyman does too. Madden's got some great points there. He's not uh, he's not off his rocker, for sure, on this one. You know, if, if you want to be viable on a pay-per-view environment... You have to change your mentality from what their mentality was. Yes. And you, you can still keep that mentality as as your on-air type situation. Yes, it can be an ethos as a persona. Yes. Yes. You can't do it in real life. Yes. And you, go ahead. I was just going to say, he's also couching it in a way that's very uh, – like, it's like palpable. It's, it, you can swallow it, so to speak. He's not like, well, there are a bunch of nobodies in the bingo hall and blah, blah, blah. He's like, I like it. I want it to be something more. Uh, yeah. My boss does this. 
and it's because it's a business and it's a corporation and they keep heading down this road and it's 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 not helping it's only hurting i thought it, it's very it's it's totally against this idea of what we kind of think of madden now or what he kind of became it's 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 the madden that i got into in the late 90s that's i used to call the backdoor number to wcw outline just to listen to him because he was more like this yeah, yeah. and he makes a good point on that's really not brought up much with this i mean i guess stuff like that would be done a little bit more as time went on but New Jack and really no one else had just taken a knife of any kind to anyone's head before. That's not a thing anyone really did in wrestling. It's not even a gimmick up fork or anything. Exactly. Like, even if he was, like, like hamming it up, I, I don't see him doing that to anyone on the ECW roster. Even if, yeah. he, even if he kept it under control or tried to, I, I just don't see that happening. I think time and and the way the conversation has gone um, has sort of, how can I say this? I think that's a really good point, Bix, because as you said earlier in the show, he's like using what looks like almost like a, a surgical knife. And he's making no, like the story is, oh, he bladed the kid, but it was sort of malicious and it was crazy, which in and of itself, while being like negative, is still putting it in a wrestling context, he didn't, like, blading is supposed to be the magic trick, right? I'm not supposed to see that. And there's this video where he just is like, hey, audience, pay attention now. I'm, I'm calling attention to this. I'm about to just cut a person. I'm going to assault a person and cut their head open. Way, way worse than, like, that's not even blading, which is something that I don't even think about all the time. He basically was like, hey, I'm about to, commit a crime, but I have plausible deniability because I'm not doing it as Jerome Young. I'm doing it as this character, New Jack. Which but, is also great for the New Jack character. Right. Like, it's pretty nuts. Because you're right. This isn't... This is even more rare and taboo than all the wrestling stuff that we are used to that's weird in the real world. And I don't think that gets talked about enough. This is insane. This, this is not him taking liberties with a pro wrestling blade. No, no. He, I do think he definitely saw a spot where, like you said, he could do something. I don't think he's doing this to anybody on that roster. But he may very well have been doing this more with the motivations of getting New Jack over and creating kind of a story than anything else. I mean, yeah, he was annoyed by Coolis, but maybe he sees the opportunity more as, okay, teach him a little bit of lesson, and then the legend of New Jack grows to I was about to say, I think he thought he would, I mean, which is, just, we're already trying to think of what could, a, could New Jack be thinking, which who the hell knows. But, but um, I do think that he thought that this would increase an urban legend about it that already existed. I don't think he thought that, I don't think he ever thought that this kid would, A, like, to have to go to the hospital necessarily, or B, that this would become a major story. Again, it's very like in the moment and involves emotions. So like, who knows how deeply he thought about it before he went out there. But I don't think that he thought it would, that this would happen. And one quick thought too, before we move on to the other hotline report about this, I don't think this blows up to quite the degree as a story, both within and especially outside of wrestling in the Boston and Providence areas. If this is someone other than New Jack. So, uh, okay, I want to be clear. Yeah. Um, 
do you think it because Boston, we all have certain ideas? It's yes. Like, to a so you think it's racial to some degree? To a degree. But he also had a persona that he crafted for himself. Okay. Anyway, that's all I want to say. Anyway, let's <clears> move on. All right, Joey Stiles on the January 1st ECW 900 Line Report. Everything that's happened in the last week, there was a story going around. It was in the dirt sheets. It was on the internet. You may have heard about it. You may have read about it. And certain wrestling journalists, who I don't need to mention anymore, called Viewers Choice Television, Carl Quest Television, specifically Hugh Panero, the president, and got our preview canceled, broke off our negotiations. That's not exactly true. That's not going to end our preview hopes. Not to mention that other people are saying, could this be beginning in ECW? Do we live that week at three and a half years? Premium negotiations continue with Request Television. Viewers Choice has not agreed to carry an ECW preview before the story broke. Yes, we are two extreme viewers' choice television. If you want to call them, get their phone number, feel free. If you want to email them, feel free. However, there's still preview negotiations going on between Request TV and ECW. Let me tell you, no date has been announced yet. No, I bet there's going to be ECW preview in early 1997. So Joey Styles is uh, the only one here making any sense <laughs> in some cases on the ECW side of things. Yeah, so at least but he got still... that out there. He's still ascribing blame to Wade, though. Yeah, kind of, but still. Well, He's making also, it seem like, you know, it's not the biggest deal in the world. They're still talking. Well, he is he is right about that, though, and that is where he's the voice of reason, because it's like, you know, we'll get to further in a few minutes, and we talked about it earlier, like, nothing really happened in terms of the change to the date or anything. I, yeah, I, w- I was waiting for the whole summation, but I, I, I'll, I'll just say it now. I mean... Hugh Panera did corporate, corporate, corporate words, you know, <laughs> like, like, like that, Chris, you called out at one point with the press release. All that happens is they wait to see what's going to happen with the story because Keller reported on it. But on, I, I, all I'm saying is on Panera's part, he waited about three weeks to find out, is this going to blow up? It didn't. So he told his underlings who were handling all of this anyway, proceed. It doesn't seem like anything is going to happen. Just make sure we know everything about these people. Otherwise, go back to business. If it had blown up, he would have went, well, we got right out in front of this. But it didn't. So nothing happens. Like This whole legend of ECW lost their pay-per-view is so much more dramatized than it really ever needed to be. Because it's really just, let's pause and see what happens for three weeks. And nothing does. And it goes to the same date that we had before all of this started in the first place. All right. <clears throat> Steve Coolis, Eric Mastransic Coolis's father, told the torch two weekends ago that his son went to the neurosurgeon a few days earlier and was told he had nerve damage in his forehead because the blade cut through muscle tissue. He said Eric would end up with an incredible scar on his face. He said, although my son didn't belong in that match, it took a lot of guts for him to get in the ring. My son was being bamboozled and he was too naive to understand what was going on around him. Everybody seems worried about what's going to happen to ECW, but what about my son? Eric Cool says he, no, no, he says he has no interest in a career in wrestling because of this incident. Anybody wants to get into wrestling, don't bother. Even for charity or in your backyard, you could die. Uh, different films on life and God now this has happened. I stood up at night and tried to think of reasons not to cry. With a cut, I looked like someone just got out of prison. I hate New Jeff for what he did to me. I hate Paulie dangerously for lying about everything. And most of all, I hate wrestling. He said that during the incident, he wanted to run away. I feel the blood running through my hands. I had to roll with it, though. I didn't want to run away. I wanted to get out of there, but I knew I'd fall down. Okay, so we get the comments here after the fact, but we also have the reports about what he was, his actions after the event happened. So are we thinking that now he's finally looking at this now, like, oh, shit, I was an idiot. 
or what, what, what do you, I mean, what's the thoughts? I think to some degree it's that he's just fucked up with the time passing. I yeah. think it's just as simple as that. Um, and also now that everything's kind of set in, it's like, what, what am I doing? Like, what was I doing here? Like, why? Like, yeah, maybe in the moment I was like, well, at least I can salvage something out of this. You know, in terms of like, did I do okay or whatever? But now he's... I yeah. think with... A, Go ahead. He, he wanted to impress the big kids in his mind. The people that... He wasn't just impressionable. I think he's kind of like a heavy set, insecure guy who wanted... Who was very attracted to wrestling. And this is the part that, like, I don't mean to sound overdramatic, but it's kind of heartbreaking. Because, it, you know, Eric Coolis passes away years later. He seems like he had a pretty screwed up life. I never really found his place. This really didn't help. And he was just, because of the situation, because ECW couldn't really take ownership. And when I say couldn't, they could have. They just, they refused to because it would have been bad for their business. He really, I think he feels like a loser. I think he starts seeing, I'm sure he, you know, if he's not online, at some point he would be, or he would hear what people were saying. News coverage starts to happen in his area because there then is a trial. And I think you start to see this kid who just feels like a dummy and a fool for what he put himself through to try to be accepted. And well, really- I, I think he actually thought he was going to get a job or get something. ECW was going to do something to try to be, do a make right thing. They would right, bring right. him in, well, they would do something, and they didn't do it. It's delusional, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, be- I believe you're right. And I think. I think and then he got better. Right, because he realized he was a sucker. You know what I mean? And that he did it for nothing. It's, it's sad. I mean, what he's probably thinking is why am I not doing something like Valpuccio? Well, he, I think he's just thinking in general. He's thinking that, you know, oh, this happened. They're going to definitely, you know, they're going to try to do a make good with me. They're going to, you know, they're going to try to take care of me. They're going to give me some type of job or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that they had people with similar physical limitations to him, to a degree, is my point. Well, I, I mean, so I'm, I'm talking about like wrestling in the ring. I'm talking about me even just being involved with the company. Sure. And or they would stay in contact with him, and that wasn't the case. So, all right. Each day continues to say about Varner's story to coolest and underestimate what happened to him at the time of the incident. Because according to what Tommy Drew said after the other rest is on his way to the ambulance school, was asking if he had earned a job by going through what he did and didn't see him being bad spirits or at all worried. <clears throat> Paul Hamas says what was believed to be relatively good spirits of cool that caused him to make what sounds in retrospect like cold comments about the incident while talking to reporters right after the event. But see, he had no idea how bad Eric was cut or the shape he was in, only that he'd been asked if he would be invited back. He says on that basis, he'd make comments to reporters at the event that Kulis had gone through the ECW initiation and then when he returned, he said my fans would think he was one tough son of a bitch for making it through the match of the gangsters. It's Paul, but that actually sounds completely truthful on his part. Yeah, and that's probably what what was all going on. And then once this doesn't happen, that's when coolest, you know, the tune changes. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm in agreement. It's it's both can be true. It can sound yeah. kind of depending on context, it can sound kind of heartless. But also, like he's a creative guy who's like, well. If this gets, you know, rumblings online and is and at that point he has no idea how, how negatively this will blow up. It's like, well, maybe this is a thing for the Revere crowd. And then, you know, and then we, we go from there. But to see if like the, if the Revere crowd reacts to us bringing this kid back, maybe we do kind of a mini like town specific angle. Something. And he hadn't seen the tape. I don't <clears throat> believe that, that he hadn't seen it yet. Yeah, but he probably had, he probably had heard that it caused such a big fuss online 
that knowing how the wrestling business is, that he has become infamous. And now ECW kind of ha- had to do something with it. Sure. To play, to play off the infamy. Well, we, this is where I, I remind all of us that he's 17 years old. Yeah, and, they can't do that. They ain't going to do nothing with him now for sure because he's not even 18 yet. And not right, just a 17-year-old, but 17-year-old who really hadn't been trained or anything. Well, but, but yeah, and all that's true. And I, but I also mean that, like, he's just a goofy 17-year-old kid who's, like, self-deluding himself. So, like, he can talk himself into anything, I'm sure. Yeah. I just mean there's uh, a difference <clears throat> between him and, you know, just to throw a random name out as far as someone who was wrestling when they were 17, you know, 1992 Ray Mysterio. Is right. just all I mean. As Derbs that he's not even trained. Right? Well, different country too. Different all country, right. but yeah. But he, just in terms of understanding the business and and being connected to it, yeah. Or absolutely. even no, how he would physically react to being cut or anything. Yeah. This all this right. would be like a like your random cousin who happens to be seventeen going to a wrestling show because look, it doesn't matter if you watch wrestling or not. You're just most people are not prepared to step inside the ropes and deal with anything that goes on, regardless of this level of violence. I'm sorry, Chris, continue. All right, more details from Dave Meltzer, The Observer. Panero stated on December 30th, two sides in the process of talking. And Christmas holiday slowed the negotiation cost so many people out of the office. He said he was a little bit confused about the incident revere because I'm going to inform them of it until just one week ago. Just like I'm repeating this stuff. At that point, requested to approve the ECW date, thinking they were just another pro wrestling motion like WCW. But they recognized they were more violent form of the genre. They had to learn what they do and ensured the company takes greater safeguards against injuries and move from a regional operation to getting national exposure. She is considered used to be a banned pay-per-view, but a little concerned how a 17-year-old kid with no training got into the ring and was cut up in the manner which he was. As you kill on the blood, that demonstrated the ECWs of the same professional WCW. Panera said, my people thought they were like WWF and WCW. When we found that differently, we started doing more research. And he says, I have no intention of banning them. So the date was on the books at the press time, but two sides could reach agreements on items concerned. They could still get their date not in late March or April. Heyman said that because of the problems, he's given the idea of March 30th, but still hoping to put everything together by the end of the, end of the week and be a go for April 13th. Request services about 18 million addressable households in the United States. The other major pay-per-view car- carrier, viewer choice, <clears throat> which will be a sole carrier in about 7 or 8 million of the pay-per-view homes, along with a branch that covers most of Canada, had decided against carrying the show because of the content of the ECW television show, in particular, the uses of Tyler Fullington, Sandman's son, in a wrestling angle. And the show goes on as planned. The loss of viewers was to cut out about 30% of pure profit from the show's potential. A good show and a debut show and request from a standpoint will probably influence viewers' choice to carry the second show, but there is no guarantee. Hey, Chris. Yes. Sorry, to, real quick. I don't want to elongate this even further, but I know this is from Meltzer. I, I, the story, I'm sure Meltzer called Hugh Panera. Uh, to to find out all this stuff, it seems to have shifted again. Now all of a sudden, his people underneath him thought this was like WCW or WWF. They didn't think it was combat with weapons or or, or UFC type thing anymore. He also uh, he kind of said this before to Wade, but he it's, it's just the way he puts it this time. He's like, "Well, negotiations were difficult because of the holidays, but didn't you quote unquote cancel it like on?" Isn't the legend of this or what, what is said by Heyman and others, especially on the, the rise and fall? Heyman says like Christmas Eve of 1996, I believe. So how are you negotiating with them when you canceled them? Like, I'm just it, I feel like he's kind of shifting his his own story. I mean, I guess the cancellation is pulling the date. Maybe not committing to it. Sure, sure. Right. And, you know, the re- yeah, I mean, the reason I included this stuff was because you have more from Panero on the record and it's a little different. Like, yeah, ha- but yeah, you're right. How is he? 
Also, weren't they signing on the twenty eighth? Somebody said that at some point. Yes. And then, and then that was a little different. than, oh, well, we haven't talked to them. And we have no scheduled meetings. And it's like, well, you didn't cancel that meeting to sign this big contract. So it's, and I know he's kind of flat footed and dealing with the underlings who did this and probably pissed because he just wants to enjoy Christmas because he's a very wealthy man who wasn't expecting this. But it just seems like things are kind of meandering in a weird way. Well, let's let's finish out what Dave has here as far as what he's added. All right, both requests of viewers' choice of the United States carry other controversial events as UFC. <clears throat> the viewers' choice Canada does not carry any no holds barred events. Several cable systems in the United States, cable vision Inc. being the most prominent, no one carry any no holds barred events, even though USC is behind major boxing WBF and WCW events as the most profitable regular entity currently on pay per view. No holds barred events are not being carried in some cities. The result of both political and religious pressure on the cable system. Which unless ECW has repeated the crucifix angle, which they obviously aren't going to do, let's figure to be a problem for ECW unless the company garners substantial national media attention. By that point, the company almost have to be incredibly successful for those types of problems wouldn't even raise their head. Compromises being worked on have to do with ECW putting regulation safeguards in place that would keep requests out of a major scandal and avoid repeated incidents such as a fire incident or the Revere Massachusetts. Mercy wasn't against blood being used on the show as long as the show is appropriately labeled with a warning at the beginning of the show that may be graphic violence. That blood isn't overdone. Hamas said that they agreed no stabbing or puncture type movements with sharp objects would be on use on the show, such as an Abdul the Butcher type gimmick. He said requests warning their names and ideas of all participants on the show ahead of time to make sure they are of age. He has no problem with it because it wants every participant in the show to be under contract for the show before advertising. Requests wanted to be informed of any last minute surprise participants beforehand. Hamas said considered all requests concerns be done and reasonable. Among them was requested also demanding medical personnel be on hand as it is in Boston and the whole part of events. Which this company already does on its own. Hamas said the show itself would contain a lot of wrestling. It would be a blood fest. There would be no gimmick matches with blood connotations. At least he has to show plans, such as cage matches, barbell matches, chain matches, or dog car matches. He said that the show would culminate mini feuds and be each product as it is today with no watering down. Well, hmm. And there was only one bloody person on that show, as I recall, and he was over the age of 50. <laughs> Yes, Terry Funk. It is exactly. interesting, though, to see requests saying, like, we want actual copies of the ID. Yeah. Not just, you need to be checking this, we want copies. Yeah. And the other thing is, by this point, too, maybe he's being more optimistic and talking to Dave instead of Wade, too. Like, at this point, Paul's talking about it as an inevitability again, that they're going to be on paper. Yes. Yes. All right, Dave on being on way being blamed by the fans ECW. That is even less credibility is WF hardcore fans like one blaming the company steroid scandal fiasco on someone like Phil Mushnick and ignoring the cause of the problems internally from the last fall Koga, double talk of numerous executive sites forced. In fact, nine percent of the wrestlers in the company were on steroids. They're basically considered a necessity to be a Titan wrestler in that era. The fault lies with the company for ignoring a series of warning signs and not scripted violent acts or, or near violent blow ups both involving fans and wrestlers, which dates back nineteen ninety five and culminated that night in Revere. Well, he's hopefully coming in Revere, as I hope that Revere doesn't historically turn out to be another ignore warning sign and route to a bigger problem. On the surface, it was what's somewhat perplexing to think ECW would attempt to put a lid on the take getting out, but voluntarily send the people where it could be doing the most potential damage. Although there were people in Network One, they provided a programming for most of the low-power television stations, that claimed they had been sent a take. That is a good point, too, since we did we talked about this earlier after the Torch talked to them, Network One did get a tape. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm thinking Heyman thought that tapes went out to everybody. 
which Network One got a tape. That makes me wonder then who did send the tape to Network One and why didn't they get a tape to request? And why yeah. didn't they tell request, though, if... Well, no, I just realized. He thought he had it. <laughs> well, no, I think this is part of it, too. Unless there's money being paid in a way that I doubt there is, like like we talked about earlier, Network One really doesn't mean anything to ECW in the grand No, but they're trying to. You know, they're talking about running a live special. So A live special that's clear, that was clearly never going to happen. Well, if they, if they don't get on pay-per-view, but again, probably does. But what are the odds that Network One had any live programming ever? Well, this could have been a first, maybe. Maybe, but, and then, my point is, though, is I wonder, I wonder if they sent the tape to Network One, figuring it wouldn't be as big a deal, but Request was the bigger risk. I don't know. And, and, right. I, and again, let's be clear. There's no ECW. There's not even a, a, a rented office. There, like when you're not on a show weekend, it's like Paul, his cell phone, uh, Steve Carroll for some stuff, Todd Gordon for some stuff, um, and Gabe Sapolsky. You and you have to get the tape from Rob. And I, and I guess I guess if you already procured the tape to begin with, you can dub copies. But there aren't a lot of people to do a lot of things, is what I'm saying. As I finally received a copy of the tape, the previous scripts told Dave, and he's heard plenty of different readers who were there live, and people who seen the tape could do it just, nor could anything written here do it just anyone reading this who hasn't seen the tape. It was the single biggest turn off and perhaps the most revolting thing Dave's ever seen in wrestling. I can't describe exactly what other that was. There was some other wrestling personalities involved in some pretty gruesome bloodbath promotions far while in the ECW had seen. The tape had had the same reaction. I've seen 17 year olds juice, I've seen Blaine Wood. There was bad, maybe worse, although not many. I've seen more blood spilled, although the faucet-like flow of blood from a lengthy, deep forehead cut was totally out of the ordinary in that regard. There was an ugly symbolism involved in the crowd reaction to circumstances. At least the most vocal members of the crowd was appalling, even by the worst standards of pro wrestling audience. The initial reports of this publication almost downplaying the incident as being a big deal were an embarrassment to the observer. Yeah, I, he said a lot more. I cut it down, really, to those two parts, and really mainly for that last thing he said there, that... Dave seemed to think that this reflected very badly on the Observer. Yeah. They're kind of look as, looked at as passive, more passive than the torch was, that's for sure, on it. Yeah, he referred to it as more weird than anything. Yeah. Of, so. <clears throat> All right. Jerome Young, New Jack, disputed reporting the Observer that he laughed about the incident, claiming he wasn't trying to hurt a kid and didn't laugh about it afterwards. Okay. In the long run, hopefully this incident near cancellation or layer simply scaring the debut of ECW pay-per-view will be accepted for what it is. I'd for something to be sure, but in the long run, the best thing for all. ECW was a powder keg, a potential worse explosion, which results in perhaps even more serious injury could be averted by all this as a wake-up call. It would be a whole lot better for the future of ECW for some safety guards to be put in place for the pay-per-view. Then another one of those incidents occur live with a nation watching, resulting in the company never getting a second show. The return to Revere this coming weekend was said to be a sure sellout. Well, that's the important part. Well, red equals green. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting that this had no issues for them locally until they're starting oh, to get no, a little bit I mean, of media. Oh, no, I mean, it enhanced as yeah. fans, with the fans. That's the thing. But, it, I mean, it did, change, it did change some of the company stuff, which Dave brings up a point that this could have been a, a, a blessing in the sky, so to say, JP, that this happening saved DCW from maybe potentially having an even worse disaster. 
I don't know. Like, we're entering 97. There's a riot in Plymouth meeting that is one of the more graphic things that I've ever had explained to me by one of its participants. I mean, they continue to have incidents with fans. They they keep doing now, – now, look, it doesn't happen in the ring, which is good. But then they move on to a rash of incidents uh, in the next year or two involving – wrestlers and young men who come to the show get liquored up and get wild and that in itself is a massive problem. i'm amazed those things that that plymouth meeting riot i'm amazed that didn't blow up more because um swat team showed up because it was a national guard armory so, yeah so, so like it's you know it's good that more pe- that, that no more people were like cut in the ring as part of the show so to speak in quotes but I don't know. I mean, it, they they stayed on pay per view, but I don't know that they ever truly, completely clean up clean up their behavior. I mean, maybe you can say by '99 they do when they get on T TNN, but it's a completely different company in a lot of ways at that point. Oh, absolutely. And the landscape's very different. It's not just that the workers are different; the presentation is different. Uh, the perception <laughs> of them is different, and the perception yes. of their competitors is different. All right, now we enter 1997 proper here, the week of January 6th, Observer, January 13th. Nothing new regarding the preview of the negotiation will be taking place this week. So there we go. There's a quick update there. And we advance another week to the 13th. Torch, uh, January 18th, cover date, Observer, January 20th. Observer says the situation regards to April 13th. Preview date should be finalized. By the time you read this, as a press time, he said he's feverishly working on getting all the legal insurance work necessary. To satisfy requests done by the end of this week, which would be the absolute deadline of saving the date. Technically, the 90-day deadline would have been on January the 14th, but they were given a few days leeway because everything has gone down. Basically, CWS illegally legally have insurance taken care of and absolve requests for potentially legal hassles or something unforeseen happen on the show. If the paperwork isn't done, requests will approve everything by the time you read this. It's like a paperwork will be delayed until June because requests isn't hot on the, on the show in May because it, has a basically, because it already has a big month review. We have a major boxing show planned, plus WF, WCW, and UFC. So in other words, by the weekend when this hit people's mailboxes, the deal was done. Pretty much. <clears throat> All right, Torchport on January 6th night show. Tony Schiavone, that was your favorite story. The NWO riding the court t- coattails of WCW to get on pay-per-view. It's tough to get on pay-per-view, as some people found out last week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wonder who fed that line to him. <laughs> All right, week of January 20th, Torch, January 25th, Missouri Trading Week 27. January 6th edition of the Trade Journal, multi channel news round, a page four article headline This show is rated A for appalling. The story says more streaming and stream fighting, but you may not be seeing a stream change of wrestling request TV. Favorite distributors are balking a deal with the nation ECW outfit after getting wind of the amount of violence during a recent event. We have fewer rules than a much criticized stream fighting, ultimate fighting brawls. One recent local ECW mentioned where one wrestler stabbed another under 18, no less, with a fork. According to one source, we've seen a tape of the event. Worse, he said, we apparently didn't immediately enough our request of the incident. Requests decided that the distribution of events pending further investigation. That notwithstanding, nevertheless. And that's back to Wade. <laughs> yeah. Or or, Vin, or Vincent, man. Uh, Be that as April, it may. Yeah. He spent the April 13th every day and request TV. will be finalized after all this week. Apparently, both sides have essentially agreed on everything and paperwork and all that's left. No official announcement has been made yet, basically every nor details available what the format would be. It was so told that Paul Haley would get what he originally wanted for request, which is the ability to take the event on Friday and air it on Sunday with post-production work. If it's done that way, request to have a chance to review the show before 
for content before it aired. Well, that clearly became a sticking point at the end then, I guess. Well, in between the torch and observer deadlines, this happened. Request CVS confirmed live Easter preview show for April 13th from the Easter Arena from 9 p.m. to 11.55 p.m. Eastern Time. No second date has been confirmed as of yet. Apparently, the deal is approved by finalized January 17th, with contracts signed on January 20th. The main matches on the show will feature Sabu versus Taz. A triangle match with Terry Funk, Sam and Steve Richards with the win again in shot at Ravens, the CW title later that night. Shane Douglas was pitbull too for the TV title. It very likely some kind of match involving wrestlers from Mitchell Cooper Wrestling. It's just the price of events in 1995, with $24.95 price tag day of the event. All the prices are really up to the local cable companies. In addition, there will be some sort of angle or situation involving the mask or Rick Rude either coming off or being at stake. Probably the Douglas Pitbull encounter. It's pretty imperative, imperative given each series television situation. They have a second date confirmed for April 13th so they can run angles on the first show and announce the main event for the second show and date of the second show to the preview audience. If they do a kind of buy rate based on each series popularity or just paint curiosity, as you remember, Pancreas UWFI just saw by his first time out version of fan base in the U.S., but didn't do strong follow business partially because of a lack of hype and angles on the first show to build a second show. It would mean they drew a lot of people who don't have the excess television show, and therefore would be in their best interest to make those people aware of the second date and a reason to buy it and mark it on their calendar. Okay, a lot here. First, <clears throat> I mean, you do the regular notes, so you would know this better than me, Chris. How often are there stories like this where something big breaks in between Wade putting the torch to bed and Dave finishing the Observer? Uh, well, it happens a lot. <laughs> that's why I have to. That's why I have to search stuff. Well, this big a story, though. I mean, yeah, but that's why I have to search stuff. Though, I mean, that's why I have to go a week after. I would normally have to look because stuff would happen after the deadline. I concept and I have to meld it in to the notes. Yeah. But the stuff that was reported, you know, <clears throat> that was going to happen. Um, what's the one I just had that I had to do that to? Um, can't remember now, but I just had to do that on the, on the show, on the notes for uh show coming up next week. Okay. I just had to do that because it's reported that something is going to happen. Oh, no, I remember. Uh, Roddy Piper, when he took over for Jake Roberts, when Jake had his legal issues in, in 89, it was reported in, in the Observer that Piper was uh, going to be working for 10 days. He had, you know, set up a 10-day thing, blah, 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 blah. Well, then the next week Observer, it was reported that Piper only worked three days. And then, and then Snooker replaced Jake on the rest of the shows. So I had to go and edit. <laughs> because it happened so and that was in 89 it happened a lot more in the early days when it comes to 1997 it's not happening as much well i'm not talking about something changing week to week as much as it happening between like in the window between the torch and the observer being put to bed well i don't i don't pay attention to their dates like you do okay <laughs> well, I mean, you, you're the one that knows the date pattern. I don't, I don't know that. I didn't know that. I'm just following the timeline of my week proper. Well, I mean, I, that's what I'm saying. I, you know, you know, these are written the same week, and you know, I think. But I didn't. Even, I didn't know what, what day the torch come out. I don't. I don't know when it comes out. Well, I never. I never subscribed to the torch. I never subscribed to the server. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I never subscribed to any of them. So the multi-channel news thing. Now to get back on track, that had actually been covered covered in the Observer a week or two earlier, but Wade was the one who had the whole text of the blur. 
and yeah, they clearly think ECW is a shoot with knives and shit. <clears throat> well, that you know what you're talking about. What's covered in what? That happens. I mean, you'll see stuff in one, and then there won't be, and then it won't appear in the other one for like a week or two later. Right. But anyway, as far as like the content, I mean, it goes to I guess what requests thought. But I mean, it's it's funny to me seeing this in the trade journal though, because like we consider these like highbrow publications that we trust for the most accurate info on like all the pay-per-view and TV business stuff. And here they are like, nah, shoot fights with knives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's the worst. Like if you find like in modern day, a podcast that you're like, Oh, this is really well researched. And then they do something about a topic you happen to know a lot about. And if it's not that good, you you go like, well, let me reassess everything I've heard from this from before. Yes, that always scares me about journalism. I think though that like wrestling scores higher with that because I do think, especially back then, and still a little bit now less, that there certainly was this arrogance of like, who's going to fact check or give a crap? It's just wrestling in quotes, you know? Right. <clears throat> All right, let's go to the week of January twenty seventh. Torch covered February first. Observer covered February third. ECW Request Television reached an agreement last week to air a live review show on April 13th from 9 p.m. to midnight for ECW Arena. Start time two hours later than the typical wrestling review. The show subtitled Barely Legal is priced at $19.95. And this is the Torch, by the way. Torch also reported ECW hosts achieved the initial level of success of UWF pay increase in the UFC during their first preview ventures. But unlike US, uh, UWF pay increase set to build strong boundaries for each subsequent event, it's meant to be once around once every three months rather than face a drop off that their initial curiosity had been saved. <clears throat> ECWs are in the process of setting the second preview day for a few months later. Because there'll be presumably many first time curiosity viewers attracted by the initial advertising blitz. ECW wants to alert them to a follow up date. While they have them as a captive audience, they hope to get that date secure within a few weeks. Now, real quick before we get to what Paul <clears throat> told Wade, I feel like it gets forgotten in all of this that when the actual pay per view happens, that show relative to the exposure of ECW and not being on every cable system, actually, I don't know what superlative is right, but they, it kind of did phenomenal business for what it was. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I used to promote Paul Heyman's once he says for a preview to show people what all the talk was about. He says we're showing a national audience to show from our arena, a little bingo hall that holds a little over a thousand people that has fans who are devoted to product featuring hard work and wrestlers with clean and semi-clean finishes to the matches with adult themed storylines of better quality. And you're fine with the other promotions. He believes ECW storylines stand out because the issues between wrestlers are personal in nature, at times intensely personal, such as Raven still and Sandman's wife and son, Shane Douglas jerking Pitbull once neck immobilizer. We've been far from perfect in this area, but we try to do blood for a reason, he says. When we do it right, it works. Heyman says the show is designed to have several hooks, not one predominant headline match. He says Taz or Sabu probably be the final match, but ECW title match might be the finale instead. In terms of marketing, Heyman says he has hundreds of ideas on how to market it through both paid and bartered ads. He doesn't expect there to be a level of publicity that would compare with the coverage Extreme Fighting Battlecade, World of Fighting Championship has received in New York in recent weeks, despite the violent aspects of each other's product. We're not going to flaunt elements that can be lifted the wrong way without stubbornness to, or to achieve some sort of moral victory, he says. We'll worry about that later. Why screw it up now? Extreme Fighting Review schedule for Manhattan is just two weeks before ECW can steal the attention of scrutinizing media or ECW can be piggybacked on their stories. Well, <laughs> ECW and uh, the No Holds Barred stuff is just about to get started. Oh, the confusion with Extreme Fighting? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the, I mean, there's that, and then also, um, where Joey Styles said, 
I heard him say this out loud and feel like it I don't think it would have been 97 but it, it's pre-observer live so I guessing this would have been here in New York on getting the ring and I think they asked him like what do you think ECW should have done differently initially with pay-per-view and Styles says something like well for one thing we definitely shouldn't have called the first show barely legal <clears throat> he was he was he was not joking on that yes <laughs> hmm. I just think I, I realized they didn't have you know Wikipedia back then and smartphones, but it's amazing that that there were executives at in random industries that that ECW had to deal with that were just like, well, they both stay extreme, so I guess it's the same. I'm not gonna research any of this, but uh, because I I do remember now, who knows? Because it might be part you know part of building you know your ur- urban legend persona. But, you know, several ECW personalities, specifically Paul Heyman, would talk about, oh, they didn't want to let us on the air because they thought we were extreme fighting. They thought it was all a shoot. And that sounds hyperbolic and kind of silly. But it also does seem that both the Torch and the Observer are like, yeah, these places really do that the level of research is nothing here. And that's kind of shocking. And also... Maybe not necessarily the pay-per-view companies. There probably was a level of some companies they may have tried to do business with that just saw the name and thought that and was just at the, oh, we won't even talk to them level. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. All right. Request TV's press release announcement barely to include these quotes. From Request Debbie Baratman, Vice President Programming, you said still actually more extreme and more aggressive than other wrestling events we care. And we have taken several precautions to ensure the events geared to adult audience by including several, uh, including burner warning, excuse me, similar to how we would treat an already movie by giving a later time slot. And for Paul Heyman, the opportunity for our growing fan base around the country to ECW and pay-per-view will be a great boost for us and take ECW to another plateau. We feel strong we have an extremely popular entertaining product and we look forward to showcasing our incredibly talented athletes to a national audience. Isn't it adorable when Paul <laughs> has to do corporate speak? <laughs> yeah. Request TV is available in about 55% of all cable homes. The ECW is facing limited market penetration when viewers' choice sitting out. Industry sources say now that Request has agreed to KCW. Viewers' choice is even more likely to stick to the high road approach and not carry ECW. Hope is if the first preview succeeds and without much controversy, viewers' choice will come aboard. Among the requirements requests have for ECW, there must be a dot in a ring slide with a power slide match at any time if a wrestler is in serious danger. They must be present in the arena. has to be held under athletic governing body. Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission has always overseen ECW. Wrestlers have to pass the physical day of the show. Wrestlers must be insured. There must be an accredited police officer present. They need to approve ahead of time any foreign options will be used. There's no ban on blading, use of chairs, brawl in the crowd, or any signature elements of ECW. ECW plans to upgrade the lighting a little bit, plus jazz at the ring entrance, ring apron, and ringside mats. But otherwise, keep looking at the arena similar to its current look. Okay, what's an accredited police officer? And what makes it different from a regular police officer? Somebody that's probably... More established, I guess you would say. Maybe not just your run-of-the-mill cop, probably. See, I always thought that word had to do with the education system. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's it's a higher, probably a higher rank, probably like a lieutenant or a sergeant, not just some someone beat, who's who's passed an cop. exam and gotten a promotion. Yeah, somebody's got some power, not some beat cop. The definition is officially recognized or authorized. 
So yeah. I thought I thought all cops were authorized, but I know what you mean. That could be a you know kind of become a slang word for a certain stature. I mean, does yeah. that mean someone sent by the police department specifically to handle this event? Maybe like non non rented security. I'm guessing. <clears throat> yeah, even if they are a police officer, something like that. I guess. Um, so, so Ronnie Lang and Atlas are not accredited, or are they? Well, they're they... not police officers, with those. Sure. Atlas. But I imagine that Ronnie Ronnie runs a pretty tight ship, so I feel like those guys have to get some sort of training. Now, I don't know if that, you know, again, like you said, it's not police. It can be accredited, whatever certificate they get, but who knows? And it, and they bring their own helmets. They have them freshly cut every <clears> week. <throat> so yeah. nothing, nothing. Sorry. <laughs> oh, so we had some delay we... there. That okay. <laughs> So what did we learn? We learned that uh, Hugh Panera didn't really know what was truly going on. We learned that Bruce never sent a tape. We learned um, that I mean, we learned that Wade didn't send a tape. We learned that Wade didn't do anything wrong, and that Bruce, for some reason, has been thrust into somehow tag teaming with Wade to call requests. Uh, we learned that uh, once again that Bruce Mitchell is not a reporter. Um, ooh, we learned that uh, from the time the incident happened until it became a story. Uh, with with uh, with request, quote unquote, canceling and or delaying the pay per view was longer than the actual delay and or cancellation was because it seems by like January fourteenth they had agreed somewhat in principle to do a show. It was just ironing out and signing a piece of paper. Yes, for the cancellation was never really a big deal, which makes the damage control from the ECW House of Organs even weirder. Yeah. And that legend has kind of stuck around, though. That's kind of like what we had said a while back. That's always kind of nuts to me. Yeah, like, it, I, I that's honestly, like, you look at it all together with the timeline. Like, that's one of the things that's really sticking out to me. Like, you look at this with hindsight, and especially, like, within a, within a week, I mean, Request and ECW are on the same page as far as, like, I don't know, we're still negotiating. The date's just canceled for the time being, like, and, like, one of those weeks is Christmas, which Hugh Panera keeps saying, ah, it's difficult to meet, you know, holidays and whatnot. Like, if, if it's not happening over Christmas, um, well, I think you could make an argument if you want to go crazy down a rabbit hole that, like, oh, well, maybe it blows up more if it's not around Christmas. But I, all, but I, I, I would be more conservative and just say, like, I think this gets solved even quicker if this happens in, you know, if this comes out January 3rd, I think that they're still signing – you know, papers or handshaking by January 14th or earlier. Yeah, and also it feels kind of like maybe Hugh Panero or whoever just said like, okay, oh geez, it's Christmas. Cancel their date for now and we'll deal with this when we get back in the office. Bingo, yeah. Like, like I said <clears throat> throughout this whole thing, I think he was just like, all right, somebody underneath me is nearly getting fired because this should I should be skiing somewhere and not having to answer questions when I'm not fully informed and we just wait to see what happens and within a week he's like oh nobody gives a shit just this one guy is asking questions this is not a national emergency let's go forward making some money with these people just tell them to not knock off the crap but in fairness because i know i'm painting him a certain way he did make very clear this could have all been avoided if yes. paul Heyman hadn't been so paul Heyman. and paul Heyman being paul Heyman though it really was not very savvy on his part to nearly ruin his relationship with one of the two big newsletters. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, 
And weirdly enough, he got he sort of got it back once Jason shows up. I mean, he does. There is, and stronger. Yeah, as I recall, like there is a period where the torch doesn't have quotes, and there there's obviously a little less information, and then it really picks up heavily again. Like they've got quotes all over the place by '98 again. Ever and ever. And you have any further thoughts, Chris, as far as wrapping this up? Like, what? I'm very tired. That's my thoughts. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. We had our fun. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this was a really great show. Yes. I mean, we had lots of information, <clears throat> lots of, you know, great discussion. Uh, JP, you definitely added a ton to this show. So, I definitely thank you a lot for bringing that perspective in. Thank um, you. your experiences with all the people involved in all this. So that, that put this over the top is uh, <clears throat> definitely one of the top shows we've ever done on Patreon. Yes. And, and period. Yes. So thank you for that. Definitely. Yes, Bix, thank, thank you. you, of course, for uh, doing the notes. And this is Christian. So long from the Peach State of Georgia. <laughs>